Welcome to the Grand Theft World podcast brought to you by the members of GrandTheftWorld.com. We got a lot of news to unpack in the next six or seven hours. This week in Grand Theft World news, we're going to cover stories like this. Elon said, let that sink in or let this sink in. It's debated the sync picture, but Elon took over Twitter and things are changing. Will they change as much as everyone optimistically hopes? Or maybe a little bit less. Maybe there's going to be a council of deciders to see if your speech can be free. Maybe there's not going to be uh, a uniform freedom of speech platform. Uh, maybe there aren't going to be degrees and limits, even under Elon's guidance. We're going to learn more about that story tonight. And just when you didn't think that Kanye could dig deeper, he got out this week and he dug a lot deeper with Lex Friedman. We're going to take a look at what he actually said, what he's referring to and what other people said about what they said that makes so much drama over the situation that Adidas dropped him and he got uh, escorted out of Skechers this past week. So there's a lot going on in the freedom of speech front. And it's nice of Ye to take some of that media spotlight off the $2.75 trillion Alex Jones decision. You know, he says there's going to be more than one person crucified for free speech. And Ye's up there on uh, up there on Mount Calvary. So next uh, story up, Ben Shapiro, who is a big proponent of mandatory vaccinations, is doing some backpedaling. All of a sudden he found out they lied. And he's quite upset about it. But I don't know if I believe his indignation because I think someone like Shapiro should have, would have, could have known better in this situation and not just trusted the uh, the Fauci authorities. And coupling with those realizations that he was lied to by the big bad authorities, Robert F. Kennedy released his documentary, The Real Dr. Fauci. It's um, four hours and not a moment wasted. There's many different topics covered. It doesn't just deal with COVID. It goes all the way back into the 1980s and through up through the early 2000s with the uh, bioweapons research after the anthrax attacks. So it's a really well-documented, pun intended, treatment of uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr.'s book, The Real Dr. Fauci. We're going to take a look at a serious chunk of that movie tonight and the intermission. But before we can get to that, we have to celebrate the fact that after doing four hours of interviews here on Grand Theft World, Whitney Webb made it to the Patrick Bet David podcast this past week and a platform that legitimately gets millions of views. So the Epstein saga, the super mob that she's describing in her books is now reaching a wider audience. And I think it's good to celebrate any of our colleagues having a piece of this message, getting out there to a wider audience. It's a very important time in history. So we'll take a look at that. We also got to see what the future of cybernetics looks like. You know, Elon Musk talks about brain implants and brain chips and Klaus Schwab talks about brain chips and implants. Well, we got to see, um, Candidate Fetterman, John Fetterman, who recently had a stroke a couple months ago, compete on stage in a debate against Dr. Oz with the help of not one, but two teleprompters giving him the words to say. So that brings up a lot of interesting questions in relation to technology and U.S. Uh, political representatives. Should your representative be guiding you and in, in leading uh, his area based on words on screen that somebody else is typing in or better yet, that's coming from AI software? Where, where's the uh, slippery slope in this and how long does uh, direct representation uh, go on without cybernetics in between? So we're going to take a look at that story. Uh, winding it up, there's a story recently today, tragically, uh, Paul Pelosi was attacked by a man in his house with a hammer. There's a lot of questions. What kind of hammer? What was the guy doing in your house? There's a whole lot of questions about that story. We'll break into it tonight. And then last but not least, uh, Connor Boyack is going to be our guest, author of the Tuttle Twins uh, series of books and a whole lot more. We're going to learn about entrepreneurism. We're going to learn about family. We're going to learn about ethics and things that people need to learn 
that aren't being taught or reinforced by our society. And that presents opportunities to entrepreneurs like Connor. So it's a really fascinating conversation that we're going to have on that topic. So before we can get to all that, let's kick it off with this week's report from Luke Radowski at wearechange.org and thebestpoliticalshirts.com. Let's go to his earlier today, Sunday wrap-up report. Good. Okay, I had to made some kind of a dent by now. <laughs> Poor guy, he's gonna be there all day. Does he know how many people were censored for political speech? It's a lot of people. Welcome back. Beautiful and amazing human beings. This is Lukanowski here of We Are Change Network. And there is so much absolutely crazy news to get into today, especially when it comes to the memeiverse, as Elon Musk himself has fact-checked some real-life fake news from Hillary Clinton. As the story about Paul Pelosi just gets a lot more bewildering and confusing, we're going to be talking about that. All the major fact-checks, people being called out on their bullcrap, what's coming our way on Twitter, well, we're going to be talking about that, plus a lot more if you like the shirt that I'm wearing, you could get it on thebestpoliticalshirts.com. And of course, the clip that we played in the beginning of this broadcast is by the extremely talented Draft Anzer Memes. And if you're not following him on Twitter, what are you waiting for? If he has a YouTube page, we of course will link it down in the description below. But of course, you could watch many of his amazing memes and clips and goofs and gags and jokes, all specifically on his Twitter page, Twitter at DreFanzer, if, if, again, we'll, we'll just link it all down in the description below, as, of course, it is brilliant comedic meme magic that definitely deserves to be shared widely. Now, in the making of this video, it definitely looks like the political discussion in this country is centered around the horrible events that led to, of course, Paul Pelosi being attacked. The Speaker of the House husband who was attacked recently and automatically this tragic event is being heavily politicized as of course a lot of people are selecting whatever elements of the story that they want to pick and choose in order to set a narrative here that works for them in a political advantage. When in reality we should be saying hey th this is horrible that this happened we don't know what happened yet we shouldn't be jumping to conclusions and we shouldn't be using this horrible incident for political brownie points and that's the exact opposite of what happens. And here as an independent media organization, we of course have and always will have call out political violence for what it is, absolute idiocy, tools of low IQ thinkers, and something that no matter who it affects should always be called out against. Unlike, of course, many famous leftist commentators who on social media routinely call for political violence like Brooklyn Dad Defiant and, of course, other commentators that do call for political violence. But then when it happens against their side, they feign with how horrified they are. And, and again, how about we just don't call for violence in the first place, which is, again, what we've been doing here from the very beginning. And in the midst of all of this, it's important to note here that Paul Pelosi did suffer serious injuries. He did have to have brain surgery. And I think first, before doing anything else, we have to call out this specific violence, as well as any other idiot and pundit that has previously called for violence. The second thing we should do from this incident is, of course, try to understand it. Now, according to the corporate media, according to the official version, there was a crazed man that was radicalized 
radicalized and became far right because of the internet and then he came to personally take out the Pelosi's launching a very vicious political attack on them and when he couldn't get Nancy Pelosi he then of course used the hammer against her husband injuring him very severely that's the official story now I think it's important to take this story one by one and kind of break it down here especially when it comes to the larger assertions by the corporate media that he was some kind of right-wing radical when we're finding out he was a part of a nudist hippie commune in Berkeley California lived in a van and sold hemp jewelry now that right there doesn't signal the larger tropes of um, right-wing ideology there, to say the least. This attacker's previous lover was a pro-nudist activist that, of course, was also a very strong left-wing personality. And if that wasn't enough to, to kind of question that official narrative, we also have reporting from The Guardian that literally detailed how he was listed years ago in voting records as voting for the Green Party. You go even a little further, there's allegedly blogs written by this guy talking about invisible fairy friends, and whether they are his writings or not, they do talk about someone who was, quote, off the wall, which was the way that his neighbors described him, talking about how he used to routinely abuse and sell psychedelic drugs, and essentially, as Michael Schellenberger calls him, a, quote, psychotic homeless addict estranged from his child-hurting lover and their children, who was most likely in the, quote, of a drug-induced psychosis, which may make sense when the actions are described here, rather than, of course, just some kind of right-wing organized plot against the Pelosi's here. Yeah, I'll be honest here, it doesn't seem like he's been predominantly driven by right-wing ideology or conspiracy theories. It seems like he was just a crazy person. And the story here gets even crazier from here, as, of course, Politico is also reporting today that officers on the scene of the attack arrived at the Pelosi's house knocked on the front door and were, quote, let inside by an unknown person. And then they, quote, discovered the Poppy and Pelosi struggling for a hammer. There's other people hypothesizing that potentially the glass was broken from the inside or the, the outside. Again, I, I don't know about these things. Other people are bringing up the 911 call as he then described the attacker as someone named David that he is a friend with, with of course other corporate media outlets saying that he was doing this as a coy way in order to get the police officers there. And what exactly happened there? What transpired there? I don't know. Uh, and I think it's too early to jump to conclusions. I, I think it's fair that we should at least wait to assess the situation, to wait until more information comes out before having any kind of hypotheses here. But that of course is something that Hillary Clinton is not doing. And again, trying to use this tragedy as a way to score political points. This, again, is just th disgusting behavior. With her specifically using this strategy and saying on Twitter recently that, quote, the Republican Party and it mount pieces now, quote, regularly spread hate and deranged conspiracy theories. It is, quote, shocking but not surprising. That violence is the result. She, again, Hillary Clinton is trying to say that, all people who don't believe the, the government who are a part of the Republican Party are somehow responsible for this. And that, that, again, is an unhinged, dangerous, radicalized idea that is pushing more partisanship in this country and more division. Hillary Clinton then goes on and says, as citizens, we must hold them accountable for their words and their actions that follows. I, again, Hillary Clinton is, is now hinting at the fact that people need to be punished 
for being a part of the Republican Party. People need to be punished for being conspiracy theorists and not believing the government 100% of the time. And that right there is, is deranged thinking. This is the same Hillary Clinton that just a couple days ago told the internet that right-wing extremists already have plans to seal the next election in 2024. And as her language becomes more hyperbolic, more unchecked, more radicalized, it's also important to note here that very few people are able to call her out in the establishment, as of course, a lot of the people usually stay silent on it or cheer on her crazed messages, except for today, when Elon Musk officially responded to this particular tweet by Hillary Clinton saying, quote, there is a tiny possibility there might be more to this story than meets the eye, specifically highlighting a tweet talking about the potential of an alternative theory of what happened to Paul Pelosi here, saying that this could have been a cover-up for something that could have been happening intimately between the two. Now again, Elon Musk didn't say this was a reality. He says there's a small possibility that this could be the case here. But of course, now we have a media firestorm with many people in the political establishment, including big pharma representatives like Jimmy Kimball, who came out and said that Elon Musk is full of ish. And again, I will revert back to my original statement, which was ushered also by Mike Cernovich, who said, waiting for evidence and refusing to accept evidence, free narrative is now a conspiracy theory. And I think he hit the nail on the head here. As at the end of the day, we still don't know what's going on here. Show us evidence. We'll look at it. Either way, what matters at the end of the day is what you could prove. And right now, we just know very little. Again, maybe we have the prospects. Maybe we have the possibility of finally being able to express political ideas without censorship. And if that's the case, that's an amazing potential future that could solve a lot of our problems in our current society. Because being able to talk things out, being able to, of course, de-escalate situation, de-radicalize individuals, talk down bad ideas with good ideas is one of the key essential components towards a cohesive, growing, progressive society. Progressive means growing, not, not the political idea. You know what I mean. But we do have to recognize that this is all possible because of Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter. Will he keep his promise? Well, of course, we're going to be keeping his feet to the fire here as we have previously on other broadcasts before. But so far, things have gone off at a very promising start, especially when it came to firing a lot of the head people at Twitter, especially when it comes to some of the things that Elon Musk is publicly tweeting about, talking about how comedy is now back, talking about the important need of, of communication, talking about how individuals will be getting their accounts back. And to some people, this is absolutely horrible. Why would it be horrible? Well, if you allow people to talk freely with each other, they could actually talk and criticize a lot of people in power who don't want them talking to each other and finding out what's really happening to them. And this is why we have seen a concerted effort and larger attack pieces by a lot of very powerful institutions like the Independent that just declared that Twitter is dead at the hand of Elon Musk. Uh, again, just dramatic, emotional hyper-drivel that, that doesn't amount to, to anything. And very interestingly, instead of Joe Schmo, instead of just the average small user with 10 or 100 followers getting fact-checked or anything anti-establishment being fact-checked, for the first time, we're, we're seeing the President of the United States, Joe Biden, being fact-checked on Twitter, correcting his statements where he is toting how the Inflation Reduction Act puts an end to 55 corporations paying $0 in federal tax with the fact-checked actually reading how it's 
only 14 of them that would be eligible for this new tax law. Will they be taxed? Will there be a loophole? Well, we don't know. But again, the president of the United States was saying something that was inaccurate. And very surprisingly, he was held accountable to it, which the corporate mainstream media was supposed to be doing, but they didn't. And it's not just Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden getting fact-checked and presented alternative possibilities to what's happening out there. It's also LeBron James, that from an elitist point of view, talked about how some people are unfit to have free speech, describing how people are using bad words here, which Elon Musk officially responded to saying that the people using all these bad words were inauthentic accounts, fake accounts, spam accounts, as there's a possibility that, of course, spam users were taking this advantage in order to try to make Twitter look bad. Elon Musk is calling it out and actually going after the trolling campaigns that are inauthentic. There was another ballot harvesting report that actually Twitter flagged, which Tom Fitton, the president of Judicial Watch, <coughs> came out and complained about, which... Elon Musk actually responded to saying, I will look into this. Quote, Twitter should be even-handed favoring neither sides, and that's a great way to deal with this. And there's a lot of bull crap out there. There's a lot of lies out there presented by, of course, central controllers and politicians. Will they now be fact-checked on Twitter if that's a possibility where they could actually face the reality of their words? Holy cow, we're talking about a landscape that is absolutely worth paying attention to and why. Personally, I'm going to be using Twitter a lot more from now. My account is at LukeWeAreChange. And again, there's a lot of other stuff that, that should be flagged as disinformation, like this Bilderberg European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde coming out and now saying today that inflation came from nowhere. And uh, that's an absolute lie. That's That's almost impossible. To happen here, as of course what we're going through is not a recession, it's a robbery, as central bankers and politicians have essentially bankrupted the world, and we're going to be paying the larger consequences of that. And in the larger scheme of things, the bigger financial mess we are in, I think is a lot more serious than some mean tweets that people, are, of course, are obsessing about and acting like children about. Again, what's going to be happening with Twitter? I don't know. So far... Things are actually going in the right direction, and I can't complain here. Has everything happened that I wanted to happen immediately? No, but I understand in life you don't always get things you want. It's, it's important to be patient. It's important to wait here. As we wait and see this entire thing kind of progress, where is it going to be going? Well, probably towards a WeChat society. And as I previously said before, if Twitter, if if X, if, if it becomes the next WeChat and is integrated in all of society, then I will become critical of it. But so far, I think we have a, a very incredible opportunity that I think we should not only take advantage of, but we should take seriously as independent content creators and try to, of course, make this a place that is the place to be rather than the place to run away from. I'm going to be doing that as best as I can. Luke, we are change on Twitter. See you there for that conversation. All right, so that's a good report. Now, you guys, if you're a fan of the show, you've heard skepticism, criticism, incredulity about Elon Musk and how he's likely a front man for DOD projects, and that's where his money comes from. We the taxpayers, Visa, V the Pentagon, up to his Blackjack and Starlink and all the yeah, other things Jack, he has. Yeah. Right, the Tesla Motors. It's there's nothing Tesla about it. Uh, you know, it's. It's it's you might as well call he it Edison. That, right? Yeah, you should call yeah, we, it we, Edison. We didn't, yeah, it's really you're driving a Musk, but he calls it a Tesla for marketing. He used government go. money for that. He used government money for solar. He used government money for uh, SpaceX or whatever his like 
rocket ships that land on their own rocket pad and stuff like those aren't profitable ventures. He's got help from on right. high. He has help. So I'm also, I mean, we, we did, I think Greg Reese a couple of months ago, did a good expose on him and we might want to play that again at some point just to sort of give context to like, you know, his father being a gem dealer, very abusive in the childhood, like them making tons of money, but him lying about his humble origins and sort of weird relationship with his ex-girlfriend. And I, like, and then on top of that, uh, weird you know, string of ex-girlfriends to, to yeah, put, it, put his one of Peter, Amber Heard is like crimes. weird, tenuous, tenuous situation with PayPal. Peter Thiel seems like he was sort of pushed out or he assumed that he was part of ownership. It was a very yeah, weird something. And there was weird things that went, went on with Tesla with the original. Oh guy. yeah. He bought, yeah, he yeah. bought the, uh, he bought the original design from the two brothers that actually designed and made the Tesla. He bought and then the he company. Put the car, he owes them into space. Yeah, yeah, he what do you got? Even yeah. search brave who created the Tesla, Martin Eberhard, Mark Tarpening. There you who go. Had That's the original. He had the rights to the very first one, and now that is the Tesla that's supposedly in outer orbit. In orbit. You know, it's a lot and easier. He was to supposed say Elon to give Musk. it to to one of those individuals. Yeah, like he yep, was supposed so. to get the first one off the yeah, off the line. So it's really a semantic Law. argument. You know, the other guy's name's too hard to say. Elon Musk is just like more marketing savvy. Must That's be. what should decide stuff, right? Just because, you know, they're like, give it to this guy. So, Musk, there's a lot of questions. If only it was form and function, Rich, but unfortunately with them, it's not form and function. Yeah. And I don't know what he's going to do with Twitter, but those other guys were running in, into the ground pretty hard. Elon Musk is sort of an enigma because he's clearly a technocrat, but he, he's sort of like, I don't know, your redheaded cousin or sort of like, you know, the kid that, you know, isn't one of the part of the cool kids. But well, at the same time, he's still part of like the same cast. It's I don't really understand because he's a you know he calls out the overpopulation myth. Then he wants to put you know what is it yes. Neuralink or whatever. He's so he's like the with. enigmatic technocrat because he says what was he the wants to go to Mars. Child? He wants to go to Mars, but he's afraid of the AI, which is what you need to go to Mars, right? So like he's conflicted. He is very conflicted. Yeah, mind body dichotomy. Plato style, something like that. So, uh, people are getting reinstated on Twitter, it seems, but I don't know if it's going to live up to the memes. I don't know if you're going to see an Alex Jones on Twitter or even a Donald Trump on Twitter. Yeah, let's see. There's so many big questions. Or is it is he going to try to do a delay delay strategy where he just slowly rolls out and seem like he's going to get closer and closer? to make it, you know, giving those people a platform or is it just a way to prolong the inevitable that it's really, you know, no difference at all. And I didn't follow Trump when he was on Twitter. So I don't care if he's on, I just don't like that a company can. It's a new public square. person. It's uh, a new sitting president square. of the United States. Like when right. that happened, I was like, there's a little problem in the power dichotomy here. How can they do that? You're right. Right. But and yet they the, take off, but they, but yet they take orders from the White House when they say get rid of certain people like uh, Alex Alex Berenson from New York that's Times. That's exactly right. That's right. Exactly. So it's also so they do this public private game. Yeah, where it, it's, it's a new public square. Yeah, and this should be ruled something more like how hotels are, where hotels won't be held responsible for them housing criminal with them not knowing it or something. Public and so, the, in other words, like it should it should have the situation whereby which. People should just be able to uh, go and, you know, communicate to as many people as possible. It's no longer literally the town square. It's now the digital square. And that's what these 
companies and the social media platforms represent. So to silence that or say it's held under sort of private consideration where they get to make up the rules and it doesn't apply to our First Amendment, that's where it becomes this great big gray area. And so just, you know, it's it's a mess because of that reason. And they've been getting away with uh, hardcore censorship without uh, being reprimanded for it in the courts. So. Well, and I think that when they're when they're saying, well, you know, uh, this was election meddling, these sort of things, the same applies to Twitter, Google, all these other companies. They've done it yeah. in other countries around the world. They've overthrown oh, yeah. regimes, Twitter revolutions back in the day, right? Like 2013, around that that time, there, there was a, there was a lot of things going on like that. So yeah. for them to then say, well, when we deplatform and censor people, we're not adversely affecting the rela- the uh, the election. We're reinforcing it. Oh, okay. Because over there you're throw you're you're using it as a strategy of war in other countries, but when you do it to us, it's like it's all nice and no problem, nothing to see here. So there's also that, and we'll see, you know, and how naive has higher standards than the former runners of Twitter. And how naive to think it would never come here. That what we witnessed like in 2010, 11, 12, you know, when we had all this sort of like revolutions in the Middle East and whatnot. Yeah. Well, Africa. I think it, Eisenhower's address, that whole speech where he warned us of the the technocrats, the military industrial yeah. media complex. Like we're doing the he saw how easily they're overthrowing people in other countries. And then like in 63, Harry Truman said he wishes he would have never created the CIA, that they deceived him about what it was going to be doing. And sure. that he saw he didn't understand, I don't think, the uh the British hand controlling it. He just saw this other thing that he helped create doing bad things. He just didn't see the uh the influence on that. So, all right. So let's go to, uh, do we have Christy Lee's week in media malfeasance? We do. Yep. All right. So let's go and check out her summary of this past week in Grand Theft World History. Let's see what she picked. Media malfeasance is really ramping up just in time for midterms. And my guest today is certainly going to understand the inner workings of how this happens. She's a Trump endorsed candidate running for governor in Arizona fellow veteran journalist, uh, lead anchor at a top news station uh, who left that behind because it became apparent that it's just a corporate controlled propaganda machine. And uh, now her former station is calling the race already. So (laughs) welcome in, Carrie Lake. Thank you so much for coming on with me. I was shocked to see that that 12 days before they oops called the election uh, for Katie Hobbs with very specific um, percentages. My gosh, what is going on? Tell me about that. Oh, boy, you can't make this stuff up. I get up every morning, Christy, and I look at the headlines and they are in a frenzied panic because their chosen candidate, the leftist Katie Hobbs, is losing. And uh, on the same day that a poll came out commissioned by my old station showing me 11 points up, I think maybe there was some panic and people went, oh, my gosh, we don't want to have to report this. So they, along with the rest of the media, bought into the fakest story, the most fake story of the season, which was a garbage story put out by my opponent, Basement Katie Hobbs, who's basically been hiding in her basement this whole time. She puts out a statement saying they had a a break in at their campaign headquarters and she blamed it on me. And what did the media do? They ran with it. And my old station went so far as to protect even the criminal in this case. They blurred the criminal because there is a, a picture of the uh, you know thief and they blurred him to protect him. Then they took the 
truly a fake, phony story that my opponent was pushing, the defamatory statements that she was pushing, blaming me of being a criminal, basically. And they ran with that. And then when I called them out on it yesterday in a press conference, lo and behold, about an hour later, up on their screen pops up the election results where they show Katie Hobbs winning with the red check mark. I mean, this is really out of control. They're trying, the entire media is trying to influence this election. They know they're in a panic. They know they're losing. And they know that we, the people, are winning. And they're in a panic about it. There's a few thoughts that I have right off the bat with that. One, they, of course, blame this on the Associated Press, which is even worse. And two, uh, why do these mistakes always seem to favor? Like, why wasn't it, oh, oops, we called it for Carrie Lake. Like, shocking, right? Like, the mistake was was on their side again. And three, you and I have both worked in media for a long time. Like, how in the world does this happen with supers and and um, graphics pre-made? Like, how would that just, oops, happen? It just, and none of it makes sense when you understand how all this works. Yeah, we see this happening occasionally. And you're right, it always favors the Democrats. I mean, but you and I know that the corporate media is filled with 90%, maybe 95% people who are Democrats or even far leftists. And so, you know, when these kind of things happen, when they're making up their little mock numbers, they always tend to favor the Democrat. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that coincidental? Wow. But, you know, we're, we're on to it. And the careless, whether it's carelessness, uh, human error, they sure are okay with with human error and carelessness in their field, but any other field where there's human error, they want the person fired. I mean, look at police officers when they make a human error, a life or sec, a life, a, a life decision that will protect their life, and they make a mistake. The media is the first to call them out. They're making split second decisions, life or death decisions, and occasionally they make a human error because they are human beings protecting us. And the media is the first to call them out, fire them. They protest. They call them every name in the book. They harass them. They show up at their homes. They tear that officer down. But when they make a mistake, oh, oops, it's just a mistake. It's yeah, terrible. absolutely. And of course, I mean, one of the reasons I left uh, the media as it is today is because of all these buzzwords. I'm like, why are there all these adjectives in my scripts all of a sudden? Why can't we just say what's happening, you know? Um, and we're certainly seeing them with you constantly with the election denier. You've done a great job at showing that they uh, they themselves have denied elections. I mean, my gosh, Hillary Clinton's now preemptively <laughs> denying <laughs> the 2024 election. I mean, it's just insane. But the thing that they do with that as well is whenever they talk about election integrity, they use um, also buzzwords like falsely claims or unfounded or without evidence. Did they do that with the whole um, accusation of Katie Hobbs saying that you were involved in some way of the burglary of her HQ? Did they use any words like unfounded, oh. without evidence, or no. falsely claims? Nope. Nope. They just took a bogus story. And it, I'm telling you, if you had half a brain in your head, you would see what she put out and you would say, this is bogus. And what they should have done is they should have marched over to Katie Hobbs' office if they knew where it was. It must be in a basement somewhere. Uh, they should have marched over to the Democrat Party's office and said, come on, guys, really hold up the, the statement. Say, really, this is this is crazy. Where are you getting this information? Show us evidence. They skipped that very important first step. That's called basic journalism 101. They skipped that step. They ran with it. They take their marching orders 
from the Democrat Party. They were in a panic, all of them going, oh, my gosh, we need another story to cover because we don't want to cover the fact that Carrie Lake is surging in the polls. We've got to have another story. We've got to have a story that actually hurts Carrie Lake. And so that's what they did. It's I'm actually glad this is happening because we're going to win. I truly believe that we're drawing crowds of hundreds and thousands. She can't draw 10 supporters and there's a movement afoot. And it's not about me. It's not about me. It's we, the people, and they're tired of what's happening in their government. And so I'm glad this is happening because we're going to win and we are showing people what's really happening in the media. You talked about the election denier buzzword. It's really a slanderous word that they're trying to hurt us with again. And it was so beautiful after I called the media out on that. The next day or two days later, you're right, Hillary Clinton came out and started stoking fear about the 2024 election. You can't make it up. It's too perfect. They are the ultimate election deniers, if they want to use a phrase like that. But the real true story is we should be able to question our elections. We should be able to question our government. I will continue to question those things until we have complete, fair, honest, and transparent elections. I'm tired of seeing people on both sides have to do this, have to point out that there are problems, and it's not impossible to fix this. It's not impossible to have great, well-run elections run by competent people that are honest and transparent. We're going to do that here in Arizona when I'm governor, and then we won't have to have anybody from any party worried about our elections. But we should always be able to question I want to I want to talk about that a little bit more, but I do want to um, give you an opportunity to respond to the rebuttal of uh, when when you are able to show the evidence that there's um, actually Democrats that have been denying elections for years. Well, they say, oh, well, no, it's different because we're talking about voter suppression and uh, Russian propaganda. So that's different. What is your your uh, response to that? Voter suppression is what what they were doing yesterday when they put that bogus story out. You know, it's ridiculous. And they're disenfranchising voters. They always accuse us of that. Yet they won't cover the Democrat who came out in Florida and said, I'm going to show you how they've been harvesting ballots and disenfranchising black voters in Florida for years. She laid it all out for them. Have they covered that? Has the corporate media covered that? They only cover one track, and it's the track that hurts Republicans and hurts conservatives. Most importantly, hurts America First conservatives. And it's uh, it's just outrageous. I'm 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 so tired of it, but I will continue to push back until we get fair, honest, and transparent elections. You know, it's interesting because we know that Twitter is extremely biased, and and how they've treated um, conservatives and shadow banned them, et cetera. But when you look at every time that Katie Hobbs uh, puts something out there, you all you have to do is look at the a comment, and it's floods of people mocking her for not debating you. Um, just so much predominantly against Katie on her own posts. So my thing is, is I feel like we can see that that you're a front runner. We, we can see it in the polls, but people are still, I have to admit, pessimistic myself uh, because of this election integrity problem that we have. I mean, when she's sending out 6,000 federal only ballots, when we're seeing um, the AP's already called it for her well in advance. When we yeah. see all these things happening, how can how can we have faith that this is going to to pan out as it should? The yeah, will of the we, voters. So basically, can we trust our elections? Yes. I, you know, I, I feel the same way. I'm very worried. We have an incompetent secretary of state 
And that's that would be if, if it was just purely incompetence. I hope there's not intentional maladministration. That could be at play as well. She's completely incompetent. She's running in the election and she's yet running the elections. We saw that she gave terrible advice during the primary where they ran out of Republican only ballots one hour into election day back on August 2nd. Mm-hmm. Ahead, it does Maza. give me great. I'm concern. sure that was accidental. They didn't print enough ballots. Come on. Come on. All right. So that's interesting that uh, they call it for her opponent before the election, but that's not that unusual. It's just unusual because Carrie Lake, uh, she used to be a TV reporter. Like she used to be on the other side and now she's given them a hard time. And when she played that clip of all the Democrats refusing the election in the past election deniers, they're called, I guess. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then it's just, it's inconvenient that the, the rules changed and then it became, you can't say that while they're in power, but when they're not in power, that's all they say. Right. And so the, so there's just, it's interesting to see how they're, you know, putting the thumb on the scales just to make sure that someone like her doesn't with her, you know, uh, fresh voice on the situation, maybe change up the politics out there. Cause that's what people are noticing. You know, people like Liz Cheney think that she can just run a negative ad on Carrie Lake and it's going to go the way negative ads used to go in your favor. Now it blows up with Streisand effect and it just turns out to be because no one trusts the media anymore. And that's what no one trusts anyone anymore, like really either side. But at this point, it's clear which side is just literally out of control. Yeah, I mean, it's just totally. So that's why it's refreshing for someone like her to switch sides. And mm-hmm. basically say, we're, we're going to use the the tools that they use against us back against them. Yep. And uh, one of them would be like, look at the, can you bring up just a still shot of her screen for a minute? Like her on screen, LD. Let's look at the production value that she brings to the table. She's not your average internet candidate, you know, representing on a Skype uh, thing with a Skype call with a, a webcam. Sure. There, there's there's bokeh or bokeh, however you want to say it. Stuff's blurred, mm-hmm. blurred out nicely in the background. It doesn't look like a cheap imitation that Zoom does, right? Right. Um, it, the lighting, right? So if she's the using lighting high, is the best part. Yeah, you can tell well, that's the, the right. softness. Look at the softness. Mm-hmm. So it's in actually in the real film, tone to like they her. would use something called a beauty dish to do a close up on an actress. And it makes sure that all their lines are soft and blended because HD right. cameras can do wonders for wrinkles. Bringing and out like those that. contrasts. Yeah. Find stuff you didn't even know you had and all of a sudden yeah. close up. Oh, geez. Right. Yeah. So like just her self-representation. She appears to be an individual just on a Zoom call, but there's a lot of production just going yep. into her setup over there. So there's that aspect. Then she's bringing to the table like her journalistic research chops of investigation asking hard questions and now she doesn't have someone to tell her not to ask those questions actually now to ask those hard questions it totally benefits her and her campaign candidacy so it's going to be interesting see how they hold a voice like that back or put her off to the side so she can't be heard so easily and uh you know they're giving her the soft alex jones treatment they're not yeah. completely Ron Pauling her, where they just like skip over and just pretend that Ron Paul they, wasn't running. Yeah, yeah, that he, yeah, they just acted like he never existed. That's exactly well, what like when was. Ron Paul runs, it'd be right. like here's here's number one, two, four, five, six, and seven in the presidential <laughs> race. Right? Yeah, you just, just don't need a number three candidate there. No. You don't need to know his name. So they're still they're still at it. Saying. And um, with all the evidence of voter indiscretions 
with the ballot boxes and 2000 mules and all that sort of stuff. Right. There is legitimate concern over whether or not. Oh, yeah. votes count. There, there is so, so much potential fraud and harvesting and just, you know, um, messiness, just error that occurred. I mean, there's so many factors that went into the chaos that was the 2020 election. So with COVID is like now a perennial issue. Does that mean like every time we have an election, is it going to be one of these situations where it's like because of early voting? I don't know if that's still a thing, if it's going to continue to be a thing, if it's state-based and then federally it's, a, you know, every four years, we're going to be dealing with the same issue perpetually now. Not to Fauci's mention the Octo- Dominion Fauci- Fauci's October voting surprise. boxes. <laughs> Just when you thought you were out. They pulled you back. <laughs> Godfather three. I see. I couldn't leave in the middle of a new pandemic. That's what you know. I had to. Oh, stay. they bring him back. They bring him back. I wonder what sort of deals get cut when you can just start buying your own variants for political purposes. Yeah. Game of leverage. It's all Machiavelli, the prince. You know. Um. There's a funny euphemism I had for that. I have to think about it though. But it's all, yeah. Machiavellianism. All right. So in this next section, moving on from uh, the Cary Lake political. Oh, that's political like, opportunism. That's what he called it. That's I mean, the, come on. I mean, political opportunism. That's that's the euphemism I have for Machiavelli's how, the prince. How else How else are you going to compete with <laughs> the Kerry science Lake? of leverage? Wait, what? Well, what Machiavelli brought to the table real quick is to give opponents courts. of people like Cary Lake the, the chance to beat someone like Cary Lake. Like you don't need ethics morality and integrity and speak truth to power and represent the people right you could just throw you know some cast some just you know aspersions on that person and say oh well she was responsible for the break-in at our bullshit political center yeah just like somebody might say ah, someone went and hit paul pelosi with the hammer because they don't like what nancy does which i don't think is the case i think it's more Sometimes likely what elon was hinting at because of how jimmy kimmel reacted he's almost like he's a client of the same dude or something Hmm. Hmm. Me thinks he doth protest too much. That's what I think. (laughs) All right. Let's go to the bottom of the Ukraine Russia section, LD. Let's hit this uh Russell Brand because you know, we have talked smack on Zelensky and the whole puppet regime over there using the Ukrainian people as a prophylactic to fuck with Russia. Now I guess Russell Brand saw that there's there's another side to the NATO. It's like a double-ended thing no. or something. Jesus Let's go to Russell Brand <laughs> and his analysis of uh, NATO and the American Anglo-American military-industrial complex. He's the comedian, by the way, Russell Brand. Even though we're definitely not in a proxy war, the U.S. want to pass wartime powers in order to help the people of Ukraine more efficiently. Definitely not to sell more weapons unchecked or anything. It's like lube. <laughs> Hello there, you six million awakening wonders. Thank you for joining me on this voyage towards truth. We've got a fantastic story for you today. But if you want to see these stories unedited and uncensored, join me every day on Rumble at these times. We put the video up there and it stays up there in all its filthy glory, with all its uncensored truth, with experts that wouldn't be able to speak anywhere else. Join us there every day. And remember, the whole video is up there on Rumble 
five new episodes every week, completely free. There's a link in the description. Now, let's get into today's story. Jeffrey Sachs is in trouble again for talking about the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline and who could have sabotaged it. Meanwhile, bipartisan representatives in US Congress are trying to amend a bill so the American military industrial complex can sell as many weapons to Ukraine, even more than they need, completely unchecked. Is this war being used as a commercial exercise? Was it always a commercial exercise? Let me know in the comments. Let me know in the chat. Let's have a look at Jeffrey Sachs. And one more point I want to make about democracy, because we're in a democracy forum where we we treat democracy as the good. The most violent country in the world in the 19th century, by far, was perhaps the most democratic or second most democratic, and that was Britain. You can be democratic at home and ruthlessly imperial abroad. The most violent country in the world since 1950 has been the United States. It's Jeff, been by let's, far involved Jeffrey, in stop now. Like Jeffrey, everywhere he goes, they shut him down eventually. I would like a cafe latte, and I'd like a little bit of cinnamon. Wait, wait a second now. Why invite Jeffrey Sachs to the Global Democracy Forum or whatever it is, if you only want him to say stuff that you already agree with? Doubtlessly, the American military-industrial complex has had an evident and obvious influence on American foreign policy. If you look at the Afghanistan war, if you look at the Vietnam war, the Korean war, if you look at American military campaigns and try to somehow align them with the interests of, say, ordinary American people, I'm sure you would find some tension there. Well, thank God we went to Vietnam. Now we've got noodles at a price that's right. Thank God we bombed Afghanistan because now we can... The most violent country in the world since 1950 has been the United States. He raises an interesting point, and you know me, I'm British as all hell, and I have to admit that Britain was the forerunner of this kind of imperialism and colonialism, and I would add, of course, that how America has adjusted that model is it isn't all flags anymore, it's the logo. The logo of the corporation has replaced the nationalistic flag-based project. It's concealed now. That's why when I had a conversation with Jocko Willink, he was able to say that there isn't an evident project of American expansionism because now it's done by Halliburton or BlackRock or concealed energy interests. Would you agree? Let me know in the comments. Let me know in the chat if you think the American military is used to meet the agenda of corporate interests or if it's generally and genuinely helping American people. Let me know in the chat. Jeffrey, stop now. Let's, let's, Jeffrey, I'm, I'm, Jeffrey, I'm your moderator. Jeffrey, I'm your mother and I'm telling you I smell booze on your breath. Have you got an erection? And it's enough. Okay, I'm done. People love Jeffrey, don't they? I love Jeffrey. I'd not heard of Jeffrey two weeks ago. Now I actually love him. A lot of the love is based on this. It's a quite a statement as well. When Jeffrey Sachs says democracy at home, imperialism abroad, I do wonder what he means. Does he mean the appearance of freedom, the ability to buy stuff, to sort of be free to walk down the street? Because if you think about it literally, did any of you vote for the war in Afghanistan? Did any of you vote for any of the American military industrial complex benefiting projects that have been in perpetual motion since about 1950 or something, as far as I remember? What I would suggest is there's the appearance of democracy 
in so much as we get to vote once in a while. Who knows how those elections will go, though, kids? Who's counting those votes? And abroad, there is brutality and tyranny. It's pretty clear. But I would extend that to a lack of democracy domestically also. Now, what we're seeing with this new proposed bill is to deregulate the military-industrial complex in much the same way we saw the financial industry deregulated in the 80s and 90s. And we all know that that ultimately led to the financial irresponsibility that led to the 2008 crash, where unregulated companies and organisations could trade and bundle in ways that were hugely irresponsible that they knew would crash the economy but they knew that they would get away with it because the problem is too bad to ultimately deal with. Now, scale that up to a actual military matters and consider the consequences. They're not going to have to pay for it if there is some sort of mad nuclear war. They've probably got all their bunkers built already. So I suppose I'm saying... Did what we learned from the 2008 crash lead you to think more deregulation in an even more dangerous industry is the way to go? Or do you think that the military-industrial complex has to be held to account? The American taxpayer dollars should go towards service people if it's part of the military budget, rather than 50% of the Pentagon's money going straight into the hands of military-industrial complex, which has been the case since 2001. Let's look at this story in more detail. Okay, so uh, this is some brief stats on American military history. There are only three countries in the world that America hasn't invaded or has never seen a US military presence. Andorra, Bhutan and Liechtenstein. At this point, they might as well do those ones just to complete the set, like Monopoly. The United States has invaded or fought in 84 of the 193 countries recognised by the United Nations and has been militarily involved with 191 of 193. It was engaged in 46 military interventions from 1948 to 1991. This can't always be humanitarianism, can it? It can't always be, we're just trying to help, we're just trying to help 46 times, because surely by now, the help has been administered. This is from Common Dreams and helps us to understand the current conflict between Russia and Ukraine and how that could possibly intersect with US military industrial complex incentives. As Russia's attack on Ukraine drags on, the world is dealing with a lot of uncertainty at every stage. Predictions about the war have done poorly when met with the cold, hard reality of modern conflict. One thing has been certain from the start, the US defense industry is going to cash in. A recent example of this came last week when Senators Jack Reed, Democrat, and Jim Inhofe, Republican, proposed a new amendment to this year's National Defense Authorization Act. One Democrat, one Republican, same cup. The proposal would give the Department of Defense wartime powers that would free it to buy huge amounts of artillery and other munitions using multi-year contracts. Ultimately, that's an economic imperative that requires a humanitarian angle to sell it. But it seems like it's economically guided as an idea. The amendment would also authorise the Pentagon to skip competitive contracting for Ukraine-related deals, including billions of dollars worth of contracts to refill US stockpiles, and it would waive other provisions aimed at stopping weapons makers from overcharging taxpayers. Waive them. There are provisions that stop weapons makers from overcharging taxpayers. Now, what did you just learn in the pandemic? Would you have liked a bill that prevented Big Pharma from overcharging taxpayers on certain medical products? I would have liked that because the data is now in. They did overcharge. They made huge profits, the biggest profits in their history. Do you want to see comparable deregulation for the military industrial complex? You see what happened in the financial sector as a result of deregulation and a lack of ability to democratically hold accountable to people participating in that. Do you want that when it comes to missiles? 
I don't, let me know in the comments, let me know in the chat. When we're on Rumble, we're able to go into more detail and bring guests in that can speak in an uncensored way, in a way you would never get away with on this platform. That's why you should join us there five times a week. Videos stream at these times, but they're up all day, and it's worth clicking on and signing up and tuning in. As an unnamed congressional aide told Defence News, the move would allow contractors to produce far more than Ukraine needs. Well, that by definition is crazy, isn't it? Please, we need weapons. How about more weapons than you need? Well, actually, even under these circumstances, that would be too much. Too much for who? Us. Oh, yeah, right. No, of course. Anyway, have all these weapons. Oh, taxpayers. Instead, we're buying for a two-front war. It's hard to think of something as high on everybody's list as buying a ton of munitions for the next few years for our operational plans against China and continuing to supply Ukraine, the source said. Do you think that operational plans against China means a war with China. Because that doesn't sound like a happy holiday. That don't sound like a fun hobby. That don't sound like a lark, does it? A war with China. What's going on now? You run out of... Because there's a... Can't we do Andorra, Bhutan and Liechtenstein before China? I mean, of course, that will be a terrible humanitarian disaster. But at least it wouldn't destroy the whole planet. In other words, lawmakers and defence contractors are taking advantage of Ukraine to get their weapons wish list, according to Bill Hartung of the Quincy Institute. It's part of the larger push to exploit the war in Ukraine to jack up Pentagon spending for things that have nothing to do with defending Ukraine or any likely future scenario, Hartung said. Like when they used the Covid money to buy drones and armoured military police vehicles. As Defence News notes, the proposed legislation also authorises contracts for 20,000 AIM-120 advanced medium-range air-to-air missiles, which Ukraine has not fired extensively, if at all. You know what you guys need? Um, yes, of course, we need food and we need a diplomatic solution to this ongoing war. Yes, but even more than that, you need 20,000 AIM-120 air-to-air missiles. Oh, we've not used them extensively. What do you mean extensively? We've not used them at all. And that's why you need 20,000 of them at a priceless rate. Oh, taxpayer! The package also includes purchases of several other missiles that seem to go far beyond Kiev's wish list. They're laddering it up with extras like they're selling you a car. One cup holder, two cup holders, AIM-120 missiles. Oh no, I don't use them extensively. I'll get you 20,000 just in case. Notably, it's unclear whether these weapons would actually be useful in the case of a US-China war. What, so are they preparing for the next war? Or are they, how many wars ahead are they? They're running out of countries. If you are watching this from Andorra, Liechtenstein or Bhutan, Get yourself a metal umbrella. It's building stockpiles for a major ground war in the future. Oh no, Mark Kantian of the Centre for Strategic and International Studies told Defence News. This is not the list you would use for China. For China, we'd have a very different list. Well, as long as you've got a list for every potential war, uh, we can all relax nice and easy in our beds. Crossing our fingers that tonight ain't the night that the old AIM-120 is ultimately fired because I was just bored of not pushing that button. In related news, Lockheed Martin announced Tuesday that it plans to expand its production of the High Mobility Artillery Rocket System, better known as HIMARS, by more than 50%. The decision follows months of positive publicity for the weapons system. What's it doing? Going out with Taylor Swift? How's it getting positive? Hey, look at this weapons system. Oh, it's crazy. It's edgy. It's a new Harry Styles. That weapon system is wearing like a lady's top and some earrings. I like that weapon system. It's in line with our culture. Good. Oh, oh taxpayers. <laughs>
month of positive publicity for the weapon system, which seems to have sparked increased interest from governments in Eastern Europe. Oh, yeah, we got to be like them with the new Harry Styles weapons. This is fantastic stuff. It's so cool, man. <laughs> don't need publicity for a weapon. It's a last resort. The announcement comes just a month after the army said it wanted to double HIMARS production and triple production of certain types of artillery in response to the war in Ukraine. This type of boost would require new or at least dramatically expanded production facilities, raising concern that it will be difficult to scale back down in the future, which would be bad news for everyone except for the military industrial complex for whom this entire situation appears to have been constructed. But I don't know that for sure. I'm not an expert in global politics. All right, so let's rewind that real quick uh, mentally. He starts out with uh, Jeffrey Sachs. Jeffrey Sachs, I think he, you know, he's a Columbia professor of economics. They invite him on those TV shows because usually he's saying stuff that they want him to say. Right. I don't know why they keep letting him on TV and inviting him places because he started with saying things about COVID and the vaccines. Yeah, and then we, Nord, we showed him then a Nord Stream times. too, right? Then right. Nord Stream too. He's like letting the cat out of the bag early because the whole thing in their their culture is don't let the public know the narrative too soon wait for the public to adopt all the consequences and avoid litigation and then tell them, Oh, sorry about the thing. Right. So whether it's Nord stream two or the jabby jabs or any of that, he's just pointing out like, he's like, he's like the guy that no one told him, Hey, we're not supposed to say it out loud. Right. So he's just like saying what's obvious. And they're like, uh, Jeffrey, that's enough. I'm your moderator. I'm your moderator. (laughs) How ridiculous was that? Right. I'm your moderator. I mean, it's okay. I mean, he's sitting there spouting truth. Talking about it, British imperialism in the 19th century. Ridiculous and then 20th like century. He's yeah. I mean, it's just any, I want to send that moderator, uh, the, the anarchy, uh, the four book series by William Dow Rimple. One of mm-hmm. ones called the anarchy. It's all about the, the British East India company and conquest of Asia. And that would be the whole historical bookmark yeah, prior that, to what Sachs is saying. So what Sachs is saying is a very educated perspective. And they're like, we can't let the public know. Because they might start putting two and two together because like to the to the Western world, it is presented that the British got rid of slavery first. Like they led the way. Right. That's this is the standard the official propaganda. Because yeah, of William Wilberforce. Yeah. Right. They got a lot of propaganda that will support that. And I would point out, just as Sachs said, democracy at home, imperialism for the rest of the world. While they did that on the island. They did not do that in their colonies. And oh, to this no, day, right. there's still like 40 countries with the Queen's picture, soon to be KC3's picture on their money. So what the British Empire transformed into is something that might look like this. This logo right here. That uh, that uh, is the cover of the United Nations Global Straitjacket by Joan Vion, who also wrote a book on Prince Charles, uh, oh, the author of The Sustainable Prince, which is a very hard game. The book to get the guy you know if you can get a pdf copy a script something like that it's good good read because what she's pointing out is just like uh what jocko had said to uh to to russell and so far as you don't see it as american imperialism you see it as halliburton and kellogg brown and root and all these other companies right but it's also british aerospace in bae like bae is their big military defense contractor right so it's not just lockheed and raytheon and northrop grumman and these american companies there's also the british oh, counterpart yeah. companies that have been british and Syria french and, I mean, Egypt french, and all these yeah. different countries with arms for a long time sure so then the topic turns to american imperialism and these are some of the definitive books on it here's america's deadliest export right by william bloom killing hope U.S. interventions, CIA since World War II, right? Those 46 use cases. These are probably the references that that article uses because he's the definitive writer. CIA, Forgotten History, and then Rogue State, 
a guide to the world's only superpower. Now, I do have an hour-long interview with William Bloom that I have not released, and he passed away probably a year or two afterwards. He was sick when we interviewed him, so um, it's good that we had the conversation at that time. Um, and what I what I pushed forward was, do you understand that it's not just the Americans, but it's also our our British cousins, right? When Lincoln got assassinated, the play he was seeing was called Our American Cousin. Mm-hmm. So we've been playing with our There's cousins. There's so much symbolism around. Yeah. So. Now, let's take a look at how Britain has played with its other cousins. Czar uh, Nicholas, uh, who was uh, Kaiser Wilhelm, right? Mm-hmm. Those are the cousins. That's World War One. They played with their yeah. cousins by creating World War. Guess what they're doing with their American cousins? They're taking over the world and America's name. We get the out of which they fomented it. the communist revolution. Hundred percent. World War One. I. I mean, it's just so. Yeah. There's a lot of history to even what just like a a twelve or thirteen minute Russell Brand video is bringing you. But then I thought beyond the book recommendations. I mean, these are solid book recommendations, and he's a he's a very good writer. He's not going to tell you about the Anglo-American establishment, but he'll t- tell you about the American counterpart in the, all these operations, the new great game, as it's been coined, because the yeah. British played the great game with their old cousins, killed them off, and then they started playing the new great game with the American cousins right. in and the 1940s and 50s, which became right. a military-industrial technocratic complex. Exactly. In the 1950s onwards, we just became essentially the military branch of the British Empire. We're essentially the, uh, you know, the British dogs, if you will, that go in and like police everything. And that's what we do in a way. Whereas, well, for, you know, Britain for, didn't to be need fair, to continue for a long time, to the do. The British had to do it for the Netherlands. That. Right. Because you had the Dutch royal family. There was, you know, other royal families that were also powerful. Wall. Right. So it, there's, there, there's a lot more to it. But I guess the gist would be I thought about while we're listening to that Russell Brand report, how could we best serve the audience on this topic? And so I asked Justin to look up. I said, can you pull up Eisenhower's entire speech on the military industrial complex where he gives the warning? Because what he's warning about is I'm not going to go too much into detail on this, but Eisenhower wasn't the, the cleanest utensil in the drawer. If you understand what I'm saying. He had gotten in with some psychological warfare people who became very notorious, maybe in a presidential assassination a couple years later. So he was running with some people that were breaking rules. And while he was doing it with them, he's like, this is pretty cool. But when he has to step out, he's like, maybe it's not cool if they keep doing this and it could get out of hand. So he has this whole warning speech. Now, the warning about the military industrial complex and the technocrats, right? He mentions these things specifically. It's all brought to you by the media industrial complex, which he doesn't really mention the TV cameras and this, the lights and all the other. He stuff, was head right? of psychological warfare in World War Two, so hundred percent. And he and he had people under him like C.D. Jackson, yeah. Charles Douglas, and a couple other notorious oh, yeah. uh, psychological warfare people. He worked with Nelson Rockefeller in that same theater of Europe. So there's what, a lot what a coincidence. To, it's stacks and stacks of coincidences. So Eisenhower insane, being the first five-star general and then becoming a president of the United States and uh, the, the heyday of post-war, you know, yay America. He had this warning and then it's backed up by like things that Truman said in 63 about how he wished he wouldn't have supported such things. And they're getting out of hand back then. Same thing that happened at FDR, the end of his president or his life. Yeah, the business and plot. Same thing that happened with Woodrow Wilson. You know, in regards to 
the power he had sort of come to realize exists. Yeah, because I guess uh, Woodrow Wilson's handler was Colonel House, who wrote a book yeah. called Philip Drew Administrator, which was about basically globalism's bureaucratic setup where you would have this uh, kind of technocracy. And by the time that Eisenhower gives this address, he's basically saying those things have come to pass and here's a warning. So, LD, do you have that uh, that clip? We got him. Okay, so I want to play. It's a 16-minute clip. I, from my understanding, this is the entire speech. I've seen the entire speech before. Yeah, I don't like too. how we're always shown just this one little piece out sure. of it because I'm like, mm, what's he really saying, right? Because there's like also in Bobby Kennedy's Fauci movie, they use that JFK speech about secret Which, societies. That's a classic example of excerpt lifting or uh, quoting out of context because like I remember when I first – understood and heard the whole speech i think it was sue corbett who did a report on it like 10 years ago which one the jfk and, secret society's one or uh, the eisenhower one uh it would be the jfk one okay because yeah. with jfk he goes on to show like well if you keep listening to what he says he actually is in support of secrecy and in support of keeping things sort of clandestine and sort of you know behind closed doors because of the th eminent threat of russia and potential nuclear war even though we're supposed to be repugnant a free society is repugnant to secrecy and all that sort of, you know, uh, euphemisms to use to right. sort of so, sell it. But Eisenhower's is different, and that's why it's good to show the whole speech. It is and Eisenhower's it, it is a came contrast. first, right. right? So Kennedy had already heard this when he's mm -hmm. he's getting in there. Now the the Kennedy speech in question, I think, comes from Columbia University, October of 1963. It's like five or six weeks before he's shot. And he talks about secret societies. Yes. But he also says the key phrase in there to me is the secret oaths because mm. communism doesn't have a secret oath. Right. So there is somebody worthy of the president mentioning at this Columbia speech. Why is he telling this audience as the press association or something like that? Right. He's like, there's a secret society with secret oaths mucking with our constitutional Republic. And you guys should know about it. That was that was part of the gist of that speech. Just All like right, the Illuminati was mucking with con constitutional monarchs. That's interesting. The, it's because the Illuminati, the Illuminati were anti-semantic, Tony. And... <laughs> okay, let's go to the clip. All right. Yeah, so according, <laughs> according to this post, it says this is his farewell address from uh, January 17th, 1961. So, Excellent. All right. So that, the record. that's when uh, Kennedy's getting inaugurated. Right. Pretty much, uh, that's that's the gist, right? All right, so let's cut mm -hmm. to yeah, uh, good, this yeah. piece of history. Before JFK was president, uh, Eisenhower had to sign off on American television, right? It was televised. It wasn't a newsprint. It wasn't on the radio. It was a televised event, which was a big deal back then. So uh, let's go to uh, formerly known as the president, uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower. <laughs> in the office of the President of the United States, we present an address by Dwight D. Eisenhower. This is the farewell address for President Eisenhower, whose eight years as chief executive come to an end at noon Friday. Mr. Eisenhower has chosen this time for his final speech. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. Good evening, my fellow Americans. First, I should like to express my gratitude to the radio and television networks for the opportunities they have given me over the years to bring reports and messages to our nation. My special thanks go to them for the opportunity of addressing you this evening. Three days from now, after half a century, 
in the service of our country, I shall lay down the responsibilities of office as, in traditional and solemn ceremony, the authority of the presidency is vested in my successor. This evening, I come to you with a message of leave-taking and farewell, and to share a few final thoughts with you, my countrymen. Like every other, like every other citizen, I wish the new president and all who will labor with him Godspeed. I pray that the coming years will be blessed with peace and prosperity for all. Our people expect their president and the Congress to find essential agreement on issues of great moment, the wise resolution of which will better shape the future of the nation. My own relations with the Congress, which began on a remote and tenuous basis, when long ago a member of the Senate appointed me to West Point, have since ranged to the intimate during the war and immediate post-war period, and finally to the mutually interdependent during these past eight years. In this final relationship, the Congress and the administration have, on most vital issues, cooperated well. To serve the nation, the nation good rather than mere partisanship, and so have assured that the business of the nation should go forward. So my official relationship with the Congress ends in a feeling, on my part, of gratitude that we have been able to do so much together. We now stand ten years past the midpoint of a century that has witnessed four major wars among great nations. Three of these involved our own country. Despite these holocausts, America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. Understandably proud of this preeminence, we yet realize that America's leadership and prestige depend not merely upon our unmatched material progress, riches, and military strength, but on how we use our power in the interests of world peace and human betterment. Throughout America's adventure in free government, our basic purposes have been to keep the peace to foster progress in human achievement, and to enhance liberty, dignity, and integrity among peoples and among nations. To strive for less would be unworthy of a free and religious people. Any failure traceable to arrogance or our lack of comprehension or readiness to sacrifice would inflict upon us grievous hurt, both at home and abroad. Progress toward these noble goals is persistently threatened by the conflict now engulfing the world. It commands our whole attention, absorbs our very beings. We face a hostile ideology, global in scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose, and insidious in method. Unhappily, the danger it poses promises to be of indefinite duration. To meet it successfully, there is call for not so much the emotional and transitory sacrifices of crisis, but rather those which enable us to carry forward steadily, surely and without complaint, the burdens of a prolonged and complex struggle with liberty, the stake. 
Only thus shall we remain, despite every provocation, on our charted course toward permanent peace and human betterment. Crises there will continue to be. In meeting them, whether foreign or domestic, great or small, there is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. A huge increase in newer elements of our defenses, development of unrealistic programs to cure every ill in agriculture, a dramatic expansion in basic and applied research. These and many other possibilities, each possibly promising in itself, may be suggested as the only way to the road we wish to travel. But each proposal must be weighed in the light of a broader consideration, the need to maintain balance in and among national programs. Balance between the private and the public economy. Balance between the cost and hoped-for advantages. Balance between the clearly necessary and the comfortably desirable. Balance between our essential requirements as a nation and the duties imposed by the nation upon the individual. Balance between actions of the moment and the national welfare of the future. Good judgment seeks balance and progress. Lack of it eventually finds imbalance and frustration. The record of many decades stands as proof that our people and their government have, in the main, understood these truths and have responded to them well in the face of threat and stress. But threats, new in kind or degree, constantly arise. Of these I mention two only. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Our arms must be mighty, ready for instant action, so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. Our military organization today bears little relation to that known of any of my predecessors in peacetime, or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. 
in the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. Akin to and largely responsible for the sweeping changes in our industrial military posture has been the technological revolution during recent decades. In this revolution, research has become central. It also becomes more formalized, complex, and costly. A steadily increasing share is conducted for, by, or at the direction of the federal government. Today, the solitary inventor, tinkering in his shop, has been overshadowed by task forces of scientists in laboratories and testing fields. In the same fashion, the free university, historically the fountainhead of free ideas and scientific discovery, has experienced a revolution in the conduct of research. Partly because of the huge costs involved, a government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. For every old blackboard, there are now hundreds of new electronic computers. The prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. Yet in holding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. It is the task of statesmanship to mold, to balance, and to integrate these and other forces, new and old, within the principles of our democratic system, ever aiming toward the supreme goals of our free society. Another factor in maintaining balance involves the element of time. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. We cannot mortgage the material assets of our grandchildren without risking the loss also of their political and spiritual heritage. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect. Such a confederation must be one of equals. The weakest must come to the conference table with the same competence as do we, protected as we are by our moral 
economic, and military strength. That table, though scarred by many fast past frustrations, cannot be abandoned for the certainty agony of, of the battlefield. Disarmament with mutual honor and confidence is a continuing imperative. Together we must learn how to compose differences, not with arms, but with intellect and decent purpose. Because this need is so sharp and apparent, I confess that I lay down my official responsibilities in this field with a definite sense of disappointment. As one who has witnessed the horror and the lingering sadness of war, as one who knows that another war could utterly destroy this civilization, which has been so slowly and painfully built over thousands of years, I wish I could say tonight that a lasting peace is in sight. Happily, I can say that war has been avoided. Steady progress toward our ultimate goal has been made, but so much remains to be done. As a private citizen, I shall never cease to do what little I can to help the world advance along that road. So in this, my last good night to you as your president, I thank you for the many opportunities you have given me for public service in war and in peace. I trust in that, in that, in that service, you find some things worthy. As for the rest of it, I know you will find ways to improve performance in the future. You and I, my fellow citizens, need to be strong in our faith that all nations under God will reach the goal of peace with justice. May we be ever unswerving in devotion to principle, confident but humble with power, diligent in pursuit of the nation's great goals. To all the peoples of the world, I once more give expression to America's prayerful and continuing aspiration. We pray that peoples of all faiths, all races, all nations, may have their great human needs satisfied, that those now denied opportunity shall come to enjoy it to the full, that all who yearn for freedom may experience its spiritual blessings. Those who have freedom will understand also its heavy responsibility, that all who are insensitive to the needs of others will learn charity, and that the sources, scourges of poverty, disease, and ignorance will be made disappear from the earth, and that in the goodness of time, all peoples will come to live together in a peace guaranteed by the binding force of mutual respect and love. Now, on Friday noon, I am to become a private citizen. I am proud to do so. I look forward to it. Thank you, and good night. Now, I know what you're thinking. He's, he's no Joe Biden, but I think he hacked his way through that speech pretty well. Like, he mucked up, we must, card, we must guard against the military-industrial complex, you know? He didn't have the advanced telemetry and, and tracking cybernetic software that they used to run the former vice president Biden. So you can't hold it against him. Plus he's in black and white Biden's in color. So of course, Biden seems like a smoother speaker than Eisenhower. So let's just go beyond that. Let's are rewind. You worried, are you worried at all about a scientific technological elite rich? 
Not at all. Not at all. Not I at definitely all. don't have any quotes that back any of this stuff up. But the thing that really caught my ear this time in listening to that whole speech was a reference he said at the beginning. He said Holocausts. And it wasn't in reference to what happened in Europe. It seemed to be in reference to something that happened in America. I'm not sure what he's talking about there. And that's the first time I've heard that type of burnt sacrifice language used by the president in that. So that I don't know what that is. I'd like to see what he's referring to on that. The next thing he pointed out with this was this utopian ethics, right? They want to make everything better. They want to do these things. And he's pointing out trying to solve some of these problems might create even bigger problems, right? So he was talking about this need for balance and uh, maybe the ineffective nature of just going full speed, you know, just because you could doesn't mean you like, just because you could doesn't mean you should, right? That whole Jeff Goldblum, uh, Mm -hmm. Jurassic Park quote. Yeah, right. right, We'll have to have Jake record that for the soundboard. (laughs) Um, Then he brought up the permanent arms industry, which he said was like a creation of World War II. So from my perspective as a forensic historian, what I see is America got lied to and pushed into World War I in a way that we're not told about. Same thing for World War II. So all these decisions that come out of World War II with the super special, let's zipper ourselves up with Britain relationship, share all our intelligence, connect into the five eyes, like that's a corporate merger on a state level. Okay. That's like the reacquisition of America 50 years after Cecil Rhodes said, let's reacquire America. Two wars later, we're in the back pocket being used as a So that permanent arms industry is not just an American thing. It's an Anglo-American thing. <clears throat> and then other countries that America and the same people who funded the Nazis, Wall Street, Robert Barron type people, uh, they funded those other arms makers in Russia and China. Yeah, too. Russia so like, and China. Exactly. That's exactly right. Now, here's some of the lesser known parts of, of that speech. He talked about the deep capture of our educational institutions. And that's pretty interesting right there, because I have a bunch of books on that, but I had never really picked up on that part of the speech either, because I haven't seen it in probably 10 years since I watched it. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't the first time I watched it. So each time you watch it, you pick up and glean different things because you've learned different stuff since then. So this deep capture of the institutions, specifically government and military grants to universities, start changing how universities do business. That was the thing that caught my attention the most as well, because like there's a fundamental change in the way science was sort of financed, if you will. Mm-hmm. I mean, for in the past, it was financed mostly by private interests, um, corporations or individuals that were just well to do and were interested in someone, an inventor or a scientist, so forth and so on. So, um, but and after World War II, it went to these government grants that then uh, universities competed for and the, the, his point about stifling innovation and sort of, you know, also sur- usurping sort of the natural market forces that would be in place there by, you know, once you get a government grant, you don't have to worry about private contracts, you know, you can shore everything up and then all these sorts of things that it is interesting because it's been one of the biggest arguments I've seen for quote unquote sort of knowledge filtration with like the way the journals are conducted and the way in which they sort of promote what they want to promote with, you know, in regards to what they consider to be science and uh, how much of it's conditioned by theories that are already existing. And you can't really upset the apple cart, so to speak. Well, it's how they control the speed of science. They want it to go faster. They put more military and government funding into those universities. And it has no longer anything to do with the education of the individual, which I think is also evident over the last uh, It comes with a heavy bias. It comes because it's going to be whatever the government sort of like is interested in pursuing its research. And then so if it's COVID-19 vaccine, in that regards, they're going to hand that 
you know, tons of money to private corporations to go develop that product or that new technology. And that's sort of scary because like, then there's no, there's no ethics to your point that he brought up as well. It needs to be a balance ethically. What he really needed to say is there needs to be a free and open dialogue at all times around complex situations or refer back to the constitution, in my opinion, like in that regard, but he is right from a philosophical issue you know, we can do a lot of things. Should we do a lot of things that, you know, asking those important questions? Well, I think also there's this observation when Eisenhower says this college education in America was still teaching stuff, real, you know, still teaching people real stuff. Right. Sure. And so at the moment that they kick off this military industrial complex that was built on this higher level education, they also destroyed the education so that you can't really compete with the military industrial complex. Yeah, and so as, as yeah, that's right. these companies and war making becomes more powerful, the universities become more and more decapture and turning out people exactly. that are going to support the military industrial complex. Which, which like in TV turn, and media turn out people who support. Which in turn affects the science that's then being conducted and supported. It does. And so it's it, all connected, right? There's a there's an extra step in the scientific method now. It says brought to you by Pfizer, and that helps to uh, make sure that the result is clean. Everyone Truthful. becomes infected. So. The deep capture of the institutions. And then the last part he mentioned is the scientific, scientific technological elite. And that also, uh, that comes out of Columbia. That's technocracy idea, but it's also implementation by globalists as saying that's a useful operating system for new world order. And technocracy as defined, I think, in that Columbia um, press or publication in 1938 or something like that. I got that obviously from Patrick Wood. Um, 1934, was, I think it was. 1934, yeah. thank you. Um, yeah, I think it was defined as social engineering. So, tech, like okay. the technological use of so, or the use, the social engine, um, the manifestation of social engineering through uses of technology or something of like that. And technically, technocracy as an idea is 1932, Columbia University, technocracy study course, 1934. And then the ideas percolated up. But Eisenhower is also talking about how America is a nation of God and that the communists are atheists, right? And I thought, well, that's interesting because uh, J. Edgar Hoover, around the same time, writes his book, Masters of Deceit, a story of communism, America, how to fight it. And I only need to go to like the first chapter to make the point, if I can get past the forward here, who's your enemy? No, that's not it. How communism began. Maybe I lost. Oh, right here science of communism right it's social it's scientific socialism util okay. utopian socialism this is what eisenhower's yeah, talking that's about jeremy bentham you know social science east india company that's british right scientific socialism where these ideas sort of, originated that's yeah. pretty interesting yeah. and then in this book none dare call it treason also about identifying who's uh getting deep capture on the country fbi director hoover responds and i thought this is interesting in context of the other clips we're going to play tonight Let's see if I can get it here on screen. Just 20 days after President Kennedy made his attack on conservative anti-communists, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover set the record straight. In a speech on NBC TV, he said, the communist threat from without, that means outside the country, must not blind us to the communist threat from within. The latter is reaching into the very heart of America and its espionage agents and a cunning, defiant, and lawless communist party, which is fanatically dedicated to the Marxist cause of world enslavement and destruction of the foundations of our republic. Well, that's interesting because this whole thing, this whole last sentence is also the goal of the British Empire. 
ironic. And, and that's where Marx and Engels were coming up with these ideas after the other guys from the East India Company uh, came up with capitalism in the first place. So they got the bookends on that. Just out, It's ironic and coincidental how ideas develop. Anyway, uh, continuing on. Ironically, just two years and four days after President Kennedy denied the existence of an internal communist threat in his speech in Los Angeles, he was cut down on the streets of Dallas by a sniper's bullet. It was fired by Lee Harvey Oswald, a self, a self-admitted communist. All right, so I don't know about the last part of the sentence, but uh, <laughs> you know, uh, so these ideas that are being expressed, those ideas of communism and communism uh, infiltration and uh, in in America and outside America, oh, really started in the 60s. drove the Cold War, drove like all that military-industrial complex. We got to make new javelin missiles and deliver them mm-hmm. to the other side of the world. Don't forget people. about Kissinger and Brzezinski, yeah. Nelson Rockefeller. I mean, you know, Charles well, Douglas okay. Jackson was still operative at this time. I think at that point he's at time length where maybe he had just finished his time there to being the director. Um, you know, then he goes on to buy the Spruder film. That's such a strange. Situation. Well, let me just, let me break it, out the timeline since you're going into that type of detail. In 1938, the British want to have an espionage operation in America. Now they're going to need a place to host them. They're going to need some friendlies. You know what I'm saying? So they go to Nelly Rock. And they say, can we have, can we set up in your Rockefeller center? Nelson rock, this guy right here. He says, yeah, go ahead. You guys set up. So British security coordination was the operation that starts running espionage in America to, uh, to make it look like maybe Germans are attacking America. So America wants to get into world war two on the side of the British. And this is like, this is real deal history. So that's going on. Um, in the midst of all that, milieu of uh corruption nelson rockefeller and a whole bunch of his friends are also funding the nazis they got some money in the soviet union too they got a lot of fingers a lot of dirty fingers and a lot of dirty pies so they're helping to fund that alan dulles nelson rockefeller nixon later finds out about this this is nixon's rise to power and eventually his downfall so uh nelson rockefeller alan dulles working with the nazis helping to fund hitler eisenhower knows these people he knows like he's in on the British intelligence operations in this type of level by the time he's uh, supreme allied commander of uh, of allied forces in, in Europe. Right. Mm-hmm. So after the war, let's come back to civilian world. So Eisenhower brings uh, his buddy, Charles Douglas Jackson, later works in the White House with Eisenhower. Right. Mm-hmm. Later works at Time Life when they got the Zapruder yep. film. Charles Douglas Jackson worked with Eisenhower. And Nelson Rockefeller in psychological warfare during World War II. It's not it's not like a big secret. You can find it on Nelson Rockefeller's uh, wiki page and Charles Douglas Jackson's wiki page. You might even find interesting film clips from their wartime activities. But again, it's, Very not, the interesting. Con- it's not the content for tonight's show, but it might be interesting homework for people who like to know stuff like that. So the scientific technological elite, I mean, it sounds a lot like what Patrick Wood is writing about. In the uh, you know the technocracy. That's book. the point. It's about social engineering just through the use of technology. Of course, you can argue then what is technology? Words or technology by that standpoint. But I think they mean 20th century technology in regards well, techni- to mass. Is, uh, is art or an artifact or created by the arm art, of man? Yeah. Well, yeah, that would be more art. Yeah, artifice. Yeah, techni. And then it just turns into like uh, you know the 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 inclined plane, uh, the lever the mm-hmm. auger, these sort of basic primitive tools. And then the technology eventually gets to some place where it merges with electricity. 
and now you're sending invisible waves through the air uh, and it's radio or TV. And then they made color TV. And then Dude, you can manipulate people. You can manipulate people on a mass scale. It's a, sort of similar to I mean, very different though when in the 15th century, you know, the Gutenberg printing press revolutionized the way information could be preserved and mass distributed to many, many people. And so, I mean, I'd say, so you, all of a sudden you can get the effect of conditioning people through narrative before events happen, while events happen, after events happen. Um, like I know, dig so wire there's, communication. There's a, there's a different type of, like when in 1934, when Columbia comes out with a publication in regards to technocracy and they're defining it that way, it's a very specific reason why they it's sort of, there's a, a um, predicate, if you will, of technology. So technology is like the key here. Everything's sort of predicated on this mass social engineering that once that is, you know, uh, the ultimate wet dream of all these technocrats in the late 19th century and early 20th century, like Bertrand Russell, for example, that's what they mean. And so the, the use of all these modern sort of techniques, radio, mass communication, uh, drugging, obviously, the pharmaceutical uh, sort of health complex, if you will, Um healthcare complex, all this sort of, all these, and also the military industrial complex, they play a part in that. It's, it's scary to think about because we're seeing the ramifications. We're seeing the full fallout of that now. And also to know how sort of compromised Eisenhower is as an individual, uh, for those that are curious to look up his activities in World War II specifically. And, you know, so it's, and in the way they're also part of you the conditioning of that the with tech- General Patton's death. Yeah, that's oh boy. Now see that with stuff we just can't even cats out of bag. All right, yeah, let me just show you this real good. quick yeah. over here. Principles of social reconstruction, Bertrand Russell. Now you're gonna say this is a an old, old book. This is probably like 1914. Let's see. 1916. First edition. Okay. So that's what he was back. He was up to this, uh, you know, principles of how to reconstruct society. Now, this is World War One. Right. Principles of social reconstruction. They were trying to figure out in the overall sense, like the Carnegie Foundation, other nonprofit foundations, how to keep America in a wartime market long term. And this is a question. Carnegie Endowment starts in 1908. And the source for this is the Reese Committee hearings in 1954. And Norman Dodds, the whistleblower from Yale, who tells the whole story. So there's a lot to that. I don't have time to unpack that. I just want to say Bertrand Russell, 1916, had these ideas of reconstructing society. And then he writes other books like. Uh, the scientific outlook. This is more scientific utopianism, scientific yep. socialism, things that turn into technocracy. And this is uh, probably 1931. This is the yeah, first edition. Between that and then the so 1931. Of He's writing society. about uh, scientific outlook. And there's a whole bunch of juicy quotes in this book. And we don't have time to get to that. But we can go to this one. It's like 1954. Yeah. Bertie Russell, Impact of Science on Society. Let's just check the date. 1951 was the first edition of this. Okay. So now you see over like 40 years, this plan. Now this is uh this book is based on the lectures originally given at Ruskin college, Oxford, England. Well, that's interesting because John Ruskin was Cecil Rhodes's mentor and Oxford is the place with the Rhodes scholarships. So for him to tell you this in the prefatory note, the prefatory note, preface note, uh, I think it's disclosing. Here's also Columbia University, the makers of technocracy. You got it. Right? You Around, can see so, the continuation so can, of Cecil Rhodes's initiative. And really, and if you think about it, they're the 
philosophers and you know, technocrats even before Cecil Rhodes came up with his well, now we were just talking about Karl Marx that right? we're already considering these ideas and communism and he knows about it too and this is where that famous quote comes yeah. from that everyone uses in their documentary yeah and it's um it's an example of what technology was limited to at that time, but you could see they were trying to use it for control. And then he references all the way back to Plato's Republic and gradually by selective breeding, the congenital differences. Oh, this is eugenics. He's talking about eugenics in this book, Tony, Mm -hmm. even after world war two. Huh? And he goes on to laboring class. If you continue reading and yeah, he goes on to state like some of the problems that could emerge and he goes on to mention what happened in world war two. And Nazi Germany, but he goes on. I, at some point, he just says the quiet part out loud after he tries to cover up and say, "Well, we always prefer freedom, but at some point, we do have to sacrifice ourselves to a collective." I covered it specifically when I hosted my logic course uh, when we were going over examples um, of excerpt lifting, and it's a really interesting. Uh, if it's really interesting, what happens when you continue to read it? So this there, is the part where we can tie it back to this theme. That goes back to uh, Eisenhower's speech and what Russell Brand was covering in that video. This mm-hmm. is where you get the payoff. But to get the payoff, you had to watch like a 16-minute clip, a 13-minute clip, learn about some books, learn about Bertrand Russell, juxtapose some of these ideas, and now you can have a payoff. Can't do that stuff in three minutes. More important, this is page 54, more important than these metaphysical speculations is the question whether a scientific dictatorship, such as we have been considering, Right. He's considering a scientific dictatorship and making a case for it in this book, the impact of science on society. That's why he's drawing analogies to Plato's Republic. If taken literally, that would be the philosopher king. I'm reading but for at people least in, who think that it's expert lifting to do the uh, Fichte quote. But, you're not telling the whole thing, Carl yeah, Marx. That's not, that's not the whole thing. That's, no, that's he wants what happened. More. That's, that, he wants that's more why you and I went out that and bought first editions. Yeah. Because someone yeah. did call me out when I presented it. And I was like, you know, read like, the whole book. Move. Yeah. More important than these metaphysical speculations is the question whether a scientific dictatorship such as we've been considering can be stable or is it more likely to be stable than it or is it more likely to be uh, stable than a democracy? Apart from the danger of war, I see no reason why such a regime should be unstable. Hold on. Oh, he's like, it's like three three legged stool, Tony. It can't. That's (laughs) That's what he said right here. (coughs) Excuse me. That's an absurd. That's an absurd well, statement. His publisher I mean, thought it was dandy, okay? And he got published. Okay. After Continue all, reading. most civilized and semi-civilized qu- countries known to history have had a large class of slaves or serfs completely subordinate to their owners. Hmm. Is this guy writing in 1861? Right before the Civil it's War? Like- oh, it's, this is the 1950s. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. There is nothing in human nature that makes the persistence of such a system impossible. Huh. And the whole development of scientific technique has made it easier than it used to be to maintain a despotic rule over a minority of a minority of a minority. That's even a bigger deal. When the government controls the distribution of food, its power is absolute. So long as it can count on the police and the armed forces like the military industrial complex. Mm. That's fascinating. I'm not sure you can also yet, but I'm, I'll keep reading. You can replace government with large corporation as well. Yeah. You know, public, private, fascistic sort of ways. And their loyalty can be secured by giving them some of the privileges of the governing class. 
I do not see how any internal movement of revolt can ever bring freedom to the oppressed in a modern scientific dictatorship. But, you know, let's remember what he said in the beginning of all this. Apart from the danger of war, I see no reason why such a regime would be unstable. So what he's saying is there's going to be maybe the greatest amount of despotic rule, but it will be stable. Think about that. That's what he's basically saying. It's like, but this will create a stable order, a perfect top-down, technologically controlled society that will create the greatest slave class that can never rebel against its masters ever in history. Right. So, so in yeah, this when he's chat, talking so, about a stable democracy, it's not a stable us. It's a stable. Well, he's not us. talking about mm-hmm. democracy. Yeah. He, the, That's the like, bait and switch he's doing there. Fifty pages later. Can a scientific society be stable? He's talking about technocracy, right? Are mere numbers so important that for their sake, we should patiently permit such a state of affairs to come about? Surely not. Meaning we got to be proactive. What then can we do? Well, apart from certain deep-seated prejudices, the answer would be obvious. The nations which at present increase rapidly should be encouraged to adopt the methods by which in the West, the increase of population has been checked. So this is talking about depopulation. This is eugenics. Mm -hmm. This is like uh, deciding who procreates. Educational propaganda with government help could achieve this result in a generation. Oh, really? What else can it achieve if you left it run for more than one generation? Is that technocracy? Uh, Let's see. Uh, Meanwhile, no. Uh, so long as there is not a single world government, there will be competition and power along, among different nations. Right here. Oh, so they need world government for they to need be a stable. scientific society, mm. single world government. Oh, right here. Look, you these know, create considerations. The tyranny, but that will be stable perpetually, huh? The greatest tyranny, but stable. It's a very strange paradox here. Rich. It's a very strange line of study, right? These considerations prove that a scientific world society cannot be stable unless there is a world government, Tony. Oh, oh, now, because people say that Victor quotes out of context. Oh, my. I'm just going to keep reading. It may be said, however, that this is a hasty conclusion. All that follows directly from what has been said is that unless there is a world government which secures universal birth control, there must from time to time be great wars in which the penalty of defeat is widespread death by starvation. Oh, that's the exact president of, of the I world. Know, I was reading the rest of those. Like, <laughs> wow. it's a present, but yeah. No, wait, wait, there's more. Page yeah. 105. Unless at some stage, one power or group of powers emerges victorious and proceeds to establish a single government of the world, 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 with a monopoly of armed force, force, force. It is clear that the level of civilization must continually decline until scientific warfare becomes impossible. That is, until science is extinct. I think Tony Fauci did that. Reduced once more to bows and arrows, Homo sapiens might breathe again and climb anew the dreary road to a similar futile or futile culmination. The need for a man's ultimate teleology. If, wow. What, how pessimistic. Amen. Jesus. Okay. Birdie Bert. Bert, Bert Russell also had some interesting things to say about the Kennedy assassination. So you guys can check that out too. You, you don't throw away the baby with the bathwater. He might have some interesting observations later in life. The need Let's for a world thinking. government. If the population problem is to be solved in any humane manner is completely evident on Darwinian principles. What was that book that he wrote? What was it called? Uh, the origin of species, <laughs> the progress of the and favorite. the preservation, yeah, preservation of favored races. 
That's a racist <clears throat> tome right there. Conclusions. Let me just spoiler alert in case, in case you're wondering what's up. The population of the world is increasing and its capacity for food production is diminishing. Such a state of affairs obviously cannot continue very long without producing a cataclysm. Malthusianism just rebranded in 1951. And then Club of Rome was like, what if we could create the cataclysm and profit from it? Can we do that? To deal yeah, with we'll this just problem. lead with it, even though it doesn't exist, and we'll just make all the data just fit in with all of it. And then we'll get to the kids. We'll this is Bert Russell just taking you the the godfather of all this Take precipitation it. of feces you're seeing today. Ooh. To deal with this problem, it will be necessary to find ways of preventing an increase in world population. Just not his family, right? Uh, if this is to be done, otherwise by then wars, pestilences, and famines. It will demand a powerful international lobby. This authority should deal out the world's food to the various nations in proportion to their population at the time of the establishment of the authority. And then if any nation subsequently increased its population, it would not on that account receive any more food. The motive for not increasing population would therefore be very compelling. What method of preventing an increase might be preferred should let should be left to each state to decide. Wow. Just starve people out for having sex, huh? Mm-hmm. Woo. So it goes on. Uh, here's the last part. My conclusion is that a scientific society can be stable under certain conditions. The first of these is a single government of the whole world possessing a monopoly of armed force and therefore able to enforce peace. That sounds like he's trying to make a scientific dictatorship, Tony. Why didn't he just call it armed force dictatorship? Enforce peace. It's a big Rocky by Ruskin, Oxford, Cecil Rhodes, and the Anglo-American establishment. Is this, or is this <laughs> the not double what's thing going on, going on is just kind of crazy. It's, 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 it's so, Trump making my eyes cross right now. The second condition is that is is a general diffusion of prosperity so that there is no occasion for envy of one part of the world by another. Yeah, you could just end envy by reappropriating other people's wealth. It's called stealing. I think the whole Ten Commandments is thou shalt not steal in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, that's they can be reduced on just don't steal. That's correct. The third condition which supposes the second fulfilled is a low birth rate everywhere so that the population of the world becomes stationary or nearly so. So he can control nature with his words here, just -hmm. like they can take away the sun. If you pay tax dollars for the carbon gods, the fourth condition is, uh, is a provision for the individual initiative, both in work and in play and the greatest diffusion of power compatible with maintaining the necessary political and economic framework. I think that's called the great reset. There you go. About the author. Let's just at least give him his due. Bertrand author William Russell received the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1950. So he wrote this book after that. He is the grandson of Lord John Russell, the British Foreign Secretary during the Civil War. Before going to Cambridge, he was educated at home by governess and tutors, acquiring a a thorough knowledge of German and French. It has been said that his, quote, admirable and lucid English style may be attributed to the fact that he did not undergo a classical education at a public school, end quote. Certainly this style of uh, is certainly this style is perceptible in the many books that he have flowed from his pen during half a century books that have 
shown him to be one of the most profound mathematicians, the most brilliant of philosophers, and the most lucid of popularizers. His most recent major works are A History of Western Philosophy, published 1945, Human Knowledge, Its Scope and Limits, published in 1948, Authority and the Individual, published 1949, Unpopular Essays, that grossly mistitled book, published 1951, and New Hopes for a Changing World, published in 1952. And I would also note none of the books I showed you here tonight, except this one that's in the back of, are mentioned there. So Mm -hmm. they don't want you to look at scientific outlook they don't want you to know the principles of social reconstruction and uh the legacy of these very british ideas that were being pushed forth and americanized this fabianism continued forward Fabian socialism, which is eugenics which is eugenics continued forward, just under the guise of eugenics, transhumanism yeah technocracy uh social engineering as social engineering eugenics it's all in technology it's all wrapped in one sort of and in the words, terrible. In the words of that great, I mean, because he's you know, Bertrand Russell, he's a great 20th century philosopher. In the words of the great 20th century philosopher, Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> all right, now we can move past. I was going to say, yeah, they consider him a great philosopher. Oh, boy. That's, uh, you can see the degradation of philosophy, everyone. Forrest Gump's not only a good philosopher, it's a heck of a soundtrack on that album. Two, two discs. <laughs> get it, get it. All right, so, um, Military industrial complex. I'm just, my point is, it's not just America. There's other groups of people responsible. America takes the bad rap. Anything that happens, British arms dealers always seem so slick and dignified when they're rolling through the jungle and their Range Rovers and stuff, right? Uh, what is it? Uh, God of War, Lord of War with Nicolas Cage. There's yeah, really Lord good, there's yeah, really we good actually scenes played, in that. Like, we played the last uh, five minutes of that on the town hall recently. Yeah, Nick it's Cage is like this upstart, like, uh, was he semi-Russian mob kind of arms dealer kind of guy f- from should, Long Island? And he's off it? trying to cut these deals. Yeah, let's cut. Yeah, I, want, I want cut. the scene in the jungle where like yeah. the, oh, the, you, scene you in get the jungle. Can, I mean, comparison okay. between the two arms dealers and what they're bringing to the table, right? And the guy and the British guy is based on a real guy named Tiny Rowland who's in Whitney Webb's books and uh, works alongside Sir James Goldsmith and the Rothschilds and a lot of that financial skullduggery of the BCCI ran Contra milieu. There you go. Got your 25 cent word on the table there. Milieu. It's fun to say. Did you find that clip? Okay. I know it's a jungle scene. Live jungle Mm -hmm. scene. I got a, I got an airstrip scene. Uh, as long as it's emblematic of the juxtaposition of the arms dealers. Yeah, it's not, I'm not finding that one. There's the ending, obviously. But Yeah, we don't want to spoil a perfectly good movie for folks. Yeah. I don't mind spoiling the end of a Bertrand Russell book from 50 or 100 years ago, but looks like I'm not a, taking away. You got something stepping off a big plane. Looks juicy. All right, let, let's yeah. let's go to a random clip. That's part of the unknown aspect of this show is sometimes we don't find what we're looking for in the first clip and uh, we learn something else along the way. It's part of the journey. Let's take a little tangent to uh, Lord of War. Come here, come here. Hey, don't be shy. Here, look. Free sample. Help yourself, okay? Free sample. Tell your friends. Come here, you want something? Look. RPG? 
all for you. All right? Happy times. Come on. Help yourselves. No charge. Everything goes. Guys, 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 yes, come on! Oh, this is when he needs to let go of all this. Oh, yeah. cargo crew at Heathrow Airport does in a day. Took a bunch of malnourished Sierra Leonean locals 10 minutes. By the time Agent Valentine got there, you could find more guns on a plane full of Quakers. Yuri Orlov. Ow, fuck! Run from us? No, MBZ, no. Can you run with no legs? Let me make him disappear, Mr. Valentine. Around here, people disappear all the time. I can't do that. Look where we are. Who will know? We will. All right, so that's a good example. Go ahead, pause that. So Ethan Hawke, it appears, he works for the other arms dealers, like the competition of Nicolas Cage, it appears. That seemed to be... Like the U.S. State Department? The legislature and the private military. Like, no, you can't sell arms. Yeah. They're like, well, produce they have, the arms. Well, Bertie Russell said they need a monopoly on the arms. Right. So that's why they, for instance, when people say there's an, a, a, an agenda to remove Second Amendment rights from Americans and they're like, that's crazy conspiracy theory. I'm like, well, clearly you haven't read the British perspective on such things because they, they, they can't have world government if Americans still have, uh, you know, a variety of armaments. Yeah. At least close enough to be able to defend themselves against all the way up to a cannon. Like they're, that, that, that's a thing. Yeah, no, that's right. Explicitly preserved. It's American history. I think there's uh was John Quincy Adams the quote on that. The decision. I think the idea is that uh, they really meant equal armament. And that's something quickly references. Right. Well, even if you have symbolic argument, see the the thing that Quigley argues is you can't have a you can't equally wage war. But here's my flip side: or that if if there's equal armament, paradoxically, it creates peace because at any one time the the citizenry right. can defend itself adequately against the hegemon. Or like after a couple tries, Britain got the it. The, okay, we can't fight them militarily. You got right? it. All right. However, on the flip side. It's not that you need equal armament to your oppressor to ward off your oppressor. That's the peace diplomacy answer, because look at what they did in Vietnam. Were those guys better armed than our soldiers, better trained than our soldiers, better or any, any, no. What about Afghanistan with those guys in the caves, the Taliban dudes, right? So uh, insurrection fighting. They don't have to be as well armed. They can use asymmetrical tactics. Yeah, Sun when Tzu, you're not doing if your enemy's big, you're small, warfare. you have an advantage. Right. Right. So I don't yeah. know how Sun Tzu translates into Pashto, but I'm sure it does <laughs> somehow. They got Machiavelli over there too. 
And uh, so, yeah, there's different dynamics, but to have world monopoly, world government, world monopoly of force, armaments, these sort of things, that's UN agenda. They've been trying to do it in the United States since the early 60s, since like 1964. You know, there used to be a, a great par- uh, presentation. I'll have to see if I can find it because it's like from 10 years in the 1960s ago. when the university systems became corrupted with a lot of this, like neoliberal. It's the like, British invasion. They changed our culture right in yeah. front of us. And they said, and that's we're going to call it off warning in the 80s right. that he claims happened in regards to psychological subversion. Everyone so thinks it's so tongue in cheek. No, bro. They're just making music. No, they entirely it's changed our culture because they had sure. command and control of our culture for like 20 years at that point. They got a special relationship. They got their people running the stuff that we call ours over here from the State Department to the CIA to the seat of the president until JFK got there. And he wasn't supposed to win. JFK cheated everybody. He cheated to get in the White House. You know how we know that? Because the other side had cheated, too, but they didn't cheat hard enough. And then they were really spiteful. And then at some point they got their guy back in the White House. His name was LBJ. And they went to Vietnam with him. They, they, you know, what do you get? The great society with him? He was in it to right? win it. The great. So you get all these social programs. You get the expansion of the federal government's influence. So it's just uh, all these new government programs and well, money, and then you get, money supply and lending and debt and so forth and, and so on. You get on. the piling on of other allies who attack us and we don't have to investigate. And it's covered up by Clark Clifford and the other people who wrote national security all the way up to BCCI, like that same oh, yeah. coterie of criminals. Mm-hmm. It's all, I mean, it's, it's all right there in a tight little history. And a lot of it's in the Whitney Webb books. It's a great like crash course history. Like I could read 40 or 50 of these other books about these same people that's in her book, but they no, all but miss, it's kinda, they all miss the sex blackmail every... layer, which is right. the most provocative and spicy part for people. Like the volume one, like it's a good summation without needing to buy every single book that rich, uh, he does it to make sure he can corroborate every single like uh, point he's trying to make in case you're, it's almost like you're laying out a, a court case and it's, it's brilliant. What you're it's able very to show, much like that, I'm laying out a court case. Exactly. And these that's, are that's all the exhibits goal. of evidence that are being exactly. entered into the public record and can be brought. Whereas not everyone, you people. don't, not everyone has to do that just to get caught up. Volume one is a great summation. Of really 1950s onwards in regards to FBI, CIA, clandestine operations, drug running, um, arms dealing <laughs> that leads up to sex extortion. What what she shows is like there, there's a there's a group of people that are helping to get America into World War II, and it's an Anglo-American group. And parallel to that, she starts the story like in 1941 as this Anglo-American group also cuts a deal with organized crime. And then they start to work together on a regular basis. And then all of a sudden, Oswald shot Kennedy and everything's, you know, he's dead by mm-hmm. Sunday. And then Jack Ruby died of mm-hmm. cancer. And then the people that were like, his wife Ruby is were, they were developing injectable cancers, like the whole Dr. Mary's monkey uh, line of research. Mm-hmm. Right. I could grab that book. That's pretty fascinating. Yeah, parallel no, history, yeah. parallel history to JFK's coincidental assassination. How do these things happen? I'm not sure. Mysteries of the universe, Tony. Maybe we'll never solve it. Maybe we're not smart enough. That is an interesting question about the the cancer injections. So people should look that up. It's fascinating. There's also some other. Well, good. Sorry. I'll grab that book during the next clip. So yeah, Yeah, it'd be good to get that on the record. I was looking at the uh, old show card here. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I want to move to the vaccines, lockdowns, therapeutics section. Mm-hmm. Um, 
let's go to this good morning America clip. Cause I want to first hear from the official sources. Cause like, I need to know how to make decisions in my life as an adult. So I want to hear from Albert Borla on good morning America. Cause that's what educated people do. They get to the root of it by listening to the CEO who always tells the truth and never verbalizes about his five product. doses. Now he's gotten COVID four or five times or something like that. I don't know. Just I don't strange. know, man. Maybe his PCR threshold was set too high or something. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Now. <laughs> you know, when spinal, spinal tap was like at 11. Yeah. They have that 111. Boy. Turn it up, man. Turn it up till you find <laughs> something. Don't fucking stop. Whatever it takes. All right. So, yeah, let's check out what uh, what the American public or the world public's being told about this by Albert Borla. He, he sounds he went to the Klaus Schwab School for Linguistics. So let's check it out. Israel. Is that where that's at? Oh, um, oh sorry. So welcome back to GMA3. And what <laughs> remarkable news we have this morning. Pfizer and BioNTech have announced that early analysis of their phase three COVID-19 vaccine trial has shown more than 90% efficacy a number much higher than expected yeah, they were hoping for anything at 50 percent or greater that's yeah. a lot greater we're going to turn it now to our very own dr jen ashen with more on this yeah and this has been a day marked with the words cautious optimism but i want to bring in pfizer chairman and ceo dr albert borla for the latest on this big news dr borla i know you're having a busy day thanks so much for joining us uh you've announced pfizer has announced that the vaccine has shown over 90 percent efficacy in protecting trial participants with no previous history of infection from SARS-CoV-2. Obviously, that's good news. But now let's talk about safety. What do we know about the durability of this vaccine? And if it gets emergency use authorization with just over two months of safety data, how confident can we be that it will be safe long term? Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for, of course, the interest that I know is the interest of all the world. Indeed, the vaccine was uh, proven to be very efficacious, uh, overwhelmingly, and uh, that was uh, big news for me as well. Uh, we feel very good about the safety. We published safety data of approximately 6,000 patients back in October. Of course, they were unblinded. Uh, when we had uh, an R&D day at Pfizer and presented uh, the, the newest achievements of our R&D organization. Uh, right now, uh, we have uh, 40,000 people that have received a second uh, dose. And uh, the data that the independent uh, committee of experts reviewed uh, yesterday, uh, they are matching pretty much uh, the data that we had at 6,000 people. So the committee reported to us no safety concerns and uh, tolerability profile that uh, it's among uh, uh, the very good that we have seen in any vaccine so far. But Dr. Berla, just quickly for that safety, there's short-term safety and tolerability, and then there's long-term safety. So with going for emergency use authorization at just over two months, uh, what about side effects that may not potentially become apparent until much further down the road? Yeah, I think that uh, this is why we'll continue monitoring uh, the safety of uh, the vaccine for the next uh, two years to make sure that everything is fine. Keep in mind that um, to get a full approval, uh, typically for products, they are requiring six months of, uh, of uh, safety data. I think we will have uh, two months for the medium. We will have more than three months for the original participants. And, um, of course, uh, it's up to the independent experts committee 
that the FDA will ask, and of course FDA, to assess uh, the safety data and how comfortable they are. And we will submit if we feel comfortable about this. Understood. And as you well know, Dr. Borla, there is a fair amount of mistrust, especially in the United States, about a vaccine that has been developed and produced so quickly. Now, Pfizer chose deliberately not to participate in Operation Warp Speed in the same way that other vaccine developers uh, have done. But yet you have been promised nearly two billion dollars to develop to deliver about 100 million doses to the federal government. But you didn't accept federal money for research and development. Take us through what was involved in that decision. You are right, first of all, that um, there is a lot of skepticism among uh, individuals, among, uh, let's say, citizens of America, uh, that uh, frankly, they are confused. And I think the main reason for that, it is because instead of having scientists debating uh, the vaccine, uh, the merits of this vaccine, we had uh, uh, politicians. This didn't help at all. Uh, for this reason, uh, we try to be extremely transparent, not only us, but I believe the entire pharmaceutical industry. I and, pause that too. Uh, so they try to be transparent by not releasing anything for 75 years and black, blacking everything out by redacting everything, right? So that's what he calls transparent. And of course, that's not Albert Borla, who's had COVID four times. That's Albert Borla pitching his product as 90% effective and it's super safe and nothing to see here and we have a couple clips like this because first off, I wanted to be able to justify for all the investors of Pfizer why they're going to increase the price of their offering in the little jabby jam by four. Now, first, the the skeptical part of me says, well, they're losing so many customers, so they just like you know charge four times as much, and they can still report to shareholders that they're doing good. But at the same time, I think it's also a time for people to question. It's like, uh, are they raising it uh, four times as much, you know, 400% increase in cost because now they put it on the childhood vaccine schedule. And then the other part is, of course, we're playing these clips because what Albert Borla said in the past highly contradicts what Albert Borla is saying today. And uh, I think that if uh, Alex Jones has to pay 2.75 trillion or whatever, because he said some things that were wrong, I think Albert Borla also should be held to the same scrutiny. He said some things that were wrong and people actually died from the things that he said. They made life changing medical decisions without informed consent from a guy who talks a little bit too much, like somebody who might've worked on Dr. Mengele's team. So I'm glad that people like Ben Shapiro are realizing that people like uh, Borla lied and the, the politicians, you know, that pushed it lied. But also, it's like caveat emptor. Shouldn't we all learn how to critically think and maybe not believe Borla in the first place? Maybe not watch those news channels in the first place? Because if you trust that channel to be doing the research and thinking for you, you've lost the battle in the beginning. Even this show, we're not telling you what to think. We're showing you how to think. And we're encouraging you to go read the books yourself. Read this. It's not mandatory. It's not assigning you homework. I'm just letting you know these things exist. And these people said these things. They might be relevant to the conversation of what's going on today. But we don't know until we get past that mind fart of conspiracy theory, right? That intellectual featherweight mentality that just uses single or double phrased words and say, oh, I can't discuss that. That's that's well, that's anti something or other. Or you're, a, you're a denier or whatever the thing is out there in society, right? You can be an election denier these days. You could be a climate denier these days. All sorts of deniers out there. So can we be adults and have conversations and use words 
like uh, mature, eloquent human beings. Like I, I don't want to use them as an example, but Eisenhower people was can't even eloquent. agree on a reality existing. People can't even understand use... all the words in Eisenhower's speech. Yeah, they there don't, we go. They wouldn't know what to do if they heard That's talking the like dumbing that. Dumbing down of Biden. American education. Yes, right there. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. That's Charlotte Isserby. That's John Taylor Gatto. And that's the culmination of, um, you know, a century, over a century of Prussian education, outcome-based education agenda. Which which gives people the impression of being educated when they, in fact, are not. Right. It almost makes them impervious to being educated because they're so hmm. used to being indoctrinated and propagandized. How convenient. How convenient for Birch and It's Wilson's almost like they never really legacy. realized their own agency. It's Drop almost, them in a little box. Get them yeah, on the wheel. Break their will. That's all you got to do. Mm. All right. So let's go to this next clip. This is Pfizer CEO on vaccine blocking 94% of asymptomatic infections. Remember when they told you people could be infected without symptoms? Fascinating phenomenon. It's almost like saying there's ghosts in the room. Mm-hmm. Right? Are they? Oh, there's a spirit in the room with us now? What's going on? So asymptomatic transmissions and you know stopping the spread, right? And doing it for grandma, that hints, like, doesn't that explicitly even yeah. say that it's going to stop transmission? It doesn't Rachel Maddow, the Rhodes Scholar, right? So this this is like Rhodes, Rhodes Scholar type material here for Oxford University. This Bertie Burt. Oh, here he is on the back. Let me just show. There he is. There's Bert with his little pipe. All right. So this is in the <laughs> legacy of Cecil Rhodes. Okay. <laughs> A little smirk on his face. He's smoking. Pipe, looking up smoking. at the. Now. In the legacy of Cecil Rhodes, the the impact of science on society. In the legacy of Cecil Rhodes, Rachel Maddow telling you it'll stop the spread, it'll stop transmission, just do it, you idiots, right? When George Stephanopoulos or any of these other Rhodes scholars in society, they're promoting this plan. It's the plan. Now, there's people like Naomi Wolf, who's a Rhodes scholar. Doesn't Mm. mean she supports that plan because she actually speaks out against that plan. I don't think they tell all Rhodes scholars, hey, the guy who's giving you this scholarship had a plan to bring America back into the empire. And the way they're going to do it is take away our education and take away our best and brightest and anglify them and then send them back over here to deconstruct America. I don't think she's with that group, even though she got the scholarship. So some people don't embrace that idea. Some people participate in that scholarship, have no idea about Cecil Rhodes or apartheid or concentration. Most probably don't unless they research the history. It's like joining Freemasonry. But Ezekiel Emanuel, a Rhodes scholar, brother of Ari Emanuel and Rahm Emanuel, whose father was part of the Irgun that blew up the King David Hotel. Right. He's a Rhodes scholar and he knows damn well what it's about about making world government through a scientific technocratic system. It's more he was a doctor doc- in charge for the government under, under COVID. Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, Rhodes yeah. Scholar, brother of Ari Emanuel, who just canceled Kanye West Kanye as if West, he doesn't yeah. get what the Streisand effect is. Like Kanye, Ari, you know, Ari, Kanye just said that you're so powerful that you could cancel him. And Ari's like, boom, you're canceled. And then everyone drops him. So I don't know what that's all about. But I think it has it's something amazing to do with this story because this seems to be a narrative be that continues to, that. to unroll. Subjugation. No, that's religions. correct. I mean, they, you got to understand the Rhodes Scholarship. It's about ideological um, sort of persuasion. So they don't, they don't, it's not something so top down. It's like, well, this is really the, the plan we're coming out with. They, they indoctrinate these young, cogent, or precocious, rather, individuals um, with this sort of, utopian idealism right 
utopic that's utopian idealism that's really ultimately what it is and so most of them carry it forward because they're also of that privileged class where they get to sort of you know they they have much of their own their position to be in places of media or in entertainment or in policy making in various countries around the world uh, or international bodies and to carry forward that message um, so they are in great positions of power and they believe. See, that's the worst thing about it is like they end up believing in the these false ideologies being promoted that is part of Cecil Rhodes' initial initiative, which is really a eugenics initiative because it's part of sort of the Fabian strategy and the emergence of the 19th century, late 19th century British philosophers, if you will, social philosophers and scientists. Which is and the origin of the green movement and carbon credits and carbon everything. neutral. But they don't realize that. that. They don't say that to them. It's just a belief that there really is this problem and they are in the right. And that's what makes it so. But Gates knows that, right? So like the outer circles don't know about the inner circles sure. agenda just saying, and the history with, behind it. Yeah, even within the, to your point, within many of these scholarship programs, Fulbright or Rhodes Scholarship, most of them don't. Or, you know, if they do, they read a superficial history. Fulbright, you know, they get for those of, of you playing at home, are, that's uh, like the William, Fulbright, William Fulbright was a Rhodes Scholar, and he created scholarships at Princeton called the Fulbright Scholarships, which are American Rhodes Scholarships for the mm-hmm. same Anglo-American agenda. Yes. Webster Tarpley is a Fulbright Scholar. <laughs> <laughs> facts are facts. All right. So um, moving ahead, let's let's play this Borla clip. I won't clip. say it. I just won't say Pfizer it. CEO on vaccine being 94 percent uh, effective on blocking asymptomatic infections. To me, that means other people around you aren't going to get COVID. You can't get COVID because you got this this shot. This exper- that's the the risk reward. Like you take this experimental gene therapy injection because it's going to help save grandma, keep you safe. And not transfer it, you know, in a more pandemic situation. So we can have not two weeks to st- stop the spread. It was like two years at that point. So they mm. could open back up the world. A, so people sacrifice what might be their future health, spinning the gambling wheel, trusting Dr. Fauci and Albert Borla and all those news whores that just repeat what Borla says without question, <laughs> without checking his facts. And people died. And let's not forget a lot that of they people all, died and in they inhumane also, ways. Oh, yeah. And, and many, many of which have not been. Unattended uh, by human beings because recorded by any sort of system that can capture that data. And the, with the systems that do exist in place, they pretty much stopped counting at this point. All right. So let's check out this next clip and put this into the record. Then we'll let's not forget real quick. Real quick. Recently. I just want to say this too. They also said it was going to be two shots only if you're Pfizer, Moderna, or one shot if you're J&J. That was also the narrative. Oh, yeah. so no, no boosters. Don't have to worry about that. Anyways, just like the pursuit of autonomy, the pursuit of being fully vaxxed will, you know, it's a lifelong pursuit. One is with integrity. The other one is an immune system by prescription. So. All right, let's check it out. Thanks for being with us this morning on this you know, one year anniversary, Mark. Uh, you know, and you have this amazing vaccine and more data coming out this morning from real world use in Israel. And, and I honestly had to check this stat Look multiple that. times to make real sure world I understand data. it. 94% effectiveness in preventing asymptomatic infection on the ground there in Israel. Tell us about what you're finding there and what this means for stopping this virus. No, thank, thank you, Megan. It is a great opportunity, I think, that in this day of the first anniversary of the declaration of pandemic, we do have a message of hope coming from a country where they have vaccinated almost uh, 
like it's actually on Monday, 5 million of their people might look small number for, for Israelis. That means that they have vaccinated more than 55% of the total population, more than almost 80% of the eligible population, 16 and above, which is the vaccine. The data basically are telling us three things, I would say, May. The first is that they're confirming the efficacy. Actually, the efficacy so far in Israel is coming at uh, 97%, and that is not uh, efficacy only against deaths or hospitalizations, but also on uh, mild disease. So everything, all three measures, mild disease, hospitalizations, and deaths are north of 97% in real-world efficacy with millions of people vaccinated. The second, and as you pointed out, likely most important of all, it is that uh, the data are demonstrating 94% uh, efficacy on asymptomatic. This is, means that 94% protection against you getting infected, even if you don't have the disease. Um, this is extremely important, uh, not particularly for you because you will not have the disease, but for society. Because uh, the asymptomatic uh, carriers, the asymptomatic patients, are the ones that they are uh, spreading the disease mainly. Boom. So this uh, is the right first there? time that the ones that they are uh, spreading the disease mainly. So this uh, is the first time that we were expecting to have something uh, good in terms of uh, preventing asymptomatic. But uh, this is the first time that we are coming with a confirmation of a real world evidence study of that magnitude. And of course, we never expected that high number, 94%. All right, go ahead, pause it. And so, like, also, I remember uh, Nazis did some real-world experiments there on hygiene back in the day. Yeah, hygiene. Real-world experimentation means you're doing it on people, and I don't think they said, hey, 5 million people, will you consent to be experimented on because we don't know what this thing does yet. I don't think that people in Israel got so that So you mean there's no memo. informed consent? Oh, uh, they're part of a massive experiment? Because real-world data is just a euphemism for an ongoing uh, experiment scientific experiment that's all that really is it means the science is still ongoing it's actually happening real time that's all they're not doing it behind it is real it's out there in the world it's, in the it's breathing, it's breathing. Was, well, some of them actually stop breathing two weeks ago we played the european committee uh you know uh, that was questioning pfizer and the vaccine manufacturers the the representative i think for pfizer was either pfizer or moderna was like yeah we have tons of real world data Get her name, but we played. Yeah, that the was show. the doctor yeah. at the end, and they had the woman from Pfizer prior to that said, "No, we didn't test it on anything before. Mm -hmm, right, we put it in people. We're doing real world testing, doing real time. We'll catch up on the science later. That's how <laughs> science is done. Come on, Nuremberg, hashtag Nuremberg trials. Come on, it must be really nice when all all the regulatory hurdles are conveniently." So it does down. seem like he said, you know, it's going to stop some transmission or something like that. So let's see. Let's see where the next one is. Maybe asymptomatic. Uh, so, so I'm just wondering if yeah. they're measuring this as 94% effective against asymptomatic, how are they testing it? If it's asymptomatic, how are they verifying it? If it's asymptomatic, they're just uh, they like, had, well, we they think had it the COVID COVID virus. Yeah. They had the COVID virus email from inside the body of the mm -hmm. asymptomatic people. Cause I looked at that column or on the, the data spreadsheets. No, Pfizer disclosed <laughs> that I lifted the black lines off everything. I can read everything <laughs> behind <laughs> there. Sure. And they, they basically, yeah, they, they define their methods uh, of how they did that. No. <clears throat> it's all that CT value. All well, those tests. I wonder, it's a good point, though. Yeah, what they do, like if a PCR test, someone's like, well, I don't feel sick. And it's like, well, you're technically tested positive for COVID. So you're an asymptomatic carrier now. 
something like that i imagine went down it's like when your car has asymptomatic problems it works fine it's large epidemiological studies it's just like a big questionnaire like you know you get so you get maybe an antigen test done rapid test or a pcr rapid test and they ask you like hey how you feel and say hey i don't feel sick and it's like well you tested positive you're in that category now check mark look and then they can put on john topkins website and show like around the world like oh look at the cases out of control everywhere everyone's got covid yeah here's a story it's like it's like an it's like uh the musical rent but instead of aids it's covid i don't know if that's fair but you know everyone <laughs> has Every, aids everyone has <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh shit all right so i want to go to this oh, uh well pfizer to Pfizer to quadruple the price of COVID boosters after CDC approval. And then we'll cover the CDC approval of uh, putting a recommendation for children. Cause basically they know before they release it, nothing about what this is going to do, but they tell you it's all sorts of effective. And then they wait for real world data to tell them, Oh, it doesn't stop transmission. Then two years later, after you've made important medical decisions for you and your family, uh, Ben Shapiro tells you, Oh, they lied. Oh, sorry. We didn't know that. But this I'm shocked that he did that this week. I, I want to see that on this. Yeah, we're going to watch those clips, too. His wife, so the doctor, let's... didn't warn him? His wife, the doctor. <laughs> did you guys know that? My, my very hot wife. My very hot wife. That's a pretty good impression. Doctor. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's go to the uh, the Pfizer to quadruple the price of their super effective product that people definitely had informed consent before not purchasing. And it's safe and effective. 94, 95, It's just a semantic argument of what safe I mean, and effective means in 2022 versus what it meant in 2016 or I don't understand why they just don't say it's 110% effective. Dude, they I mean, why, why stop at 100? Why stop Dude, at 97? I think why, why stop? Fauci's closing like, campaign big. should be like as, it should be like effective as fuck. I think they just go effective <laughs> AF, effective yeah. AF, uh, mic drop it. Is it mm-hmm. effective? Effective uh. as fuck. <laughs> Just leave the room. No, dude. We just if he turns around, it's on the back of his shirt and just walks out. It's a marketing opportunity for sure. Mm -hmm. All right, let's get fact up and learn about how they're going to quadruple the price of their non-working product because you know, capitalism. So the CDC just approved adding COVID shots to vaccine schedules. I think that means for kids. We're going to talk about that in another segment. Kids are at almost zero risk from COVID. So what do you th- why do you think they're doing that? And guess what they did right after that? Right after that, CDC approved adding COVID to the shots for vaccine schedules. Boom, Pfizer is going to hike up their price of their vaccine. Shh. It went from 30 bucks to 110 to 130 dollars per dose. It's actually working the opposite of how capitalism is supposed to work, right? Because less people are taking the shot now. No, people aren't taking the shots. They have the United States government bought all these millions of doses and like nobody's taking them, right? Mm -hmm. So that's just a welfare to big pharma, right? They're just giving them money for vaccines that nobody's taking. And so when the demand goes down, the price is supposed to go down. 
Demand goes down, they jack the price up. Because well, you know why? Who pays this? The government and insurance companies. So they're jacking that price up. Pfizer Inc. expects to roughly quadruple the price of its COVID-19 vaccine to about $110 to $130 per dose after the U.S. government's current purchase program expires. Pfizer executive Angela Lucan said on Thursday, Lucan said she expects the vaccine currently provided for free to all by the government and that made Pfizer $100 billion, so it's not free will be made available at no cost to people who have private insurance or government paid insurance. And they just get to jack up that price from 30 bucks to 130 bucks. Why is that? Why why not why not $230? Why not $530? How do they get to do that? Why do they just get to randomly set a number that makes them a hundred billion dollars? Shouldn't Pfizer just make a billion dollars off the vaccines? Why are they making a hundred billion? Shouldn't they just be, why, why are they allowed to do that? They just get to set their price. So that's, that's a high price if they made $100 billion in a year and a half off of their vaccines. They're, they're really overcharging for that vaccine. Why, why, do, why are they allowed to charge that? Why doesn't the government say, we're not going to pay you that? We're gonna, we'll let you make a profit, but not $100 billion. We'll let you make, how about just a billion? Do you know how much $12 billion is? $12 billion is what all the recording music makes in the United States. Every, in a whole year, every piece of recorded music that earns money, they generates $12 billion a year in the United States. So you know how much they're making? A hundred billion. Woo. Do you know how much power that gives you? That gives you enough power to buy everybody in local and state government and federal government and everybody in the media. That's how much money they're making. And nobody will. No, they're not going to do a segment like this on MSNBC or CNN or Fox News. They're not going to do a segment like this telling the truth about what's happening. Because they're funded by Big Pharma to the tune of 70 percent. Reuters earlier, Reuters, by the way, completely captured by Big Pharma, they said Thursday reported that Wall Street was expecting such price hikes due to a weak demand for COVID vaccines. That's not how capitalism works. You don't raise the price when demand goes down. Why do they get to do that? Because they own the government. Big Pharma is corrupted the government. Big Pharma, Big Pharma, the biggest criminals in the world. They put asbestos in baby powder. They got half the country hooked on heroin. They sold you heart medicine that made your, gave you a heart attack. And they knew it. Those people are now raising the price of their vaccine that people don't want to take anymore. That's not how it's supposed to work unless you're the mafia. And they are. Big Pharma is the mafia. And Rachel Maddow, Chris Hayes, Anderson Cooper are their bitches. I, I love this. It's it's insane. This is ins- like com- this is like watching the mafia operate. They're doing it right out in the open, and still my friends won't criticize this. Still like, my friends anyone- in comedy don't want you to do your own research. Still my friends, go look at their channels. Not one fucking video about big pharma. Not one. Go ahead, Jackson. Um, this right out in the open. You don't have to be an investigator to see this. No. You read Economics 1 
and what what is it? I mean, we're uh, supposedly we have a free market, but here they're telling you, well, demand is low, so they're going to jack their prices beyond belief, so they meet for, for uh, revenue forecasts, not so they make money, so they meet revenue forecasts. You can tell who's posing a real issue for the Biden administration and who's getting the you know BJ under the table from the Biden administration when you look at this and you compare it to what Biden's saying about you know the energy companies right now, the energy companies who he's blaming for the energy crisis on, and he's saying, well, they need to lower their rates. They need to stop doing these stock buybacks. Local gas stations need to stop jacking their prices. Why isn't he saying any of that stuff about Pfizer Pfizer or Moderna or any of these other companies who are jacking their uh, rates for vaccines that no one's taking? So that, so the reason, so I'm going to read this paragraph to you again. Reuters earlier on Thursday reported that Wall Street was expecting such price hikes due to weak demand for COVID vaccines, which meant vaccine makers would need to hike prices to meet revenue forecasts for 2023 and beyond. That That's the only reason. So we just have to quadruple our price because we had a forecast. That's how it works. No, that's not how it works. That's how it works if you're corrupt and you're a mafia. And they are. And our government is 100% corrupted and bought by Big Pharma. So that's what that's how that works. So and the way Reuters writes this, can uh, can you find out who wrote this? Who's the person? Watch it be staff or something. Yeah. So the way they write it is for you to to seem that that makes sense. Do you see how they wrote it? It says, oh, no, Wall Street was expecting this. So that means, oh, this is how it works. And if Wall Street was expecting it. Too big to fail. Wall Street was expecting that the government's completely corrupted. And so is Big Pharma. And they would do this criminal thing. That's that they could have said that. That's not what they said. They made it seem like this is normal. Reuters tried to make this seem like it is normal. This is not normal. This is the exact opposite of how capitalism works. And that's why it's criminal. And that's why it's corrupt. Did you find out who wrote no, this article yet? Not yet. We're okay. still looking. Okay. The U.S. government currently pays 30 bucks a dose. In 2023, the market is expected to move to private insurance after the U.S. public health emergency expires. How do they know it's going to expire in 2023? How do they know that the emergency, by the way, the emergency, a lot of people are saying, has been over for quite a while. Now, that's not what the local health authorities say, so I'm just telling you that's what people are saying. That's not the truth. Of course, we're in a big emergency still. Otherwise, why would they get their emergency use authorization? Don't you feel like we're in a big emergency? Uh, so does the emergency use authorization expire along with the public health emergency? We are confident that the U.S. price point, price point for a vaccine, that's how that's when they're talking, that the price point of the COVID-19 vaccines reflects its overall cost effectiveness and ensures the price will not be a barrier for act. So you just jack it up from 30 to one hundred and thirty dollars. It's not going to be a barrier. It is not yet clear what kind of access people without health insurance will have to the vaccine. I'm going to guess none unless the government buys it for them. Michael Michael Ehrman. Oh, Michael Ehrman wrote this. Michael Ehrman, big pharma money, 
coming into Michael Ehrman's pockets. Nice. Pfizer said it expects the COVID-19 market to be about the size of the flu shot market on an annual basis for adults. But the pediatric market would take longer to build. The pediatric, they're going to have to build the pediatric market for COVID-19 shots. I don't, I guess, I, I don't know what I, how much I can say right now because YouTube will take my channel down. But I, I, I think the people who work at Big Pharma should be in jail. That's what I think. I'm not allowed to say anything about this because they'll take my channel down. But the people from Big Pharma should be in jail. Uh, hey, you want to see another market that they're building? Pfizer's not the only business looking to take advantage of the growing pediatric market. You want to see who else is? I've been into fashion since I can remember. But one day, I had a stomachache so bad, I didn't want to do anything. The team at New York Presbyterian said it was actually my heart. It was severely swollen. Something called myocarditis. But doctors gave me medicines and used machines to control my heartbeat. They saved me. So now I can become the next great fashion designer. Hmm. There's your pediatric market. They invented a pediatric market for myocarditis. Isn't that fantastic? We have a new market. And they make it seem normal. Uh, and this is Reuters. Now, if you want to know, uh, the chairman of the Thomson Reuters Foundation, that's this guy, James C. Smith. He's the chairman of the Thomson Reuters Foundation. That's a London-based charity supported by Thomson Reuters. He's also the president and chief executive officer of Thomson Reuters, a provider of intelligent information for businesses and professionals from 2012 through March 2020. And its chief operating officer from September 2011 to December 2011. From September 2011 to December 2011. Sorry. Gee, I wonder why writers would write this as a straightforward business story, quoting a Pfizer executive throughout, but include no critiques of this massive price hike on a product with such a potential impact on public health. Why, why, why? Hmm. Mm hmm. Um. Anything you have to say about this, Jackson? The hair Hinkle. I just. I'm not surprised, and even if this dude isn't uh, whatever his name is, Thomas Hearn, even if they're not taking, um, you know, money from Big Pharma or anything like that, the no, problem. No, no. This guy is the chairman of. He's also on board of Pfizer. Oh, I'm talking about the author oh, of okay. the Reuters article. Right. Uh, what I was saying was, even if he's not taking money, these people are just so brainwashed. Uh, what What do they call it? It's um, they have a, they have a phrase for it. It's uh, cognitive dissonance or self censorship mm, or mass formation psychosis. Oh, okay. They just, it's just completely people are completely delusional now. You know, it's the same people that were writing for Reuters. Uh, a, a couple of years ago that the vaccine was going to do all these incredible things and was going to make sure that um, well, you can't even say that on YouTube anymore, but, you know, protect you entirely from COVID. Uh -huh. That's what they were saying. 
it comes out and they're writing stuff like he, he's written articles I see about how Biden's getting COVID after he's already been vaccinated. They're just so delusional to the lies that they tell, yet they tell new lies like every other month. Yeah, they just there's a new lie this month and then they push it and then they forget about the old lie that they told and they convince themselves they're doing good. They're fighting Trumpers. And if they have to lie to do it, that's worth it. It's one lie after another. And it is weird that this article, the person who wrote this article didn't push back about the price, the price spike. It just it made sense the way they wrote it. It made it make sense to the reader. No, no, Wall Street was expecting this. This is all. This is totally, which means it's okay. No, no, no. How about you put that in the article? And that's fucking bullshit. And that just goes to show you how criminal our establishment media is, along with big pharma and our government. Completely corrupted, 100%. (laughs) This guy, also chairman of... (laughs) It's something that you. All right, so he's making some pretty good points, and he's being hilarious as he's doing it. Now, there's a couple aspects of this. First off, doesn't it just come across like Jimmy's being held hostage, and this is like a, a video the terrorists are kind of like standing right there behind the camera, so he can't talk about them. Otherwise, they're like kill his channel. It's interesting, right? Mm-hmm. It's like uh, he's as Justin was saying. It's like he's standing on top of some rickety scaffolding, and the wrong words. Make it all fall down. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. But let's uh, let's say some wrong words because I find it interesting. Like, uh, let me just take it like this. Let me put it like this. Horse paste. Horse paste is something that was used to treat the COVID. And horse paste is something you would usually get from a veterinarian. Like Dr. Borla. See, when you guys are taking your mental decision to make in process and it's, you know, safe and effective and Dr. Borla from Pfizer, like he seems like a good guy. Did you ask what kind of doctor he might be? Did anyone in media tell you that he might be a veterinarian, which makes sense because they give a hell of a lot of prescriptions to animals because they can't talk back. They're just like instant customers. Woo! So Pfizer, Borla. Scamming the world, telling them it stops transmission, telling them they tested it, telling them it's safe and effective. And then all those other people who were like, yes, people like Ben Shapiro, who just repeated what Fauci and Borla and all these people said, safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective to their audiences, uh, helped to promote this utopian socialist technocratic mafia that is now in control of people's immune systems uh, in perpetuity. Sorry about that. Like, if you're a citizen of Israel, you've been used as a test case in a medical experiment that you now participate in, and they'll track you for the rest of your life because they're tracking you now. You're the real case, real-time examples that they're using. How real far world removed data is that? Real world evidence. How so. far removed is that from other medical experiments in history, which might be more notorious because they've had a long time for people to kind of learn about them, Right. Open air testing on an entire population based on their religious creed or ethnicity is wrong in any language you do it. And Borla used an entire country, monopolized. You can't try J&J and Moderna over there in Israel. You can only have Pfizer in that experiment. That was purely Pfizer. I think that was the only contract there, at least initially. I don't know if Moderna 
Do people in Israel not deserve human rights? It's just Pfizer. Have we not learned from the lessons of the Nazis? You would think of all people, but they would be the ones most uh, skeptical of hasty and mandated medical interventions, but they am not. Now, Justin, I know that, uh, I, see, I, I cheated. I walked through the studio behind me and I saw Justin had Borla's Wikipedia page up there. And in the first sentence of his article, it says he's a veterinarian. And I was like, wow, I had to learn that walking back from like going to the bathroom that Borla is a veterinarian. Nobody in the media brought that to us. Mm-hmm. I think it would be a bigger deal. Especially so with the Joe Rogan horse pace. Yeah, let's go. Read it. Read it up for him. Well, While we're looking, this is uh, just Wikipedia. Albert Borla is a Greek-American veterinarian and the chairman and chief executive officer of Pfizer, an American pharmaceutical company. Okay, so a couple other interesting things of note, uh, because in the first clip, the lady said, Dr. Yeah, he's a Thessalonian Borla. Jew, a Sephardic Jew. That's right. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit more context with it. But Borla earned a doctorate in the biotechnology of reproduction at the Aristotle University of the Thessaloniki's Veterinary School in 1985. So he he could have been, he could have so followed a, a career where when your dog gets sick, you go see Dr. Borla and he's going to give your dog, you know, some treatment. But no, he he took another path with his veterinary degree. He got in charge of Pfizer somehow, some way. That's the top doctor, everybody. That's the top doctor. Everyone's trusting. That's the top doctor. Fauci didn't tell you, hey, maybe, I don't know, Borla's a veterinarian. What does he know about this mRNA stuff and how it works in humans? Especially if it's Apparently a virus. Apparently he didn't. Specific. He tested on the population. Open yeah. air population testing. Yeah. And one last thing of note on this Wikipedia page. After he was awarded the Genesis Prize by Israeli President Isaac Herzog for his for his leadership in delivering the Pfizer BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine, he directed the 1 million prize to the Holocaust Education and the Holocaust Museum of Greece to be built in Thessaloniki. I think Kanye should go there. He needs to <laughs> go through Borla's museum. <laughs> All right, so that's interesting. Borla, horse pace, veterinarian. Jimmy Bain held hostage by some people at YouTube that he's scared to say about on the on the call. But you can, you know, he's like he's hinting at it, right? Say, like, hey, I can't say this in front of YouTube. But so the Nazis they called it what applied biology, right? And so now it's called precision medicine, sort of the same thing, because uh, the precision medicine is basically hmm. medicine tailored to your genetics specifically. But eugenics is so much shorter. Why don't but they use that phrase anymore? Oh, Hitler gave it a bad name. That's right. Uh-huh. I'm sorry. That that Nazis and that was just called applied biology. Well, that was an experiment on the German people that was being uh-huh. conducted at all levels Seems by like Western financiers who later had interesting things to do with Eisenhower and C.D. Jackson. Story for another time because we got a heavy duty show card here. All right. So now we're making our way out of this Pfizer, Borla, Quagmire section. There was one more clip. Uh, excess young deaths in the U.S. and U.K. Dr. John Campbell, who is not a veterinarian by the way. And I think it's going to be climate change, Tony. It's been really hot outside. That's myocarditis is just like, you know, the sun's doing it. So if we give money to Al Gore and uh, his, his coterie, you know, Pierre Trudeau's kid, Justin over there, if we give these people our money, 
they'll make the sun stop shining so hard on these kids' hearts, and there'll be no more myocard artists. And if you believe that, I'll tell you about Bill Gates's vaccine for polio in Africa that does the reverse thing that it's supposed to. But that qualifies him to also be, it also qualified him to be a pandemic leader. You know, invalid ethics saying you're trying to help people, but it's actually out there killing people. That's an invalid ethic. And Bill Gates doesn't mind that. And neither does uh, Tedros. Tedros, you know, he helped helped in some cholera doings in his Mm -hmm. country. And that's what qualified him. So it seems like he had a political bias and ethnic bias in his own country. And he let a lot of people die because of that. Yeah, cover up corruption that moves you on up in the chain of uh, thieves and psychopaths out there. Well, so Jimmy Dore said they're actually a mafia. So, well, there might be a super mafia out there. Well, gradations of mafia. So, stratus and striations of mafia. It's the next book. All right, so uh, let's go to this clip by Doctor John Coleman. He's going to tell us there's nothing to see here with these uh, these kids having heart attacks and dying. And there's nothing definitely connected to the CDC uh, or I'm sorry, CDC mandating Pfizer vaccine for kids and then raising the price four times, like getting paid more for death. They're like, we charge more now. So let's see Dr. John Coleman, who's not a veterinarian, explain this to the camel camel. Thank you. Campbell C words on my mind, Campbell, and who's not a veterinarian and he'll explain it to us. Warm welcome to this talk. It's Tuesday, the 25th of October. Now, I want to look at a few things today. The main one probably is going to be the uh, excess deaths in young people in the United States. The official data is showing a cumulative total of around about 17,000 excess deaths in zero uh, years to 24 year olds in the United States. So I want to look at that in a minute. But before we do that, I want to start off with some good news if you're a shareholder in Pfizer. Um, Pfizer expects to hike US COVID vaccine price to 110 to 130 dollars. Now that's correct, 110 to 130 dollars per dose. This is just quite uh, incredible. And yet this is what is reported by the Reuters news agency. One of the chief executives, uh, Pfizer, expects to roughly quadruple vaccine price. That's times four, isn't it? 110 to $130 per dose after the United States government current purchase scheme expires, currently paying around $30 per dose to Pfizer and German BioNTech. And Pfizer expects to market roughly about the same number of COVID shots as flu shots by the looks of it. So um, this is just quite, uh, <laughs> I was quite taken aback. You know, okay, inflation could be five or 10%, but given that their profits were already uh, higher than yours and mine, perhaps, um, to increase the price to 110 to $130 per shot is really quite staggering in my view. But what do I know about business? Now, um, distressing news yesterday, um, Mr. Tim uh, Goch, and we just extend our deepest uh, sympathies, uh, condolences to Tim and his family. Um, um, Tim Goch just died when he was presenting his radio show, believed to be heart attack. What probably happens here is for some reason the heart muscle just starts fluttering and it goes into what we call ventricular fibrillation. So... Sad to see that um, that has happened. 
Um, I suppose the slight consolation is he was doing what he loved doing, um, but nevertheless, a tragic death at the age of uh, 55. And that got me thinking about excess deaths in the young. Okay, 55 is middle-aged, but um, there is an excess death at pretty well all ages at the moment. Now, we've looked at some UK data. Just want to look at some UK data briefly here. Um, now, this is um, by age group. And, and again, this is the 0 to 24 age group. Now, why the government are using 0 to 24 uh, uh, years? I mean, that's a pretty big chunk of age ranges. I would have much preferred to see this broken down into, well, ideally, but by the year or certainly by the five year block. But why? The, so why are they doing that so crudely? Uh, we would like to see much more finesse in the data. But Anyway, so we've seen the excess deaths have been lower. So um, th th this is um, this is July 2021 here. And we see that basically the excess deaths are these on the top line. So we're seeing kind of more excess deaths here uh, than we are reductions uh, beneath here. So this, this is a trend towards increased excess deaths in the 0 to 24 year old age group in the UK. Now, this line here, uh, that line there is, is, is 20 per week, excess deaths per week. So we can see that some deaths, there's so, so some weeks, there's 5, 20 or, or even 30 excess deaths per week in this age group. Now, some of these could be COVID related, others will not be COVID related. Uh, I suspect the majority are not directly COVID infection related. And we really need a, a massive national inquiry into this. We need to know what's going on here. Uh, we've flagged this up many times on this channel. Mainstream media just not seem to be picking this up. Uh, but I find it personally quite alarming. And I've just blown up the last, uh, the last uh, that, that bit there on the end, I've just blown that up so we can kind of see what's been happening. Now, to be fair, this wasn't updated since uh, July, so it's a bit out of date. But we can see there's quite a lot of excess deaths here above the line and uh, weeks with lower excess deaths than we would expect uh, below the line. And of course, if we average these out, we find that there's much more excess deaths than we would expect in the 0 to 24 year old age range. And uh, I, I just renew my requests. We, we really need uh, a huge research project to find out what's going on on here and the, the lack of interest in this in mainstream media and um, and by the academic and scientific and government community just astounds me. Um, yet the data is here. Now in the United States, um, I'm going to show you some US data here as well because there has been a lot of excess deaths in the US. But this is the graphics here for excess deaths in all ages in the state. Now, what we're looking at here is these crosses here represent weeks when there was statistically higher deaths than we would uh, expect. This line here is the average we would expect in terms of deaths for the time of year. This line above it here um, is, is when deaths are statistically higher than we would expect. So we see that all these weeks where there's crosses here, the deaths are higher than we would expect for the time of year. And that data does go up to uh, the 1st of September, 
and we can see that there in color as well so we are seeing excess deaths in the states now um, quite a few of these um, are covid related of course the excess deaths in young people uh, are much lower than the excess deaths in older people but still it means that more people are dying than we would expect now this is the graphic here um, for the uh, 0 to 24 year old age range in the states and again rather poor that they don't differentiate it more but this line here is uh this line here is 18,000 that's 18,000 there and we can see that cumulatively the line has risen until we're around about the 17,000 uh, mark and it's really started rising about about here about 20 that's early uh, early 2020 when that started rising again some of these will be covid related but of course others won't so here we see the graphic here you might be able to see it more clearly so here's the here's the numbers here uh, for the uh, for the excess deaths that scale in thousands um low up until well when did it start going up really may june september um 2020 some of those of course will be covid related thankfully very few people in this age group have died from covid but there are some but it carries on uh, increasing as we see here um, now the projected line here um, quite how they get this going down i don't know because it's cumulative but um we are seeing quite a high cumulative numbers of excess deaths in the 0 to 24 year old age group in the united states about 17,000 for the country now these these are statistics of course now i wouldn't normally do this but th th this tragic young death is, is in the public domain so um i, I felt it was acceptable to do this um as as an example um it is in lots of news outlets that's the reason i'm doing it it's already public domain material and of course we, we give our great deep, deepest condolences to gwen and her family a 17 year old died peacefully in her sleep in june this is just awful um so sorry um after eating dinner with her parents and then going out with friends for a few hours and the reason this is so well known in the states is uh, congressman's uh, daughter sean caston who obviously i'd never heard of but is well known in the states and as i say in lots of uh, lots of public domain outlets so i just kind of wanted to take it away from the statistics to the individual tragedies of which there appears to have been seventeen thousand. uh father's party statement she'd just come home from an evening with friends went to bed and didn't wake up and the Castons themselves are saying uh, this past June our daughter Gwen Caston died of a sudden cardiac arrhythmia so it looks like this same thing that um, this um, that Tim died of in in the UK uh, Tim Tim uh, Tim Goch the uh, radio DJ who died at work yesterday um, tragic for individuals in layman's terms the family say she was fine and then her heart stopped healthy 22 healthy 22 2022 teenager so she'd been previously healthy she was fully vaccinated against uh, covid 
uh, had tested positive for COVID-19 uh, more than once in recent months, but never experienced any symptoms. And by all accounts, uh, a much loved uh, daughter. Absolutely, absolutely tragic. So when we look at a graph like this, and we say numbers like cumulative deaths are over well over sixteen, well over sixteen thousand, seventeen thousand. We have to put that in the context of the tragedy for uh, individual families. Now it looks like the projection that this is leveling off. Let's hope that is uh, correct. We can't go back, of course, because it's cumulative. But let's hope that this is. This is the case, but we are seeing excess deaths more than we would expect. And I think every person that has deceased um, should have the, uh, the dignity of a, of a formal diagnosis. And if that involves very large scale um, post-mortem studies, for example, I, th I think those resources need to be made available because we're talking about life and death of uh, many, many people here. These excess deaths are a real phenomenon. Go ahead and pause it. So Pfizer knows about these excess deaths because they've got the new myocarditis treatments for kids. You just saw that from the, the previous Borla the veterinarian stuff, right? And I'd also point out if they found out that Dr. Pierre Corey, the frontline workers, the doctors, FLCCC, if he was like a veteran, veterinarian they would have blown it up all they you know recommending you know hcq and ivermectin and veterinarian but when pfizer does it it's all okay brought to you by pfizer see how powerful that top-down marketing precipitation of corporate capitalism cartel capitalism is on an american society a global society not just america getting hurt by that guy and and the similar rhetoric from his coterie of fellow health reinforcers um, let's find really, the, uh, it's, it's okay. a bigger than that. So in a way, it's also just like the allegiance to the sort of ad vericundium of like the, the appeal to authority of these massive allopathic scientifically driven medicine, you know, that's, it's, it's part of that sort of Rockefeller initiative in the early 1910s and twenties and changing sort of the landscape and the way in which we approach medicine, removing it away from sort of a traditional free market clouding it with all these insurance issues and then also the uh, sort of scientific uh, hegemony on top of it, uh, stating that's the only way to utilize medicine moving forward. Of course, they're defining what the science is. So all other forms of medicine, unless it's defined by them, seems to not be legitimate. So it's also just, uh, you know, years and years of people sort of giving their belief over to the institution of scientific medicine allopathic care so it's a culmination we could talk about that in cancer we could talk about that in previous vaccines you know with the adjuvants and the old school technology we could talk about it with the pharmaceutical interventions in the drug market with the ssris and the 50s maois and then you know obviously with uh uh the uh, opiates I mean, it's just one thing after another, after another, after another with this institution. Yet people still believe. People still believe. Because it's a religion. It's not because science. It's, right. That's what I'm trying to point out. Right. And it's not a, it's not Borla's bad because he's a veterinarian. It's Borla's 
part of it is he's not he's not being properly yeah. represented to the public by the people bringing him into right. your home and that's the show hosts it's cnbc cnn msnbc all those places white house right 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 do you think the people of israel knew that he's a veterinarian when they got the synthetic gene experiment going on in their bodies that's not full disclosure i'm just saying so it's a minor point, but I think it is also at this point, after two years of everyone talking Borla, it's major that no one's talked about it before. And then I found out about it accidentally because I went through the rooms behind me. Yeah, technically, you know, the people it's probably come out and say, because Geert Vandenbosch, for example, is a veterinarian or he did uh, his vaccine research, which I think related to animals rather than humans. And that market's massive for inoculating farm animals. So right. there might be a reason as to why, you know, he'd be you know, specialized yeah, maybe Borla's got medicine. a reality and herd mentality. I don't know. We'll see. LD, I want to call an audible. I'd like to play the anomaly commentary on uh, Ben Shapiro's backtracking because it's relevant to this particular issue. And the only two years later, after no one had informed consent, does Ben Shapiro even consider that maybe the safe and effective was hook, line, and sinker, some sort of mousetrap situation? I know, mixed metaphors, but. It's a trap, said Admiral Akbar. And uh, let's go and see <clears throat> what was said in the past, what's being said now, why it's a big deal that there's uh, a big gap without logic, reason, or science, or fact to represent why that gap exists. Is that from um, this week or yes, sir. last week? It should be yeah. in my YouTube playlist from this week. <clears throat> I'll, I'll find it. I got it. The, from yesterday? Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. May I have another? Take it. No, I heard that's what uh, was going on at Paul Pelosi's when the police <laughs> rolled up. That you need a vax mandate in the workplace. He's still suing to get OSHA to force employees to get vaccinated. On what basis? On what basis? On the basis that the vaccines are supposed to stop transmission. But we now know that we were lied to by everyone. We were lied to. By the scientists, we were lied to by Pfizer, we were lied to by the government, we were lied to by the Biden administration, we were lied Pause to. It. Hey, what's Holy going on, shit, folks? Dude. So Ben Shapiro. Hold on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. If what he's saying right there, did you, if they, if, if he was lied to, if we were lied to by all these people, right? He just listed, boom, 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 boom. Might I humbly observe, Mr. Shapiro, that they conspired and they successfully, among all those people, kept it secret from you, your holiness of logic and reason. Just point it out, maybe, you know, because like, it's that Joe Rogan joke when he's like, dude, it was taught, he was taught, he was like, he was riffing on Enron and these accounting scandals. And he's like, dude, if they, you know, Bernie Madoff, and he's like, dude, if they can, if they can rip off smart people, they can definitely rip you off. There you have it. Keep rolling it. Let's see the analysis now that we put it in context. He's describing a conspiracy at all levels that kept it secret for two years for people to get misinformed and become part of the experiment. I think it's all coincidence theory, but that's Shapiro's claim that it's conspiracy because that's what he just laid out. Let's see if he can defend it. Shapiro, who once told people to get the vaccine dopes, is admitting he got lied to and switching his stance. It is now perfectly clear that we were lied to. That we were lied to and we were lied to at a very high level from very, very early on by both the vaccine companies in terms of the ability of the vaccine to prevent transmission and we were also lied to by our politicians who apparently knew better. 
and they just kept lying. Better late than never. I'm gonna play most of this full clip and react to it in live time. I haven't even seen most of it yet, and we're gonna talk about it. I appreciate Ben and his company for standing up against the COVID vaccine mandates, that was great, but he claims in this clip that he's anti-mandate. Is he really though? Because in February 2020, he justified some mandates and said it's equivalent to you poisoning a well downstream and you don't have the right to do that. Again, being anti-mandate, because I don't believe that the government should mandate this sort of stuff, because Again, the vaccine protects you once you take it yourself. Well, sure, it's 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 a river. You're polluting it. But the problem is that that pollution is affecting somebody else downstream. You don't have a right to do that, even in the most libertarian sort of vision of the world. Right. That would violate tort law. So the idea that you have to have a uh, an environmental regulation that dictates that sort of thing makes some sense when it comes to herd immunity for diseases where you require 100 percent of the population to be vaccinated in order to prevent the transmission of diseases to people who can't actually have the vaccine. Well, then you're talking about a, a, a non-libertarian principle being invoked. So I don't have a general problem with that. Hopefully he's changed his stance on that completely, not just on the covid vaccine mandates. But we're going to talk about it and react today. The show starts now. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Dream Rare podcast. I'm dressed like Voldemort today. I'm not really sure why I just threw on this hoodie, but we're going to talk about Ben Shapiro apologizing or at least rescinding his support for the COVID vaccine, saying he was lied to and saying we were lied to on all fronts. Real quick, before I play the clips, because I'm going to do a reaction, I actually haven't heard most of these clips, so it'll be my first time. I only heard a few of them. Uh, this was him during the pandemic. He said, in other words, get the vaccine dopes. I guess Elijah Schaefer had more insight than Ben Shapiro, so congrats, Elijah, on that. So he was calling people dopes and bullying them into getting the vaccine at the time. I just want to show you something that if Ben didn't show you, then something's wrong. You know, I, I show my audience this. I never told people what to do because I don't I'm not your doctor. So I don't want to be responsible if you get it and have a rare side effect. But this was obvious from the beginning. You can't sue Pfizer or Moderna if you have severe COVID vaccine side effects. The government likely won't compensate you either. So I tried to tell my whole people whether they got it or not. I mean, I you could ask me my opinion, but I said, make sure you know how this stuff works. Under the PrEP Act, they don't have to pay out. They have no liability for side effects, injuries, and deaths. We all knew about Pfizer, right? It doesn't mean they're everything they've ever done is bad, but they paid out a $2.3 billion criminal plea, one of the biggest ones, or not, if not the biggest one at the time they've got caught lying uh, using you know I would say improperly marketed medicines paying off doctors you name it these type of scandals are all over big pharma but Ben apparently had no idea about it and was bullying people into getting the vaccine calling you a dope and not even doing the science oh the science changed no Ben this was always obvious we always knew that you couldn't sue the manufacturer but I have clips later too to prove that Ben Shapiro not only didn't tell people about this stuff, but he almost downplayed it and made people believe in February of 2020 that, oh, the side effects, it's no big deal. Like, you know, that doesn't prove corruption or anything. So I have all those clips, all the proof. Let's get started. Live reaction. It is now perfectly clear that we were lied to, that we were lied to and we were lied to at a very high level from very, very early on by both the vaccine companies in terms of the ability of the vaccine to prevent transmission. And we were also lied to by our politicians who apparently knew better. And they just kept lying. And this is creating, you want to know why there's mistrust in the institutions? It would be because of this kind of stuff. It's because you have experts who are constantly telling the platonic lie to people. And people who want to have faith in the experts, because you, you have to use heuristics when it comes to the world, right? You can't study down on every single issue. When you go to the doctor, the reason you go to the doctor is because you didn't have time to go to medical school. And the reason you go to the plumber is because you didn't have time to learn to become a plumber. 
Yeah, I mean, who could have known that the government would lie to us? I mean, my name's Ben Shapiro, and I have to act just utterly shocked that government experts could lie to us. Wow, big pharma and government could lie to us together? No way. Who could have saw that coming besides everybody? And these pseudo-intellectual dummies like uh, Scott Adams, who blocked me on Twitter because I'm awesome and he's a loser, He's like, uh, no one could have predicted. I'm such a... It's like, Scott, your ego's bigger than your brain. That's the issue here. No one could have known that government and big pharma could lie. Have have you not paid attention to like all of human history, whether it go far back as the Tuskegee experiment or as recently as the Pfizer fine? Or, I mean, every month there's like products taken off the market, sunscreens, Johnson & Johnson, asbestos, baby powder lawsuit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But everyone it's like Ben Shapiro and Scott Adams are going to try to gaslight people and act like it was impossible to know. Um, I appreciate the apology. I appreciate the fact that Ben actually did with his company stand up to the covid mandates, which is should be appreciated. Thank you, Ben Shapiro and Daily Wire. But it's like it's too funny. Let's keep watching. The reason that you go to the mechanic is because you don't know how to take cars apart. You have to rely on the expertise of another human being who has spent an enormous, inordinate amount of time studying an issue. And then you have to sort of take that data and use it as best you can. Now, it can be that you distrust the data. It can be you don't trust the people who are giving you the data. But the big problem here is that when you have an entire institution like the scientific institutions or the government, and the government is issuing lies in order to get you to do a thing, and then it turns out that these things are lies, well, people's distrust in the institution is going to skyrocket, right? Again, if you outsource your plumbing to a plumber, and the plumber just keeps clogging the lines. At a certain point, you don't use that plumber anymore. If you keep taking your car to the mechanic and the mechanic drops the engine at the bottom of the car, you're not going to go to that mechanic ever, ever. I'm Ben Shapiro, and I, I mean, I just can't believe the government lied to me. I mean, I, I thought I was so sure. And as far as, the, as far as the data goes, if people follow my channel since 2020, I was following the data. It was clear in April that they were lying about Sweden. I even called out Donald Trump who said, oh, sweet, eh, Sweden should have locked down longer like Daddy Trump. And I'm like, ew, why is he telling people that lockdowns are good? And everybody got mad at me, but I'm like, that I was reading the data that you could act like the data just mysteriously changed maybe on some, you know, ink, but look at the, where's the data coming from? Oh, Pfizer's data, how many people did they test? Were they humans, were they rats? I mean, you know, you can do, look at this stuff. I, it was pretty obvious in my opinion the whole time, even based off the data. So he's gonna gaslight you and act like the data wasn't clear. Were you reading the data? Were you crunching the numbers like I was? Clearly not, because if you were, you would have saw some inconsistencies as early as March or April, but whatever, better late than never, I guess. Well, the same thing is true when it comes to the lies that we were apparently told about the ability of the vaccines to block transmission. So, for example, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a Pfizer executive who was being grilled by members of the ECR, the, the EU, the European Commission. And this Pfizer executive basically said that they never even tested the COVID jab to determine whether it controlled transmission or not. This is an astonishing acknowledgement. She was asked a question. And her name is Janine Small. She was pre Pfizer's president of international developed markets. She made this admission before the European Union Parliament. She was asked by European Union member of Parliament, Rob Roos, if the company tested the mRNA vaccine on stopping transmission before they rolled it out. And here is what she said. I'm going to play that clip in a second. But first, we've played it before, but we'll play it again. Um, the fact checkers are going after this and saying fact check. You know, they're trying to confuse people with fact checks. And the fact check says, if you read it, it says fact check 
Pfizer never claimed to test transmission. So if you got vaccinated, you're left wing, right wing, you thought it was going to stop transmission, maybe you got bullied into it. I don't care. But did it seem like they were telling you that you were getting it to stop transmission? It definitely seemed that way. I mean, I saw through their lies very early on, so I wasn't really following the propaganda and the lies. But most people think that they told them it was going to protect transmission because a lot of people actually did. But these fact checkers are coming out and they're not saying, oh, fact check, Pfizer actually did test transmission. They're lying. They're saying fact check. Yeah, Pfizer didn't test the transmission and have data to prove that. But we never said that. We never even told you that. How many billions of dollars were spent by celebrities, athletes, I mean, telling you all these things, and now they're going to sit back. So I just want people to know who were vaccinated, left wing, right wing, I don't care, that they're not claiming that Pfizer tested it. They're claiming that Pfizer never said they tested it. Is that the message that you got when they were pumping this into people's arms? Of course not. It's just... The, the fact checkers are professional PR operatives for big pharma Democrats and the global agenda, and they act like they're nonpartisan. It's such an absolute joke. Plus, the Pfizer COVID vaccine tested on stopping the transmission of the virus before it entered the market. If not, please say it clearly. If yes, are you willing to share the data with this committee? And I really want a straight answer, yes or no, and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Um, regarding the question around, um, did we know about stopping humanization before um, it's entered the market? No. Uh, these, um, you know, we had to really move at the speed of science to really understand what is taking place in the market. But you didn't move at the speed of science. In fact, it turns out that you were basically lying to the American public and to the global public. Speed of science, run, 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 profit, net profits for Pfizer, speed of science, $10 billion profit, $20 billion profit, we're running at the speed of science, we have no liability if you get injured, we'll just use our friends in big tech to act like it's not happening, speed of science. All you need to know about big pharma, whether it be Purdue Pharmaceuticals in the opioid crisis, whether it be Johnson & Johnson with the asbestos and the baby powder, whether it be Pfizer with one of the biggest criminal fines in this industry in modern history, all you need to know is they lie, they make money, they pay money, nobody ever gets arrested, and the money they paid wasn't as much as the money they made, so they just keep doing it. This isn't rocket science. Scott Adams can, you know, his head's so far up his rear end, he's looking into his butthole and he thinks he's on Mars or something with Elon Musk. It's like, they're going to gaslight you into believing that they're so much smarter than you because Ben Shapiro's like, I mumble, I, mum I mumble, like, I'm, I'm a mumbler, so I must be really, you're not smart, bro. You debate 17-year-old liberals in college campuses to make your, or 19-year-old, whatever, to make yourself look really smart. You're actually dumb or you're fake or both. I don't know. But like, all I'm trying to say is I appreciate the apology. I appreciate you standing up to the mandates. But don't let Scott Adams, or as they call him, Clot Adams nowadays, or, you know, Ben Shark Piro or, you know, Gwen Shapiro. Don't let them convince you that this wasn't possible to figure out early on. It absolutely was. And thousands of us knew this, reported this, and accurately pointed out the flaws in the data in 2020. So it's not a competition, but. All right. So the question on the table is whether or not the companies themselves, the government or other nonprofits advertised the functionality, the functionality of the injections to be stopping of transmission. They're confused about it. So let me see if I can help disambiguate this situation. 
mandating people to get the vaccine for work. For an example, a lot of, a lot of people got fired because they didn't take the, the vaccine. New York state judge just said they're going to reinstate people who got fired for that. That's not going to happen either. So that's like a false hope, fake news type situation out there. The people that got into uh, unemployment because they wouldn't take that vaccine did so because those corporations and those governmental entities and the corporate entities all said, well, you have to stop transmission to grandma, to the elderly, to other people who are immunocompromised. And that's the prime reason, because it's not like any of those entities really care about the individual. It's about who you could hurt inadvertently by not having the shot. And that was the peer pressure used to get people to take the injection. And that's why uh, families weren't meeting for holidays. Did I freeze up on the Zoom? No, no it's just good. on my end. Um, families can't be together for the holidays unless you're completely vaccinated. All that stuff that Fauci said, the stuff that Collins said, the stuff that Gates said, the stuff that all these groups we're pushing out there alongside Borla, the veterinarian, was inaccurate. And so I do believe what Ben Shapiro said at the beginning is accurate, that all those groups got together, they colluded, they lied. It's in the emails, it's in the evidence, it's in the, the grant filings, all this stuff. That They were doing this. They precipitated the pandemic on the world, and then they made their bones and got rich profiting from everybody's calamity and not being prepared for that situation. And now they're continuing to have people's immune system on subscription for the rest of their lives for whatever Pfizer wants to charge next quarter for your immune system. Brought to you by Pfizer. So that's a, that's a lot of upbeat, uplifting news from <clears throat> that end of the spectrum. Yeah. He's, he's made, I remember early on uh, to click on, and to see what you know someone like he was saying there's a couple other types like him and he was encouraging everyone to go get vaccinated he was vaccinated his wife his family his father his grandmother his father and his mother so forth and so on he was encouraging everyone in his uh business to get vaccinated i will give him the only give him the same amount of credit uh that i forget what the individual's name was who's critiquing him but yeah i mean like they did stand up to the mandates they did file a lawsuit you know, they do have unvaccinated people at his corporation. So but you're I'll, telling I'll, me that you're, he's ex Shapiro is expecting us to believe that when de Blasio's eating the burger and fries and saying, oh, look at this, you get this if you get vaccinated. Like he really yeah, thought that was on the up and up. He's, he's a useful idiot. Yeah, I'm not. So I'm not. I'm just going to make. So the bigger point is like for a long time, he's made the argument. It's a very poor argument. It's an argument I've addressed a number of time on the town, number of times on the town hall and at least multiple times on the show now, just that. He makes the, the age-old argument that you don't have the right to infect and harm someone else. So they all were operating under the pretense that it must have been then proven to be effective against transmission. Uh, transmission. Now, the, according to Borla that we played earlier, that was based on real-world data because uh, that's what he said. That was from the data from Israel that was coming out from the mass experimentation, uh, or I mean vaccination. <laughs> See how those Freudian slips work? Uh, happened in that country, but that was after supposed to be safe and effective with the speedy trials and the relative risk assessment, not absolute risk. They did the trials at the speed of science, which means they just skipped them and went to the public. Right. And so, I mean, with that, it wouldn't be enough time to even show that it would stop transmission with that very quick real world data. And of course, all the other side effects that they're not commenting on, or does it actually permanently affect DNA and all these other issues? Um, you know, he just, took it carte blanche 
So I want to go to this next clip. Uh, mass vax or vax mass murder forecast ramps up. John Bound, I've heard of him before. I think it's coming from the Bandot video Infowars crew. I have not seen this video. Uh, let's check out uh, John Bound's recent report on the same topic we've been talking about. Researchers at Boston University have created a new strain of COVID-19 that has an 80% kill rate in humanized mice. According to the preprint, quote, we generated chimeric recombinant SARS-CoV-2 encoding the S gene of Omicron in the backbone of an ancestral SARS-CoV-2 isolate and compared this virus with the natural circulating Omicron variant. Essentially, after an estimated 20 million people have died so far and 2.2 billion have been injured by the COVID vaccines, American virologists at Boston University are making chimeric SARS viruses even more deadly. So joining us now to talk more about this, Dr. Monica Gandhi, professor of medicine and associate division chief of infectious diseases at UCSF. So they wanted to see if it was the spike protein mutations that made it less virulent by sticking the spike protein of COVID-19 Omicron onto the ancestral strain. And then they found that whatever the ancestral strain had over here beyond the spike protein, that was what was leading to virulence because this is a very deadly strain and it's very transmissible both. It has all the worst things going for it uh, in terms of causing disease. So I have to say I'm a little bit worried um, that this is created and I think point proven, let's destroy this now. How concerned should Americans be about a possible lab leak? The WHO has been very clear that we needed to have been more careful during this pandemic. They actually said, we have to investigate, we have to ensure that all biosafety procedures when people were working with coronaviruses, scientists were working with coronaviruses in labs were followed. And that is the right approach. We can't not, we can't keep on kind of fooling with um, viruses and make them more deadly. It has to be done very, very carefully. While mRNAs will be added to the food supply to genetically depopulate civilization. You can actually order these um, DNA sequences online. Uh, there's AdGene is offering them and thermoscientific and biolabs. You, they literally will send it to you. You order it and they send it to you via email. They're using artificial genetic sequences, right? And they have to delete certain genes in the human um, genome, and then they code uh, whatever the messenger RNA is coded with. And we know all of them are coded with this green fluorescent protein. All right. So, what is, is the goal? Inter- what is, What is the goal here? They are changing the human species. Um, attempting to genetically modify humans and treating humans like animals. In particular, the green fluorescent protein, which comes from the firefly, that means they are actually turning people into um, hybridized humans with insect DNA. So the NIH Um, is admitting to this cloning technology. Yes. The Deagle forecast has predicted global depopulation of 50 to 80 percent by 2025. Deagle's forecast is shrouded in mystery as to its use by the government, but WikiLeaks documents revealed that it was legitimately used as a reference material in a Stratfor report on the technological capabilities of the North People's Republic of Korea. 17 0.1% more people dying in the first half of 2022 in Australia 
than we would expect. And this is the same for other countries. Uh, as a funeral director, I'm seeing a massive increase in death rate exclusively in young jab recipients. Do you know how many children I've had in that have died from COVID? Have a guess. None, not a single one, neither of any of my colleagues. This is an agenda, and I would have never believed, I was never into conspiracy, never. Um, I left there knowing that they know, they know, and they're going to push on. You're committing murder, you're being complicit in mass murder and hiding it. Uh, yes, um, the vote passed 15 zeros, or 15-4, no against. Excellent, thank you. And we have to make sure that we're ready uh, because there will be another pandemic. What we really want to educate people about here at Iron City Pest is, is rodents and the threat that they carry. For those with eyes to see and ears to hear, America is blatantly under attack. John Bound reporting. Always pleasant to see the uplifting news and the sunny, bright attitude from InfoWars on the latest ongoings. It's not easy to make light of what the globalists are doing. I mean, it's mass murder, genocide meets Nuremberg trials without uh, anyone prosecuting. They're just meeting and getting it on with the American public, with the world public. So as we head into uh, this next clip, I want to just go to the the Brian Wilson. Will Boston be the new Wuhan? Because it ties in with that report. Hmm. Um, the experimentation, let's say, let's say maybe this Boston thing's not really going on. Okay, no big deal. But what if it is? What if this type of chimeric gain-of-function work is being done, not in Wuhan, but in the United States, and it's being done such that, like, oh, oops, we weren't supposed to print that. Oops, we weren't supposed to tell you guys about that. We should be more careful because of reasons. So it's uh, it's interesting, and hopefully, like, I, I don't I don't think these experiments should be done anywhere. It's not that it's better that it's done in Wuhan or Ukraine. But it definitely shouldn't be done in a major population center like Boston. But right? Wuhan's bigger major population center. So, yeah, I mean, they're doing it in major population centers. They're probably doing it in both places and many more major population centers around the world for all that we know about. I mean, like, there's, you know, have really it on some deserted island where if it escapes the think. island, you got four hours to deal with the plane or the boat or a couple of days or something. But you put you it in Boston think. and it's gone before you even know it's out, right. just like it happened in Wuhan. And the evidence shows that the, the COVID-19 was out at the time they were doing Event 201. And the guy who's running Chinese CDCs at the Event 201 meeting. Mm-hmm. We're going to see parts of that tonight because we're going to get to the real Dr. Fauci documentary for intermission. But we got a couple things to do before we can get to that part. So let's go ahead to this uh, Brian Wilson report. And then uh, I'll probably just go to uh, part of that Jackson report before we head into uh, our, our guest yeah, and, yeah, and the intermission. Just... I would say for the Jackson report, we'll just. I sorry, I started the timestamp from a little bit of the JP Sears when he does the live sort of uh, newscast. So I thought yeah, right was on. Good. And then we'll and just play as much as possible. It's a long Jackson report. Yeah, it, there might be some redund- redundancies yeah. in what we've already covered, and so. we do have to get to the guest and to the intermission. So let's uh, let's get to this Brian Wilson, not of the Beach Boys, but from Infowars, and let's uh, let's see what this next report holds for our knowledge base. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
Will Boston be the new Wuhan? Working at Boston University's National Infectious Diseases Laboratories, one of 13 biosafety level 4 labs in the US, a team of researchers from across the country released a study they conducted where they extracted Omicron spike protein, the feature that made this particular COVID variant more infectious than the others, and attached its spike protein to the original COVID strain that escaped from Wuhan, China. Quote, we generated chimeric recombinant SARS-CoV-2 isolate and compared this virus with the naturally circulating Omicron variant. Are they trying to create a new virus for an even deadlier pandemic? Or do they just enjoy playing with fire? They found that the new virus they created in their lab more efficiently replicates in cell lines when compared to the natural Omicron, essentially creating a virus that is both very infectious and very aggressive, combining the worst traits of the original COVID with its variant Omicron, before presumably accidentally releasing their new science project onto the world for this COVID season. The researchers infected mice in the lab with their newly created COVID chimera. Quote, in mice, while Omicron causes mild, non-fatal infection, the Omicron S-carrying virus inflicts severe diseases with a mortality rate of 80%. In other words, they killed pretty much all the mice. Why are they making COVID variants that are more deadly than previous strains? The Boston scientists also looked at their hybrid strain's effect on human lung cells that were grown in the lab. Their study shows that the new strain they created produced five times more viral particles than the original Omicron. Quote, we next expanded our studies to lung cells, which are a major viral replication site in patients with severe COVID-19. Among the AMA-S, their new virus, and Omicron, the former, meaning their newly created chimera, yielded about a five-fold higher infectious viral teeter, meaning there were more viral particles from replication. However, in a statement issued by the university in response to public outrage upon learning of their research project, they claimed that their chimeric strain was less dangerous than the original strain. And, like Anthony Fauci, they even deny that their experiment can be classified as gain-of-function. Quote, This research is not gain-of-function research. It did not amplify the SARS-CoV-2 strain or make it more dangerous. In fact, this research made the virus replicate less. So even though they were conducting textbook gain-of-function research, they say they weren't. So they weren't. And they claim the research didn't make a more dangerous virus that replicated more, even though it produced five times more viral particles in human lung cells. But don't worry, because biosafety level 4 labs are safe, and nothing in history has ever escaped from them. Except, of course, for COVID. Looks like Boston is right on track to become the next pandemic's Wuhan. This is Brian Wilson with Infowars.com. Again, powerful sunshine, rainbows and unicorns coming from Infowars over there. <laughs> because, you know, it's people, very uplifting on Bandai video. Always. People want to believe what they see on the nightly news. And when they saw it on the Internet that this happened, their nightly news in Boston gaslit them and said, no, 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 no. They, these people on the Internet got it wrong. They can't read the studies. 
they don't know what they're saying and uh it actually uh it's really it's really not not a thing the equivocation on gain of function is hilarious the fact they're still if you want to see those clips if you go to last week's preview of the show so you know when i do the intro of the show it later gets edited and joshua actually cuts clips in there that pertain to what i'm saying what happened in the week in grand theft world history so in last week's preview for the show it's like 20 minutes long in there are the clips of both dr john campbell campbell Campbell. Uh, refuting the nightly news from like Boston saying there's nothing to see here. The people on the internet don't know how to read, but clearly I was paying attention. Brian, Brian Wilson right there, not at the beach boys. Uh, he said words that came from that research paper, mm-hmm. chimeric recombinant MRNA. Yeah. They used the, with these things and that they, they took the spike protein 80%. Right. So that wasn't like excerpt lifting in an inaccurate or hyperbolized way. He was just reading what's in the document. And the people at the news station, it turns out, can't be trusted to read those documents. It's more aggressive. It replicated more quickly. But apparently, it doesn't replicate that quickly. And it's less deadly, according to them. And then Instead they- of looking for a cure, that whole place is dedicated to finding out, like, how can we make it more dangerous? Apparently. I just love the way they equivocate on. I don't love it, but I think I find it just hilarious how they equivocate on gain of function. It's that just reminds me so much. How many ignorant people Fauci have such in front of high paying jobs? Yeah. Fascinating part of our culture. That is, you know, it's like they're competing for the Darwin Awards over there. We can make it dumber. So look, if it doesn't gain the type of function we expect, then it's not really gain of function. If it just replicates more fat more quickly, but it doesn't hurt people as badly, that's not really gain of function. Yeah, it hurts like, people more badly, but it doesn't replicate as much. So that doesn't that's not really gain of function. If so it doesn't like reflect they, on the party, it doesn't exist. Tony. I mean, geez, I, so has true, true gain of function ever been really tried? Is that where we're at? I think the issue is they're afraid to actually define. Well, we have a definition of gain of function. We know what it is. They just keep changing it, which is why I taught definition in my logic course. So if anyone's interested, they can get that. All right. So uh, let's hit a little bit of this Jackson report. And it's going to start off with JP Sears live in Del Big Tree's studio at the High Wire, doing a little bit of his uh, news guy presentation. And then it cuts into uh, Jackson report. We'll get some more nutrition, nutritious information to cap off this subject before moving to uh, a bit of a words of wisdom from our guest as well as tonight's big time intermission that uh is from the real dr fauci documentary all right so let's go to this clip and we'll be right back <laughs> um i'll take it from here Del. okay that's uh, nice suit by the way thank you fbi get them <laughs> it's about time the mainstream media infiltrated the high wire <laughs> Welcome to We Lie To You News. Tonight we'll be invading your mind with lies you can trust, which is only for your protection. Trust us. And today's segment is brought to you by Pfizer. And in absolutely no conflict of interest that we're willing to acknowledge, our top story today is about Pfizer. We're learning that Pfizer contributed to the $61.8 million in donations raised for Biden's inauguration. But as many are just now finding out, 
the company is catching some backlash. Why is that? Well, dangerous free-thinking morons believe there's corruption involved where Pfizer makes big money donations to Biden administration, who then tries to mandate Pfizer's vaccines to millions of Americans. But is there corruption? I think the answer you'll be coerced into believing at the end of our three points of Pfizer innocence special report tonight will be known. Let's dive headfirst into the shallow end of that pool. Point number one, Pfizer, who's paid the largest criminal fine in US history, makes life-saving vaccines and they just wanna help people and save lives. And uh, $2.3 billion is the exact amount they've had to pay on that criminal fine. Point number two of Pfizer's innocence. They, along with their good friends at the FDA, tried to conceal their vaccine safety data from the public for 75 years. And if you don't think about it, wouldn't you just wanna think that if they had something to hide, they'd want people to know about it sooner? So they wouldn't ask for so long. <laughs> That's very normal behavior. Just like the next time you're pulled over in your car and the highway patrolman says, let me see your license and registration. Just tell them you'll be happy to hand it over in 75 years. Should go pretty well. Third point of Pfizer's innocence. As you know, several weeks ago while testifying before the European Union, a Pfizer executive admitted that the company has never tested their vaccine to see if it stops transmission. This is placed on top of their already solid foundation of a house of cards, where it's also been proven that their vaccine also doesn't stop infection. <laughs> but miscarriages, heart attacks in young people, sudden death. <laughs> well, Pfizer's not liable for any of this. So legally speaking, who cares, right? These vaccines are safe and effective. Trust us. <laughs> this just in, 80 young doctors in Canada have died since the vaccine mandate started. Well, upon investigation, which probably isn't gonna happen, I don't think they'll find anything unusual about those unusual deaths. It was probably just a nasty case of sudden adult death syndrome going around. So in conclusion, is Pfizer corrupt? Absolutely not, they're innocent. All they wanted to do was throw Biden a beautiful inauguration party that he probably doesn't remember. And they just wanna help you too. Pfizer is not, this, not in this for the money. They don't even care about that. Oh, also Pfizer just raised the price of their vaccines by 400%. All hail Pfizer. That's it for tonight's news. These have been lies you can trust. But remember, that only works if you comply. <laughs> now let's throw it over to the Jackson Report. Oh, oh my God, Jeffrey Jackson? I'm such a big... All right, all right, all right. I think we get the idea. I don't want you to steal the seat forever. J.P. Sears, everybody, fantastic. 
And make sure that you check out his show. Please censor this.com. Please censor this.com. Don't miss this. You're going to laugh your butt off. It's a great way to introduce those friends that haven't been able to wake up yet, to pull them out of that mass formation. Go ahead and get a copy of Please Censor This at pleasecensorthis.com. We love JP Sears. Awesome having him here today. Thanks, JP. All right, Jeffrey, I know that it's time. This is going to be a strange transition as we move out of comedy news into actual news. So what's affecting us in the world today? Yes, interesting transition indeed. So we have a conspicuous level of a seasonal childhood illness. This is RSV, respiratory syncytial virus. It, it appears to be happening out of season again. Take a look at this news. All right. The alarming rise in the number of children hospitalized with respiratory illnesses. Pediatric hospitals across the nation are seeing record-setting occupancy levels. Children with RSV overwhelming hospitals nationwide, pushing emergency centers to the brink. The surge, so severe, one children's hospital in Connecticut is now using temporary units to handle their patients. RSV is not a new virus, but this spike in the rate of infections is certainly new. Hospitals in at least 34 states now are reporting the surge in children sick with the virus. The common complaint with RSV is a runny nose, cough, fever. Really high fevers, difficulty breathing. It's a lot of work to breathe. He would cough until he vomited. But in certain individuals, when it goes from the upper respiratory tract mm -hmm. into the lungs, it can actually cause more severe disease. RSV cases typically peak in December to mid-February. But this month, the hospital has more RSV cases than any other respiratory illness, including COVID. My big worry coming into this winter is that we could have a convergence of RSV and flu and COVID and other respiratory viruses. Okay. So, so to be clear, when we talk about RSV, just on, on top of this, it's really not an issue for adults. It's a fairly mild virus, but the concern mm -hmm. has always been, you know, infants, young children getting RSV, right? I mean, that's... Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, young children that really haven't been exposed to it, not, not having that natural immunity, but it is seasonal. We see it every year. And understand, to frame this story a little bit moving into it, you know, we're, we're looking at a lot of different angles here. The fear of COVID has essentially died down. The vaccination uptake has been dismal in children. And we do know that in, Jan in early uh, 2023, HHS has said that the vaccination market, the mRNA COVID vaccination market is going to the free market. So no more government subsidies. Mm -hmm. So we have also been seeing this push to add the COVID vaccine to the flu jab. So we're seeing all these factors and what great way to drum up some fear around that would be to show a lot of RSV or a lot of flu cases and really focus on that and scare people. And we know that fear is, is the tactic that has been used for the last two years. We know that from the, the behind the scenes documents from the Spy B UK um, nudge groups, they use fear. So, you know, just putting that out there, perspective before we go through these headlines, there's a lot of narratives that are at play here. And we're kind of just jumping into this investigating. So the it idea, I mean, really, it, COVID doesn't, it seems to have lost its fear value and its hooks in humanity. Nobody's getting the booster anymore. The vaccines are sitting on shelves. But they're thinking if we package this in flu and RSV, maybe we can make people afraid of RSV and flu and get them in there and get the vaccines. I mean, you know, whether or not that's the case, it, it certainly is mm -hmm. one of the possibilities of why we're suddenly seeing the news as dramatic as it is, because we've watched the news be used 
as this propaganda machine for selling what is now a vaccine that didn't really work all around the world. Right, right. Okay. So let's let's jump into these headlines just to okay. give an idea of maybe what's going on out there. So San Diego um, getting hit kind of hard with this. Uh, here's the headline. Nearly 40 percent of students absent at San Diego school as wave of illness signals fierce flu season. Wow. Now, it says flu season there, but you start reading into the article and they say, well, everyone tested negative for covid. So it's either flu or RSV, but we really don't know for sure. But then you look at the hospitals just down the way. This is the headline here. Hundreds of children hospitalized with RSV in San Diego. So you can kind of maybe guess where that's going. Virginia, similar headlines. Nearly half of students at Virginia High School are absent with flu-like symptoms, district says. Alabama, similar situation. Austinville Elementary going virtual after RSV flu outbreaks. It says in there, according to a release from Decatur City Schools, nearly 100 students are out sick and 17 were sent home today due to an illness. On top of that, almost 30% of staff at the school are out with fever and other symptoms. So, you know, I, I have to say, I mean, because we've looked at these headlines and, and we get so used to like crazy dramatic headlines. But when I think about my childhood, I don't ever remember a school year where half the kids were not in the building or half the teachers. Right. I mean, I don't know in the audience, if you're out there, I, I just I, do you remember stories like this? I just don't remember stories like this. And flu was around then. RSV was around then. That is, it's really those are pretty shocking numbers. It's not like five percent, which would be a bad day. Five percent of the schools missing half the schools out like you're walking through empty halls uh, and, and they, they're not been sent home because they tested positive for COVID. They just have decided they're so sick they can't come to school. It's really bizarre. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And in North America, this is the seasonality of this RSV. So we're seeing a similar situation in Canada, mm. looking at those headlines of what to know about RSV, a virus surging among young children in Canada. And then in Quebec, same thing, soaring RSV rates in parts of Quebec lead national cases, strain hospital staff. Now, let's look at a study here because we talk about the seasonality and the Journal of Infectious Disease post, this was in 2018, mind you, before the pandemic. So we have uh, kind of uncorrupted data. They reported probably the most robust study on the seasonality, they looked at over two decades of data from all around the world. And let's look at this chart here from the study. And you can see, you know, at the top there, North America's in blue, May, June, June, July, July, August, there's not much going on with RSV. It's only at the bottom left, you see November to December, you see that, that orange, which is increasing RSV activity. And then December to January is when that seasonality happens. This has been the regular case for, for, for decades um, where, where RSV becomes the epidemic during that time. So that's, <clears throat> that's kind of the background. So let's go to the CDC now. So the CDC has been monitoring RSV. They have a pretty good monitoring system there. And let's look at their chart. So this is the National Trends Monitoring, and they have a chart here. Um, now that blue, you see that blue line, that's the yeah. antigen detection. So you can see last year it was, un <clears throat> excuse me, it was unseasonably early. It was in the summer, in fact, um, April, uh, March and April. And then the big month there was in May. You just see it shoot straight up. But then this year, April, May, you're seeing a rise again and same with September. So you're, you're, you're still seeing it in unseasonably early times, especially last year. Uh, so <clears throat> that leads us to question, what is going on? And so you know, and I want to point out, too, as I'm looking at this and I know the news to get through, but we are now talking about two separate viruses breaking free of their characterizations and their seasons 
all at the same time, right? I mean, coronavirus, same thing, always a winter illness. It's part of the cold and flu season every single year for like a century until we hit 20, you know, 2020 and 2021 and obviously coming into now. And now we're seeing as starting last year, this RSV suddenly, I mean, it's weird. It's like someone's got a remote control and suddenly viruses that have been working a certain way for like ever since the dawn of man are suddenly jumping out and changing how they acted. It defies reason that this would be driven just by the same nature that was driving it over, over all the time we've been on this planet. I don't know. I'm just putting it out there. One seemed, I mean, I thought it was ridiculous when I saw coronavirus in the middle of the summer, like spiking in the middle of the summer. We've never seen a cold in the middle of the summer. Now RSV is changing. Uh, we really got to start asking ourselves bo both things. As you said at the top, is this just hype? Is it manufactured? Or are we doing something that's affecting the actual natural course of these viruses? Right. And so what are the la what are the two big things that have been done over the last year as well? Number one is the vaccine. This is where we'll start leading this investigation. So in the clinical trials, was there any evidence that these, these vaccines were increasing RSV or respiratory diseases in mm. people that took them? Let's look at Moderna's vaccine. This is the EUA. This is on the FDA's website, Moderna COVID-19 vaccine pediatric EUA. This is their decision uh, memorandum. So we look at some of the data. This is in two to five-year-olds. This is what they say. Within 28 days after vaccination, some respiratory tract-related infections were reported with greater frequency in the mRNA-1273, that's Moderna's uh, vaccine group, than in the placebo group. Events of pneumonia were reported by 0.3% and 0% of mRNA-1273 and placebo recipients, respectively. And then respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, infection was reported by 0.4% and less than 0.1% of mRNA-1273 and placebo recipients, respectively. So two to five-year-olds, you're seeing an so increase. So four times, four times the amount of uh, RSV in the vaccinated group compared to the unvaccinated group that hadn't received it. Right. And remember, these are these mm. kids, these are this age group of these kids that are really, you know, out of school right now. Let's look at the six to 11 year olds. Same um, information data set, same sheet from Moderna. This is within 28 days after vaccination. Some respiratory tract infections related uh, uh, patients were reported more frequently in the vaccine group compared to the placebo group, such as respiratory syncytial virus infections, 0.3% versus 0%, and upper respiratory tract infection, 3.9% versus 2.5%. So you're giving a shot to kids that's increasing their upper respiratory tract infections by, you know, with RSV quite a bit, actually. And so yeah. that's, that's Moderna's. So let's look at Pfizer's. Pfizer's trial data, you know, we go in and out of this all the time. This is their six month to four year old th third dose uh, division mem uh, memo. This is from the FDA again. And this is for the booster. We talk about serious adverse events, SAEs. It says, SAEs reported in the BNT162B2 group included RSV bronchiolitis, five participants. Then it goes on to say, uh, serious adverse events reported in the placebo group included bronchiolitis and RSV bronchiolitis, three participants. So you have five in the in the vaccine group and three in the placebo group. So again, across the board with Pfizer and Moderna, you're seeing an increase in RSV after the shot. So this led us to say, uh, we went to our lawyers at ICANN and we had them send a letter to CDC director, Rochelle Walensky. This is that letter, it was just sent. 
uh, regarding increased rate of respiratory syncytial virus RSV in children who receive COVID-19 vaccine. And it says in part, given the CDC's robust and ongoing data collection among those tested for and positive for RSV, please let us know the percent of children who have tested positive for RSV who have had who have received a COVID-19 vaccine prior to their RSV diagnosis. Really important right, information. Very simply put, when 40% of a school went you know, out of the school, did we test them to see if those that got RSV had gotten the COVID vaccine and compared that to the amount that had not gotten the COVID vaccine? I mean, this is such critical science. And as we said at the very top of the show, the CDC loves to approach versus the scientific method. They like the head in the sand method, which is let's don't ask any of the obvious questions. Like, why do we suddenly have outbreaks of RSV beyond anything we've ever seen before? Could it possibly be that injection that we know lowers the immune system and showed within 28 days an increase in RSV. And by the way, folks, I know these seem like small numbers, point something. That's all the numbers that they forced this vaccine on you. The death rate of COVID was 0.27%, okay? So they act like out of control and say everyone needs to lock down over an issue that killed 0.27% of people. So we should be alarmed at 0.3% or 0.4% or these, you know, these numbers as we're seeing them. But I also want to point this out. They only looked at it for 28 days. What if the fact is that slowly your immune system just gets more and more overpowered by this vaccine and can't work? And now we see half 50 percent, which is what we're seeing in these schools. Is it possible that the 40 or 50 percent that are leaving the school happen to be going through that because of the vaccination? Look, we don't know. But what's curious is why no one in media and no one at the CDC is asking the most obvious question. I always say this. If you get food poisoning, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you're vomiting. It's coming out of, you know, every horror orifice in your body, what's the first question you ask yourself? What did I eat last night? When we start seeing RSV outbreaks like we've never seen before, we should ask ourselves, what did we do this year that we never did with these kids any year before? Right. And so that leads us to the second point. The other thing we did with these kids was, despite what you're hearing in the media, this is the lockdown apology tour where everyone from Fauci to Ja are saying, well, we never locked down schools. We wanted these open. So, But regardless of that, CNN is running headlines like this. They're calling it an immunity gap. Pandemic immunity gap is probably behind surge in RSV cases, scientists say. And they're saying this immunity gap was created by the pandemic behaviors. So again, it's this languaging, not the lockdowns, but the pandemic behaviors, those same behaviors that caused a mental health crisis and drops in math and reading scores and everything else. But they're saying because they kept these kids at school, they didn't have a chance to develop natural immunity. They had the masks on. This is another possible avenue for this. So this I mean, is something shows you that's- how desperate they are to protect the vaccine because the vaccine should be the obvious. If, if And by the way, if you're going to look at lockdowns, Shouldn't you also be looking at vaccines? Vaccines are affecting the immune system that would be blocking RSV. The immune system isn't working against RSV. Why would that be? But it's amazing they'll throw themselves under the bus under masking and and lockdowns saying, well, they were effective because the kids didn't catch the viruses they would normally catch, the mild versions. And they really had a year off from interaction with bacteria and viruses. So their immune systems have dropped down because as we've been saying on this show, folks, you need to be in constant contact with the viruses and bacteria in your world. That's how you always stay immune. It's like not working out and letting all of your muscles atrophy. You can't let your immune system atrophy. Jeffrey, I was on a plane recently, and and it's getting harder and harder when I see those two people on the plane wearing the mask, healthy people wearing masks. They're the only ones doing it. I want to say you do know that if that vaccine works, which all the science says it doesn't, but if it works, it's doing you a disservice because right now you're hiding from Omicron. You're not breathing in Omicron, which is a super mild version of coronavirus, but it is 
still mutating and there could be a future variant that gets really deadly. And had you caught Omicron when it gave you almost no symptoms, you would have an immunity that would probably stand up or at least reduce the symptoms of that future more deadly variant. But you're taking yourself, you're arresting your immune system, you're arrested development on your immune system, just like they're now telling everyone in, in newspapers we did to our kids. People wear masks. You are doing this to yourself. If the max vaccine, I mean, if the mask works, you are blocking your body from continuing to stay up to speed in this race to stay healthy in a world that is, by the way, always filled with bacterias and viruses. Right. And so what did the ASIP committee do last week that we reported on? They recommended the vaccine, the childhood vaccine, uh, on the schedule. So what that does is it sets up, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, the Informed Consent Action Network has stated they will sue any yep. state that tries to add this to the schedule for entry for school kids to go to school. And you tweeted last week, a day before ASIP's, uh, ASIP's decision, this tweet here, and it says, the ASIP and CD at CDC is about to make a decision that will kill innocent children for no reason. Mark my words, this will be recorded in history as the moment the majority of Americans turned against the CDC. And then you ask them people to write a comment at the CDC. Well, we may not have to wait for history to play out because almost reflexively, governors started one by one to take a stand against what ASIP did. Here's the headline the here right after yeah. that happened. Growing number of governors reject COVID vaccines for school entry after CDC vote. And in there, it lists a bunch of governors, but we made a map of this just to give people a snapshot instead of reading it for them. And really, there's about 28 states that have not committed to not adding this to schedules. Other states in red and blue here, the red states already have laws, executive orders on the books over, from, over this past year stating that they will not uh, require COVID vaccines for kids as a, as a condition of school entry. The blue states there uh, are saying the governors have stepped up and said, we are not gonna mandate this. And what does that look like? Wow. Some of these governors took to Twitter right after that. This is Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds. She tweeted this. Under my watch, there will be no COVID vaccine mandates for kids, period. In fact, we signed a law that prevents it. It's the parents' decision, not the government's. Uh, Montana's governor, Greg Giaforte, I trust parents to raise their kids, he writes, and do what's best for their kids' health. On my watch, the state of Montana will not mandate the COVID vaccine. Fantastic. And this is really, I mean, we've really been waiting for politicians to step up and start talking like this. I mean, it happened just really overnight, uh, thanks to, unfortunately, the CDC and ASIP's recommendation. But looking at this, uh, uh, taking a view out here and looking at this from a bigger picture, we had ICANN, uh, the Informed Consent Action Network, we, we commissioned a national poll by a professional polling agency, it was McLaughlin and Associates, in September of 2022, right before this vote happened at ACIPT. And we asked some, some really pointed decisions here, and let's look at some of those answers. And you can find this poll at uh, ICANDecide.org or at the Highwire. Um, ICANN national poll results mixed on mandates, clear on medical freedom. So let's look at some of these results. So the first one here, it says, do you believe your rights were violated by government mandates and lockdowns during the recent COVID-19 pandemic? 44% said yes, which is massive. Remember, 15 days to slow the spread, that number probably would have been zero because everyone was yeah. was was complying, but it, it's rising and rising by each month and each year that those mandates were still on. So you have a voting block there and then six, uh, 50% said no, and then 6% uh, said don't know or refuse. Now, 
drilling down to the actual politics, let's talk about candidates. This is its next question. Are you more likely, it asks, or less likely to vote for a candidate who supports mass social distancing, vaccine, and testing mandates? 54% said they're more likely to. 33% said they are less likely to, which is, again, gigantic. Now we're talking about actual numbers at the voting booth. Mm. This is what perks up politicians and potential candidates' ears. This is what they want to see. They want to see these numbers, this growing, really, voting That's base. big. I mean, but, yeah, we, we can look at the, I mean, this is what I try to tell people. Stop looking at the people that are brainwashed, that 54%, to see 33% that are adamantly saying, absolutely, I will go against a candidate that says they will use those measures again. That's a, that's a voting block. That is a very large group of the population. Let's go ahead and pause it. So there might be a correlation between the uh, early rising of this childhood illness that's going around and the other mandatory things that have to be injected into young people for them to be in that surroundings uh, in the first place. So more to be learned on that front. And uh, as always, like you can watch Dell's whole show on Thursday afternoons. It goes on for like three hours. We can't play the entire show here inside of this podcast, but at least we're giving you some good reasons to go check it out and what you might learn uh, on a weekly basis if you were to tune in to the high wire. All right. So uh, in the interest of time and all the other juicy topics we have in the show card, um, Tony, first, did you have any comments on what we just heard from, from Dell? <clears throat> Not specifically. I mean, obviously, we had already presented this on the show before uh, the potential for the down regulation, if you will, of immune function due to the over specialization to certain types of viruses, in this case, SARS-CoV-2 with uh, the mRNA vaccines and the possibility that the body is really only now tailored for those that have decided to take that prescription uh, to fight off that, that type of virus and any other potential diseases caused by viruses they might be now more susceptible to because innate immune function might not operate the same way as it used to both innate and adaptive uh as both are going to be arguably very much compromised we talked about cd4 and cd8 numbers white blood cells we went over that got over a year ago so there's a lot of speculation that you know one of the big problems is that we're training the immune system just to focus on one thing and sort of uh, disassembling its natural defenses for dealing with all different sorts of bacteria and viruses. And now we're seeing an uprise in you know, respiratory syncytial virus for young children this early, uh, this severe. Like It's not just early, but it's also quite severe to have that many kids missing from school for that reason, that quickly, all happening that fast. That's curious and strange and very uh, disconcerting. So, I mean, that's just the general comment I would make to that. He also mentioned what I like to call the fear factor index that COVID had dropped off. People aren't scared of that anymore. Mm -hmm. We had the little uh, scare of civil war in between. And now it's just, you know, hyping up for World War Three and whatever they bring out for the elections. So the fear factor index, I think, is a lot more interesting than watching the stock markets. You can tell what's going to happen in the markets by where people's fear is being directed by mainstream media. All right. Um. In the interest in moving uh, the show forward, we do have a special guest. We pre-taped the interview, so we're going to play part of the interview so you can see why you'd want to go watch the interview in its entirety, either at Rockfin or Odyssey or at Bandot Video, all the various places where all of our clips get posted every week. So let's give you a taste. Uh, let's do, since it's 1.30 now, let's play the first half hour, 
and that gives people a, reckon, uh, a reason to go see the second half hour. Our special guest is Connor Boyack. We filmed it, I think, on Thursday. So you're going to hear a discussion, a wide-ranging discussion, all around the topics of freedom and why people like uh, he and I do what we do for a living, educating people for the solutions because we're already too well-versed in these problems. So let's get some solutions out there. Let's think solution-minded. And uh, even if you're not a parent who needs kids' uh, books to read at night on uh, topics that are going to be wholesome and substantial throughout the rest of their life, even if you're not in that market, he's uh, written probably 20 or 30 books. He's got something for your age group as well. He's a brilliant author. His name's Connor Boyack. Let's go to that uh, pre-taped interview and get a little sample of why you'd want to watch the whole thing. Welcome back to Grand Theft. Well, tonight's guest is author extraordinaire. His name's Connor Boyack. He's made many books for children. He also makes books for adults. We can get into that. Connor, how are you doing this evening? Great to see you. And thank you for making time in your schedule for sharing the wisdom about uh, why you do all these books and why you are such a prolific publisher of freedom-based intellectual content for young folks. Well, thank you for having me on. I'm excited to chat. And yeah, I got a fire in my belly for this stuff. So I, I look forward to talking with you about it. All right. So my first question is public school or homeschool? How did you come into this world and learn how to read and write? So I uh, was a graduate of the public fool system, as I like to call it. Uh, I grew up in San Diego. My mom apologizes to this day that I wasn't homeschooled. It wasn't really a thing in California in the 80s and early 90s. Uh, so she was never really exposed to it. And in retrospect, she wishes she would have. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I hated school. I cheated all the time, slept through class, uh, you know, really disliked. What's funny is that there were three subjects through school and then even into college that I did the worst in uh, English, history and economics. And uh, those are like the three subjects that I'm now most passionate about and prolific in. And so the world uh, has a sense of irony, it seems. But uh, but no, I, I really disliked school. I also appreciate the sense of irony and um, the fact that you're not up to speed on those things going through the public fool system. Then you write a book, the Tuttle Twins go to, you know, uh, Federal Reserve, Jekyll Island. Right. So you're discussing or, or Hayek's uh, Road to Serfdom. You're discussing these complex intellectual adult ideas in a way that parents can read them to their children and both learn together and have that experience for the rest of their life. So coming out of the public fool system and having cheated, I got a quick tangent. What was your favorite way to cheat? And I'll tell you mine. Uh, I, uh, I, even through college, I distinctly remember being at a, a test in college and I would uh, write in like mechanical pencil font size two. I mean, just super tiny text, all the key, you know, whatever information I needed. And I would fold that and I would uh, slip that tiny piece of paper into my belt buckle. Um, and so, cause it, at my university, they had a testing center, all the tests were done and they could like monitor everything and record everything. And it was a whole deal. And, uh, and I was able to evade capture with my little, uh, belt buckle folded piece of paper. That's pretty, that's pretty hardcore right there. All right. So mine was, uh, I had a TI calculator. This is before graphics calculators. If you write with a mechanical pencil on the inside of the back cover, generally you can't see it except at the right angle of reflection. And then when they came out with the graphics mm. calculator, which was like my first years of trig and calculus, I discovered you could put the equations in there. You could programming it, program them in there. And then I found by programming the equations in there, I didn't need to cheat and look at the, I didn't, I didn't find myself looking them up during the test because I had taken the time to put them in there. And then I kind of discovered, oh, you're going to do the work one way or the other. 
you're going to do one of, you know, you're trying to do it under duress while you're cheating, or you could just do it beforehand. And then I just kind of evolved into a better way of myself learning. That's great <laughs> system. All right. So now you get out of public full system. Did you go to college? Did you get a job? What was your path? So I did. Uh, I was on the conveyor belt. Uh, I was expected to go to college. It was the thing you do. I had no reason to question it. I got a degree, spent four years and a lot of money on a piece of paper I, in retrospect, did not need. No employer ever cared about. My path was uh, I was in web development. I created websites, learned computers, and I distinctly remember sitting in classes working uh, as a freelancer for clients on projects while in class, being taught by some professor who's 40 years older than me, and he has to brush up on the latest technology. Um, while I have the profit motive incentivizing me to go learn on Google the same stuff, and I'm sitting in a class learning from someone who isn't really the greatest authority figure, uh, things that the internet was freely uh, able to teach me. And, and I remember having those thoughts, never did they prompt any action. It was always just like, this is kind of dumb. And I would just tune out the teacher and work on my projects and earn money and pay down my debt. Uh, but, but no employer ever cared about my college uh, degree. Every, every employer only cares about your last job. And so it's always a question of really just getting the first job. And in my case, my first employer didn't care about the degree. They handed me a little worksheet and said, do you know what these things mean? And do you know how to do that? And I showed them my technical competence of building, you know, various HTML website stuff and passed their little exam of flying colors. And off I went to the races. They didn't care about if I knew biology or if I, you know, studied Plato or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, so in my case, it was, it was a waste of time. Uh, hence why I put together a book a couple of years ago called skip college to make the case for why most people don't need to go. But, uh, but yeah, that was my experience. All right. So I'm, I'm echoing your experience because, uh, I went through college. I found out during college, the degree I was getting was not going to help me do the thing I wanted to do. I learned to do it during college, started making money during college. I did get the degree, but I never had to use it for any of the jobs I got. And we hire a lot of people over the past several years. And we've never asked anyone about a college degree or any of that type of stuff. It's more like core competencies. Like, can you show up for yourself consistently and not quit on yourself? And if you could do that, then we could probably work and play well together and we can train you on what you need to know to get uh, this part done for this client, right? So you learned at an early age, earlier than most, because I teach adult, a lot of adults that are still learning this as well. So you learned at an early age, the value of being able to make your offer to the market. You made your offer to that web developer without even graduating, it sounds like, because you were pulling in client money while you were still working on your degree. Is that correct? Yeah, it was very much this slow effort because no one sat me down to translate. There was no interpreter to be like, here's what this means. Like, you're making money while in class, paying money to learn. To, like, no one really distilled that down to smack me in the head and say, like, maybe you can, you know, take a different action here. It was just these, like, organic experiences that was happening that, unfortunately for me, only later in life, in re you know, retrospect, did I realize what was going on. And so I feel like part of my work is to try to be that, like, planting warning signs along the conveyor belt. So parents or the kids themselves can be like, Hey, maybe consider something different here. There may be a different course of action. That's better for you, uh, both in the short and the long term. but without those warning signs, without like jarring people awake and really getting them to assess their situation, they'll just continue on the societal conveyor belt, uh, that leads to, you know, path to nowhere for a lot of the kids. So that's a lot of what I try to do is just plant those, you know, warning signs in the ground for, for people to encounter. Yeah, I think that's really worthwhile. I have a I have a friend and client who has a course called Test Drive Your Future, and it sounds like maybe 
we should uh, cross market because people who read your book, read your book would be interested in the course. People who take the course would be interested in your book. It would give them more than one point of reflection to consider. Cause I know a lot of times when families are considering it, the peer pressure and the indoctrination is so heavy that one little crack in the, the, the dam as it were, won't let the water through. But if they see it from multiple sources, if you see Seth Godin, you see Gatto, you see your book and you see like, you know, uh, a course that can help you make better decisions on a child's future, that's like a, like a storm coming together and it's a storm of creativity. It's a, st- a storm of freedom where the child gets their free will back possibly for the first time in their whole education career. So I think that's what, really important. What's interesting about what you're saying is I've, I've seen this true in marketing. It requires so many touches to get people to take action. And I've seen a lot of people get frustrated when they're like, Oh, I wrote that op-ed and no one responded. Or I, you know, I put up this website or I ran Facebook ads or I did a book club and, you know, Nothing happened. I ran for office. No one voted for me. And it's like, you know, my, my granddad, he would always use acronyms, you know, KTYL, know that you're loved. Like every, everything was an acronym. That was his thing. The one that I kind of remember and, and put in practice the most was PPPG. Persistence pays pretty good. And that for me has become a life motto because to, to get people to take action, you you do need to encounter them at different times in different ways so that they're kind of calorie preserving brain that's trying to preserve their scarce attention only for the things that matter decides to consciously pay attention to what you're doing. And it can take a while to kind of penetrate uh, people's minds and get them to really seriously focus on something because we're bombarded with inputs and, you know, advertisements and everything else. So a lot of what we do is how do we build sustainable marketing campaigns? Because the message matters. We know that the content can improve people's lives. We know that this stuff will make a positive impact for people. So we owe it to them to build a very sustainable plan to market to them in different ways at different times over a long term of period so that they finally, in our case, get the television's books, read as a family, have family discussions, and have amazing experiences together as a family. That means I have to be very proactive and diligent in saying I can't just put up a random Facebook ad and think that'll solve the world and I'll reach a ton of people. I have to build a marketing machine because I owe it to those people to figure out how I can sustainably market to a ton of people over a long uh, period of time. And so it's, it's required me as the graduate of the public full system who, you know, didn't have an entrepreneurial bone in my body in the early days to figure out a lot of this and learn marketing and human psychology and how, you know, and, and it's been very rewarding and fulfilling. And, and it's something I feel like a lot of us who are trying to be freedom fighters and spread the word and others, like we can't be a flash in the pan. We can't assess our impact based off of one little project. We have to keep at it and be here for the long term to really make a difference. Yeah. So starting off with that drip, drip, drip mentality of it might not any any day your given actions might not amount to a hill of beans, but over time, those drips do amount to substantial sea level changes in people's consciousness. Right. And what you're saying is like there's event, there's a lot of bombardment. You get events in your email and there's stuff going on today. And this is not a one time thing. This is not a one time interest. What you're saying is this is important enough to tell you a little bit about it every week for the next 18 years of your child's life, because from the time they're born to the time they leave your guardianship, basically you're responsible for helping them formulate these ideas without contradictions, to have understanding, to be able to, to measure their logic and reason against irrational reactions to the world that wants you to react. They need you to react. That's the, that's the realm of control. The, the assumptions where we don't ask the questions are the parts where they really get us. So to give young people the ability to see things, 
um, to, to like Aristotle said to, you know, if I pick up this pen, I don't have to become this pen. I could just observe it and then I can put it down, right? Not to become the things we observe right away, not to adopt them right away as our own beliefs, but to go out and uh, use our five senses to collect information from the environment. So by your recollection, learning how to kind of ad hoc do this consistently with little mentorship from your grandfather and these, uh, what was it? PPPG, right? Uh, well, uh, articulate that again. That's persistence pays pretty good. Persistence pays pretty good. Those types of ideas eventually codified and took you on your own unique path, right? You, you stopped kind of just doing the work that's offered out there for a paycheck. And you said, oh, I have something bigger that I see needs to be done in the world. I don't see any, anybody doing it to my specifications. Let's go put ourselves in the midst of that and become everything we need to know to do that at a level of excellence and to do that excellence and deliver that excellence consistently over years, which few people have the discipline to do. So from my background, when I was in college, I got into a franchise. I had a professional mentor that that was a great relationship. It was like explicit on purpose. I signed up. I went through the training, these sort of things. You did it on yourself, on, on your own, kind of learning how to get paid from the market. And then when did you make that right turn toward Albuquerque? as Bugs Bunny used to say, and uh, discover this whole new world of, of publishing and marketing and learning how to embrace sales. Because uh, a big thing most people deal with is aversion to sales and marketing. And I'm like, you're always going to be tied to a paycheck mentality then, that golden handcuffs. And you brought yourself out of that. So did you have entrepreneurs in your family? How did you get inspired to take that step? Where'd you get the courage? Well, for me, it, it kind of boils down to that old adage that when the student is ready, the mentor will appear. You know, and, and and we can teach kids and force them to learn. So it's going to go in one ear, out the other, pump and dump. You know, it's not meaningful to them. I, I, I talk at a lot of homeschool conferences and a lot of parent groups as well. And one of the common threads that I see is a frustration for parents that are like, why isn't my kid uh, willing to learn biology or, you know, calculus or, man, it's such a struggle to get them to do their, you know, math memorization. And like, you shouldn't force this stuff. They're not ready for it later in life. Like, let's say they want to go start an Etsy store and sell bracelets. Well, now they got to figure out e-commerce and money and budgeting and spreadsheets. And they will learn all of that in like one week yeah, when yeah. you could have tried to take four years through curriculum to cram this down their throats when it had no context. So don't be concerned that your kids aren't learning things when they need to recognize that as humans, when we have a motive, right, when we are motivated by a, a certain outcome, all the work that goes into achieving that is not drudgery. It is just essential. It's often enjoyable because it's all in pursuit of this uh, effort that we're trying to do. So I have this model called passion-driven education, where I, I think we need to reframe all of education around child's interests, because when we are motivated by something, we will consume all kinds of information. It is relevant to us. It's meaningful. When my son loves Pokemon and I'm like, hey, let me teach you about the business uh, behind Pokemon, or let's uh, help you learn how to illustrate or how animation works, or let's look at their, how they made their Pokemon website. Let's talk about HTML or graphic design. I can bring up any subject under the sun. And as long as it is tied to Pokemon in this example, my son is interested simply because I'm using a language that he is naturally curious about. I'm helping him better understand a world he wants to further explore, even if it's an adjacent topic, but it's, it's you know, remotely connected to Pokemon. And this was something I struggled with in the early years because I also, as a homeschool dad, I'm like, my kid's got to learn all the things. And, and then I'm realizing, no, I'm trying to push on them the same approach that I got in the public school system. I need to reframe this. And so I read a lot. I read a lot. And to your point, 
to your question, like for me, it was kind of a lonely journey. My mentors were really authors. It was reading, you know, marketing books, or it was reading, you know, John Taylor Gatto, or it was reading uh, psychology books and trying to get from a lot of different um, kind of expert sources, their input. I did not really have anyone on, in my life directly who uh, was that guide for me. It was uh, after college and then getting married and having my first kid, it was this intense period of study, self-education, uh, really to try and say, okay, I'm now articulating what my goals are. I now see kind of a path ahead that I want to go. I have no clue how to do that. Like I started a think tank a decade ago. I had no clue how to run a business or a nonprofit or how to fundraise or any of that. Um, but I had a motive. I had a desired outcome. And so all the learning that went into me being able to do that was amazing because it was, it was motivating. Every little step of progress was like, yeah, I'm doing it. Yeah, I'm doing it. And, uh, and I sucked in all kinds of information that that I otherwise, you know, would have hated. My, my mom uh, was back in San Diego where we grew up, uh, where I went to school. She ran into my eighth grade English teacher. And this is years later, right? Like 20 years later or whatever. And, uh, oh, you know, how's Connor doing? And I'm like, wait, she remembered me? Like, that's either a really good thing or a really bad thing that your eighth grade teacher, English teacher. So my mom at the time, I'd written like a dozen books and, oh, Connor's right. And her mind was just like, you know, like that does not compute because Connor was not the greatest of students. But again, for me, it was the, the outcome and the motivation. I want to make a change in the world. I want to change hearts, minds, and laws. I want to make a difference. I want to influence the political process. I want to you know, wake families up to the way the world actually works. And so because those are my goals, I figured out how to write well. I read a ton of books. I learned kind of through osmosis from good authors how to construct persuasive arguments. I blogged. I failed. I, I you know... But, but it was the motivation and I had to figure that out. And the big, biggest problem I have, and I'll, I'll end my rant here because I could be on the soapbox for a while. My biggest uh, concern I have with the modern schooling system is it's extremely demotivating for kids. We are suppressing their curiosity. We are not honoring their individuality. We're not letting them figure out what their path in life is. We're instead placing them on that conveyor belt where they have to be homogenized and conformed into the same predictable output as everyone else. And it leads to situations like mine where it's only later in life that I figure out what my path is, what my motivations are, and then all that learning kind of comes in super easy. For my kids, for other kids, I want to help them discover early on in the process, and it changes over time, but like, what are your motivations? What are your desires? And then let's build an educational experience around you that supports you and what your goals are. And that, that's where my like core passion is right now. Well, I think this conversation is therapeutic and uh, offering inspiration and optimization for parents right now. It's triaging their situation. Some of them haven't thought about any of these things, man. They don't know your books. They don't know your angle. They don't know what you figured out and mastered over the past decades. So to bring the story in a chronological order, you're at the part where you're figuring out your motivation and that motivation sends you on a like uh, unimpeded growth and flourishing exploration where you're able to follow your passion and you're figuring this stuff out on your own and you want to do this thing. So you decided that, and then you figure all these other things out along the way. You don't let it stop you. You made a decision. Then you're like, I just know how to learn stuff and I'm going to plug it in as I go. And I think that's very healthy. I think that's very natural. I think very few people ever get that chance in their lives, but along that way, you self-actualized, you found your life partner, you started a family, you started to shoulder that responsibility and not be withered and, and crushed from it, but you started getting bigger muscles and you started growing your brain and you started really focusing your motivations and your time and taking like full advantage of your 168 hours in a week. 
Can you describe that process? And, and was it like a, a personal social thing that triggered the motivation or was mm. it the motivation and everything else just came together because you're in the right mindset to see opportunity? What was like, what was that uh, critical igniting point for you? That's a great tantalizing question. I think as I reflect upon my life, what it is, is that I set big goals that created big challenges that manifested big gaps in my own ability and, and thinking and fortitude that set me down the path of saying, okay, like, how do I close those gaps? Uh, there, there's a concept in Ryan Holiday wrote this book, the, uh, the stoic guy, it's called uh, the obstacle is the way, mm -hmm. right? The, this concept that so often in life, we try and take the path of least resistance. We want the paycheck. We want the nine to five. We want the security blanket, the social safety net. We want the predictability, right? And, and we avoid these obstacles because entrepreneurship is hard, or I, I don't know the unknown too much risk, or I don't want to, you know, and, and, and I love this concept that the obstacle is the way to use your, your case about, you know, the muscles getting big and yeah. I'm really kind of bulking up or whatever. It's like, how do you do that? It's through resistance, right? You cannot bulk up without resistance. We get stronger in proportion with the obstacle that we're pushing against. And so what I tell my team is like, we have these massive boulders in place of where we're trying to go. We shouldn't be thinking about how we can like go around them and create a little path around them. Instead, it's let's push against that boulder. Let's figure out what it is about that obstacle that we can leverage into a strength because the more we push against it, the stronger we get to the point where then we have sufficient strength to move it out of the way. But then as we proceed down the path, we're stronger for it and we can accomplish more and go further faster. And so we should see that the obstacle is actually an opportunity. It identifies for us a potential weakness that we can really attack and leverage into a strength by really applying ourselves and trying to overcome it. So again, I, the challenge for me is I didn't really have anyone to sit me down and like a coach. I never thought about hiring a business coach or any of this kind of stuff. I was like stumbling through and getting little like bits like uh, from different books and YouTube videos or whatever. My, my process was very organic and hodgepodge to, to get here. But I was, I was like, you know, it's like panning for gold, right? It's a, it's a volume play. The more pans of dirt you get, the more specs you're going to find. So it really becomes this question of like, how much dirt can you get through this process to find all those specs of gold? For me, my, my journey was the volume play as well. It was watching tons of videos, reading tons of books, extracting little tidbits here and there until things were starting to click. And uh, only later did I figure out like, oh, there's this idea of like masterminds or business coaches mm -hmm. or other places where you can get like very focused um, you know, information to help you level up. And so now I've, I've got like, you know, two, two coaches that I have, I'm in like two other networking groups, I'm always trying to invest in myself, uh, rub shoulders with other people who are on similar wavelengths, because what's that concept? It's like, you're only, you're the sum of your five closest, you know, people that you associate with. And so really trying to say like, is my, are my social circles and my circumstances reflective of the big goals that I have? Well, if not, let me change who I'm, uh, who I'm around. Let me change the inputs that I'm taking into my brain, what my mindset is. Uh, it's a lot of that like work in yourself to figure out if I want to accomplish big things, what got you here won't get you there. And so I need to figure out what more I need to do and invest in myself to get there. It, it's a, it's a, I was on the phone uh, the other day with a CEO. I was telling them all the gold systems I use and all the thing. And he's like, you give me anxiety with all this stuff. But for me, it's like, again, I, I know what I'm trying to do. I know that these are massive goals to reach and teach millions of kids and change the world for the better. And it requires me to 
go through that process of self-discovery. It requires me to overcome my weaknesses. It requires me to learn and be the best I can so that me and my team can accomplish those goals. I can't just like laze my way into success. I have to push against that boulder until I develop the strength to push it aside. So again, organic hodgepodge process for me, part of what I try to do with you know, coaching, mentorship, public speaking is accelerate that journey for other people and point them to like the key resources or books or just distill for them my own thoughts and learning. So hopefully I can accelerate someone else's journey. Yeah. I mean, the point you're making over and over is that if you want growth, you're going to have to go do some things that are uncomfortable, that make you anxious, that there's a lot of uncertainty, there might be risk involved. And once you trigger that complexity to say, I'm going to go learn about this thing or participate in this thing and learn along the way or do this, uh, uh, do the actions that event eventually lead you to a goal, right? So you're willing to trigger complexity and go into those unknown areas. And that's great. And then you, you said this word goal. And I want to break that open because with the idea of where you want to go comes all the steps and the accountability and these sort of internal disciplines that a lot of people who go through the public's full system, like we did, never had a chance to internalize and fortify. So at some point you started making goals. Do you remember when and how old you were when you started having goals and holding yourself accountable or having a coach hold you accountable? Uh, it was only about a year and a half ago. I long resisted goals. I hated new year's resolutions because my mom would make me go through that process and I'd forget about them. And every year it was always the same thing. What are you going to work on this year? Like I would forget within two weeks and I had no system. I had no, uh, also I didn't really see the value. I was just on my path organically, you know, living life. And I really didn't see the vision, but it was about a year and a half ago that I said, no, I, I joined all these networking groups. I, I got two coaches um, really, really, because I kind of stumbled into success in some ways. Like I've got a core set of skills and I, I, I'm pretty competent and good at what I do. And so great, I've had success, but then we went through a process, um, a year ago with our team to like, say, okay, what are the next three years look like? How are we going to level up? We followed a book uh, called vivid vision by Cameron Harold. Basically it's three-year goal planning, but like, how are you going to stretch yourself over the next three years? Um, and, and I'm like, okay, if I'm going to be part of this, if I'm going to help like grow this thing there, I can't just lollygag my way and continue to like poke, uh, at, at different issues. I've got to be very strategic. I have to be very intentional. I have to figure out who are the people that can help me accomplish these goals. What value for them can I create in their own life? So I'm not just saying, gimme, gimme, gimme. And, um, and really doing the work on my own mindset, because when you set that big goal, when you stand before this massive boulder, that's extremely intimidating. No wonder everyone wants to get the path of least resistance and, and go around the boulder. Who wants to like try and push against this thing for weeks and months on end? And so for me, it's that in, internal mindset of like, no, I, I've got to be willing to like face these head on. I got to be thankful for them, grateful for my obstacles because they present for me an opportunity to, uh, you know, analyze my own deficiencies, overcome them, work through them and become the better for it. And so I shouldn't avoid those things. I should see them as, as blessings and opportunities to improve. Um, that takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of, um, you know, external perspective from coaching and others who are on that similar type of path or journey to kind of share their own experience and like, oh yeah, okay, I want to take that little bit from him. And I, I like what that person said, customize my own process. So it's only been fairly recently, but I'll, I'll tell you, <clears throat> I'll tell you, I'm a big fan of having systems around your goals. I'm a, I read Atomic Habits, another fantastic book. I've incorporated a lot of that. Um, Tiny Habits is another good one. But again, just trying to uh, Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod is another one, like really starting your morning off on the right foot. Um, 
I, I set a, you know, I had a bunch of goals. One of them was I want to do 75 pushups. When I started, I could do eight, <laughs> you know, and, and now I can do 60. And, uh, and I actually have pecs for the first time, you know, in my life, like, wow. And I'm on my way to 75. But again, like, it's that intention of saying, like, what do I want to do? And then what am I going to sacrifice in order to accomplish those goals? I never really grew up this way. I didn't really have, other than the New Year's resolutions, I didn't have people in my life who were really helping me do this. And so even yesterday, I had lunch with a gentleman where we're brainstorming the idea of creating like a teen mentorship program to identify the young people across the country who really want to invest in themselves, apply themselves, get these lessons in an accelerated fashion from people who are already down the path. Uh, this stuff excites me because I didn't have that. And so I want to give back and be able to help other people uh, achieve the, the levels that they want. Do you think that Sisyphus was happy? Do you think it's a position like I'm being somewhat facetious. Some people look at Sisyphus and be like, oh man, that guy's got to do hard work all the time. It's always an uphill battle for him. And, it, you know, I see him as like, oh, that guy's building himself. He's a baller. He's out there. Vol- like no one's making him push that rock. He's doing it. Like it's an, it, it, it's a metaphor you can try on in one of many ways. And if you're in a victim mentality, you see it as maybe a victim reflection. And if you're someone who's into building your yourself mentally or physically or both, you might see it as like a rem- reminder of the daily challenge, right? I don't think I'm that smart today because I remember how much I learned since yesterday and I get up and I try to do all the hard things in front of me. And I believe that the obstacle is ob- obviously the path because all the best things in life are on the other side of those obstacles. And a lot of those obstacles are blocked by fear or misconceptions of what you think are hard work or what hard work is. I think hard work is fun when I'm directing it myself and I find meaning and substance in it. It's the thing I, I have the most vigor for. So these occasions in life to be able to trigger our complexity come about because people like you and me, we learned how to invest in ourselves over time and to say, oh, public full system, shame on you. University system, kind of shame on you. I have bigger and better things I want to do in the world. I'm going to go accumulate the knowledge, wisdom, experience, and skills I need to do those things and to, to achieve the goals. So you had this idea of goals. You didn't have formal accountability or coaching. You're making your way through your finding success, and that is its own reward on the other side of the hard work. And did that invigorate you and bring you optimism? Or was it like, ah, oh, this is okay, but there's some, some other calling in life? Did you ever have confusion over what your your meaning and your goals were? Well, I, I tell people that I'm a drug addict and, and I say, you know, my drug of choice is not the stuff that Hunter Biden is using or anything else crazy. My, my drug of choice is uh, dopamine. And so to answer your question from an early day, when I, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go back a ways. The thing that set me on this path of starting a think tank and the books and everything else was the raid against the yearning for Zion ranch in 2008, I believe it was 2007. Maybe this was a polygamous compound in Texas. Uh, the Warren Jeffs FLDS community, super skeezy kind of stuff. And there was a fraudulent tip, a uh, fake call that was placed that cops thought at the time was true that, you know, there was abuse happening. And so based on that false uh, tip, they invaded, you know, SWAT teams, guns, armored personnel, carrier tanks. I think there was a helicopter to just, they swarmed in. They took out all the kids uh, out of the whole community. They're like 400 plus kids, took them away from their moms, put them in the foster care system where there's drugs and sex abuse and, you know, kids getting impregnated and just all kinds of problems. They, they literally kidnapped these kids. They put them with, with these foster kids, these strangers for months before the, the moms could get them back. Um, and I remember watching this. I was, I was newly married, didn't have any kids. And I watched this all unfold. And I was like, this is a travesty of justice. Like 
don't want to in any way condone the alleged, you know, uh, corruption of this Warren Jeffs guy and child rights and everything else. Absolutely go after that. But all these kids to like just kidnap them and take them away from their moms. Like that's ridiculous. So I got really fired up. I, this is again, like 15 years ago before there were like online petitions and all these, you know, change.org and all these things. I started an online petition. And I called on, you know, whatever, the Texas governor, the FBI, whoever it was, like, you know, release the kids or send them back to their parents. And it was just like a spur of the moment thing. I was like, someone ought to do something. Oh, maybe that should be me. So I, I started speaking out. I got my first TV interview. I got interviewed by the local news that, that we had passed a thousand petition uh, signatures. I started getting all these letters from congressmen that I had written to. I mean, it was their staff writing that, obviously. But like, I'm starting to like get involved a little bit. Uh, I was blogging about this on, on a blog I used to have. People are swarming the comments with gratitude. A lot of them were like polygamous people all over the country who felt, uh, you know, misrepresented or that no one would stand up for them because it's kind of weird, right? And uh, and so they were thankful that someone would stand up. They were like, even if I didn't succeed at anything, they were just so grateful that someone was willing to fight for them. And, and that was like the first like hook for me of like, oh, wow, like I stood up and, and maybe I lost. But like I did it and people were grateful for it. And I have kind of a good skill here, you know, public speaking and technical, whatever, to set up a petition and a website and marketing and whatever. And, and so that was my first taste of it. And so fast forward 15 years, every day I'm getting texts and tweets and DMs and emails from parents, especially who are just so deeply grateful for our Tuttle Twins books and how they're impacting their kids, the conversations that they're having with their kids, the aha light bulb moments, the, the fact that the kids are now like way more, you know, uh, cognizant of what's going on in the world. And the parents feel like they can relate to their kids more and have these like amazing discussions. I, I get this every day and I'm addicted to that drug. And so your the answer to your question is this, is that like from that early day, I, I tasted what it was like to help other people. And to have a set of skills and develop a set of skills that would allow me to be of service to others who felt like no one was standing up for them. So a lot of our political work that we've done with our think tank, a lot of the laws that we've changed are catering to communities and businesses and, and industries and others that don't really have anyone fighting for them. That is what I love to do is standing up for the little guy. And, and I'm addicted to dopamine. I want it all day long, being able to impact people's lives. And like, who doesn't want that, right? We all do. And so I just feel very blessed and fortunate to be in a position where our work is making such a difference. And I have that direct feedback loop to our community where I'm, I'm hearing that and uh, it just motivates me every day to wake up. I'm fired up and ready to go because I crave more of it. Well, it's exciting because you found your calling. You got all these books. I want to start. Let me zoom out real quick. Tuttle twins in the law. They learn about the law. Now, why would, in my case, this is one of the first three books I bought for my son before he was born. I bought this, the trivium, the quadrivium. I was like, between this, you, you're, you're all set. Just read these three books, kid. When you're old enough, read these three books, you'll be all set. What would make you want to take uh, something as complex and uh, maybe even foreign to uh, modern readers as the law uh, and bring it to young people through their parents at story time via the Tuttle Twins? So I was running this think tank and my kids at the this time were five. And All right. So we start to talk about the books and why he writes the books and what's the content of the books and why should families have this content uh, within uh, their, the, their consciousness? Why should, why should a family understand, uh, you know, maybe the origins of the federal Frederick reserve? Bastiat. Yeah. He's got it. Well, Bastiat's the law. And then he's sure. got one of the Frederick federal Bastiat. reserve. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He has one. a bunch. 
on transhumanism and like, uh, you know, how they're planning the future and stuff like that. And it's conversational content. There's a story, there's a narrative, there's many layers to it. And then you can have good communication in the family. And he's like, he's giving you a starting point. It's not the end oh, yeah. point. It's not what you're supposed to think. It's what you could think about instead of all this other fluff. They're trying to push on people. These well, he does a great job. I, I page through some of them. Cause I saw the ones you had for Lucas when I was up there and yeah, he did a fantastic job of condensed distilling down, capturing the essence of whatever theme he's discussing in whatever book he's, uh, you know, we're diving into, but at the same time, he does a great job of uh, making it friendly for obviously like something that children can understand, but adults can also see the nuance of, and it helps to stimulate a conversation that needs to be had because that's the world in which we currently live. And it's the, the, the future only seems to be more and more of that. So we need to be aware of how to navigate it, understand it, you know, define what it is. And hopefully, you know, find solutions because it's ultimately going to be the future generations that are going to have to generate the solutions that help us get out of this mess. Um, we need to be, you know, the guideposts along the way to help those generations, help those young people uh, come into this knowledge at an earlier time and start, you know, raising that curiosity, that sort of dialectic in their own mind about what's happening. So. Yeah, and giving them something to counterbalance what they might be getting propagandized with at school. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, because we only played an excerpt of that pre-recorded interview, you didn't get to hear Connor's call to action. But basically, at the end, I'll give you the spoiler. He says, uh, TuttleTwins.com. And there, it's a great starting point for either the books or the behind the scenes and all the other things that goes on with Tuttle Twins World. There's a whole genre of uh children's writing that he's basically created and now is a, a market leader so uh is that what you have up there ld coincidentally look at that it's on screen so i encourage you to go watch the entire video with connor boyack we'll be publishing it out throughout this week uh on the various platforms so you can see that not tonight in the show but later this week you'll be able to see the entire interview and um i think that the concepts in there, like for him to take Atlas shrugged and some of these other books, like in, in it's one thing to make it intelligible to adults, right? Like that's a chore, but it seems like an impossible challenge. Hey, we're going to explain Atlas shrugged that like something the uh, high school kids could grasp. I think I could pull, I feel like I could pull off or myself or other, uh, Atlas shrugged might be a little bit easier than the law. Uh, well, both well, are very abstract, but the, at least the, uh, uh, Atlas Shrugged is in a story format, so you can yeah. sort of you can tailor down the story to something that's more amenable to a child. Whereas the law is pure abstraction, you know, it's just pure just philosophizing, if you will. Yeah, I also found it interesting that he he didn't take goal setting seriously until like two years ago, and he's already published like twenty books, like without <laughs> without goal structure. It's, it's sort of a subconscious goal. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Explicit telling other people, holding yourself accountable. It's a whole different thing mm -hmm. than just being a creator who says, My art is done. We'll put it out now. Right. right. So, uh, yeah, interesting entrepreneur with a really good substantial meaning purpose, uh, meaning and purpose. And I like how he makes big goals and then figures out yeah. how to go make it happen. So, I think, I think the other thing about goals, and it's important, it is, it's, I mean, it's my David Allen training from back. Like, it's, it's important to have those goals. Um, you have to have some sort of future vision. Um, but at the same time, it's not what, what goals allow us to do is take initiative to move towards a certain potential events. 
but so many things come up that may surprise us and may change our course of direction, may change our strategy. And we should also be open to that as well. Um, sometimes it's not always about reaching that one linear goal you had three years ago. Sometimes things change and that goal becomes something different and that's okay. And a lot of times you don't realize that until you set that first initial goal. It's by setting that first initial goal, then three years later, you're somewhere completely different, but you're just as successful. It's because you first set that initial goal. You don't, you don't know what's going to happen in life that might change that perspective strategy, might change your business plan. And but it's it's all about starting with that first initiative, and then let life sort of fall into place. You know. Well, from, I think goal making standpoint. also comes with self respect, mm-hmm. and learning how to like pick your spot you're trying to go to intentionally, right? And not being afraid of like the micro failures that lead you on that path through uh, through learning and experience and repetition through. Mm-hmm. And analyzing what just happened and how do we not have that happen again? All right, let's strengthen this. Let's take the step again and persisting. Yeah. Right. He also talked about the persistence despite resistance. He had the PPP PP, yeah. persistence pays pretty good. See, I it learned pays it. pretty good. Yeah. Well, it took me a couple. I, I like how he said one of the, my fit by my favorite thing he said was um, this idea of reaching an obstacle instead of going around it. I mean, I, I'm a fan of Eastern philosophy and a lot of times they talk about path of least resistance, but that can also, there can be diminishing returns depending on how you sort of deal with that. Sometimes you have to go through it, you know, and sometimes by going through it, you get some battle scars, if you will, but at the same time, you're stronger from that. And it's something you can integrate. And I was thinking as a, as a business, that's interesting too, because you can use us as a form of leverage uh, in your marketing campaigns to be like, well, we accomplished this goal. We're not working around this problem anymore. We completely understand it. We've worked through yeah, we it. We've integrated it. And now we can provide a solution that's much more coherent and cogent for whatever services he provides in that regard. So I was like, oh, that'd be really interesting. So there's value to not always taking the path of least resistance. I think the goal is to always use reason because sometimes the path of least resistance is the right thing. It's just a matter of context. So context is always so important. But I really like that that point. It's like sometimes, sometimes in a way, the path of least resistance, ironically, is having to push through that obstacle. It's not going around it. That's that's the iron because there might not be a pathway around it. I think that's the problem. People are always looking for the shortcut, and a lot of times there isn't the shortcut. The shortcut, if you want to say, really is to go it's through up it. and over the mountain. Yeah, not you got it. it. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, uh, it's perfect time in this podcast before we get to uh, we apparently we have some some footage, some body cam footage or something from the Pelosi mansion incident that we talked about earlier in the show. We're going to show that probably after intermission because mm-hmm. yeah. uh, we have, we have to vet that. Um, Was the dude naked or not? Prior to that, prior t- to that. Uh, I'm just asking uh, questions. No, I, I just wanted to c- continue the theme of self-learning that we heard with Connor. And, uh, you know, we're heading into the third week of autonomy season eight. Uh, People are still trickling in from the enrollment process. So we usually, in any season, uh, up to week six or eight, there's people finding their seats, finding their place, getting oriented. And um, there's a lot of people this season. I was surprised. Like, we didn't set enrollment goals. Going back to the Connor conversation about setting goals, I like to service the people who find us and not artificially go out and try to make numbers happen just for the sake of numbers, right? Because a lot of times people can compromise their message and that's not the goal there. I teach that in the course. Actually, that's part of uh, one of the autonomy lectures is there's a downside to goals insofar as sometimes you'll set a goal and compromise your integrity to reach that goal. Exactly. What I teach is if you take steps with integrity, no matter where you are at any given time, it's a pretty good place to be because you took Mm -hmm. all your steps to get there with integrity and like informed consent. So- 
uh, not having enrollment goals. Like I was just hoping for the best, but we've got almost uh, like probably around 75 so far. And I'm not looking for ever more than a hundred because then it's hard to give attention to the, the students directly. But I do know the sweet spot of the course starts around 50, 60 people. When you get that many people in there, it's easy to get all the integration exercises and find the people that you need to be able to build the skills quickly in a dynamic, interactive realm of learning what you need to learn to be an upright, mature, successful, responsible adult who can take steps into the future with integrity, who can reach goals with disciplined accountability. And if you need a mastermind meeting or need these other resources, those are all things that we do for students in autonomy. So you can go to getautonomy.info forward slash ignite if you are interested at any time throughout the year. Because we leave the doors open and accept enrollment anytime throughout the year. And it's a one-time fee, lifetime enrollment. And uh, it's not an offer too good to refuse. It's an offer maybe uh, under-considered by some and over-appreciated by many who get beyond the uh, the obstacle course. So our job is to uh, kind of tell you what we're doing on the front end. But as you go through the obstacle course, you get complete transparency into everything that goes on with the course and what happens after graduation, which is a whole lot of extra, extra content that... <clears throat> is complementary with the overall curriculum, but I can't teach you a 12 week course on ethics or 12 week course on philosophy like Jay Dyer does. So we have other courses in the university that open up for graduates of the flagship course, which is called autonomy. It's about learning how to make better decisions in your life. All right. With that, we're going to set up the intermission clip now. Um, two weeks ago, or maybe it was just last week, there is a documentary release. The documentary is based on a book called The Real Dr. Fauci by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And it's a very dense book. I got it when it first came out. There's like zero space in the margins. There's no room to take notes in this book. It is dense. I was happy to hear that they are making a documentary project. Part one came out. It was two hours. Part two came out. It was two hours. I watched part one and two for you. And uh, I could say it's worth watching. It's different segments. So if you get, you know, part one, don't think you know what's in the rest of uh, part two. If you get halfway through part one and you can't guess what's in the second half of part one. So the, it's good pacing, good coverage of a broad spectrum of Fauci's 50 years and uh, current reigning highest paid non-elected government worker in U.S. history. And uh, it's, it's good unfolding. So from this clip, we're going to show you an intermission. Um, it's going to be from the first hour. I encourage you to take time, make time, schedule time to watch the entire documentary. And for anyone that you know that cares to the degree that you do, share it with them. Because I know a lot of people don't have the attention span or the internal fortitude or um, just like the good old-fashioned curiosity to watch this film because they also might have to undo some of their popularly held beliefs. Right. For those willing to look at what's going on and do the work of dealing with the truth of the situation, I think it's a cathartic experience to see all this information come together on the silver screen and for so many people to have a chance to be educated in this area, which up until now, up until this documentary, was really only Fauci, the apotheosis of Tony Fauci during COVID, where they made him into a god. And uh, I think in the Jared documentary that was done on his behalf. Oh, right, right, right. The, the National yeah. Geographic, the, National <coughs> Geographic yeah. the one that came with the barf bag. I remember yeah. that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Um, so what we're going to see here is uh, a work of independent filmmakers, but RFK Jr. was an executive producer and is heavily interviewed throughout. And it does use his book as the source material. So I guess you could say it's like it's like his movie, but he had a whole bunch of people helping him on this. Let's go ahead and uh, cue that up. And then we'll be back after intermission and we can get a, a maybe a first look breaking news with that uh, Pelosi uh, hammer situation, the hammer situation out there. It's hard not to make puns with that story, but I've been doing a really genuinely good job of not punning up that situation. So it's tough. All right, let's go to intermission and we'll be right back. Respiratory illness with similarities to SARS has healthcare workers around the world on alert. The outbreak of a mystery virus in China. A new virus has been discovered that has pandemic potential. The biggest concern is that it could become airborne. The majority of the cases are in China, where the virus was first reported on December 31st. At least 45 people have contracted the virus. Animal is probably the source of this new virus. At some point, this virus jumped from animals to humans and is now spreading across Asia. And while the risk of a U.S. outbreak is still low, majority of Americans, the risk is very low. A SARS-like virus, which has infected hundreds in China, has now reached the United States. The first case of the deadly Chinese coronavirus making its way to the U.S. He came to Seattle January 15th, and within a day he's diagnosed. It is a coronavirus. We don't know how contagious it is. Now called COVID-19. COVID-19. Over 100 cases in more than a dozen states. To unleash the full power of the federal government in this effort today, I am officially declaring a national emergency. Stay at home. That is the order tonight from four state governors. We've been asking people to stay at home during this pandemic. If you were planning to see friends this weekend, maybe don't. What you're talking about is our 15 days to stop the spread initiative. We should be acting as if we have the virus, as Tony Fauci says. Stay at home. The message was met with skepticism. Shoppers stocking up on necessities. Shelves that usually hold toilet paper wiped clean. Shoppers rush into a Los Angeles Costco this morning with this warning. Supplies are being rationed to keep up with the unprecedented coronavirus panic shopping. Many people are buying too much, leaving empty shelves. Over these last few weeks, stay-at-home orders have turned America's densest and most vibrant cities into virtual ghost towns. Strict lockdown laws have turned the global city into a ghost town. We turn to Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Anthony Fauci of the National Institutes of Health. The 15 days that we had of mitigation clearly have had an effect. When we extended the guidelines from the 15-day guidelines to now 30 days. COVID-19 lockdown's been extended indefinitely in China's Chengdu city. 26 million people confined to their homes and no end in sight. This whole kind of dynamic of profiteering and the divergence of, of vaccination and the 
regulatory process really arcing towards corruption, control, and private profit, the pharmaceutical industry accelerated or amplified dramatically after the meeting between Anthony Fauci and Bill Gates in 2000. Those two men had kind of a synergistic effect on each other. So you have the, the entire biomedical research and the medical cartel globally now controlled by a tiny handful of men with Gates and Fauci driving it. And you've had this giant diversion of foreign aid dollars away from the traditional interests and intentions of foreign aid. Now virtually a huge percentage of it going to the vaccine only and with no accountability, with nobody actually saying, are more lives being saved? Is quality of life improving? Is public health improving? It's just an ideology, it's a religion. And there are high priests of that religion and you're not allowed to question them. Starting with AIDS and going through everything, uh, SARS and MERS and Zika and bird flu, they have one thing in common, Fauci at the center. We had the anthrax spore attacks. We did SARS in 2002, MERS 2003, bird flu in 2005, H1N1 2009. This is same playbook, different virus. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation put up $10 billion in 2010 to make the decades of vaccines to be from 2010 to 2020. Another day of germ warfare and still no sign. The worst case of bioterrorism in this country. America strikes back. Anthrax. Another infection. This time at NBC News and Rockefeller Plaza. In just a week's time, we have had four confirmed cases of anthrax, all with media connections and a number of anthrax scares as well. On October 5th, 2001, almost a month after the September 11th terrorist attacks on New York City, the Pentagon, and Western Pennsylvania, terror of another type struck. President Bush tries reassuring the nation after anthrax is found at a facility that handles mail going to the White House. One week after 9-11, there was an anthrax attack. The anthrax attacks precipitated a new interest in our intelligence community and the Pentagon in bioweapons development. The Pentagon wanted to start developing bioweapons again, but it knew the only way it could legally do that is if it told the public and it was developing vaccines, and it was nervous that nobody would believe them. And so instead of doing the studies themselves, they began funneling the money through Tony Fauci. Ultimately, if civilians are going to need protection against anthrax, the answer may be found in a new vaccine. Dr. Fauci thinks the events of September 11th will speed that process. In, in usual times, that, that's a process that takes years and years. But I can tell you the amount of time that it's going to take, given the urgency of the situation, is going to be markedly truncated. I was there at the time when that was really launched. I know a lot of the people. I know where a lot of the bodies are buried, the nuance of what happened there, of the various groups that ended up acting in corrupt ways over time. I saw the uh, initiation of the company that we now call Emergent Biosystems and its role in aggressively protecting its estate, exclusive estate in anthrax vaccines. At Dyneport Vaccine Company, I took a position as the Associate Clinical Research Director 
I played a role in almost all of the biodefense products. At that time, the Vice President of the United States, Dick Cheney, engaged in uh, enabling a whole new biodefense infrastructure, really a whole new segment of the medical industrial complex. Robert Cadillac, who's been steeping himself essentially in, in obsessions about anthrax, is added to be the top bioterrorist uh, consultant to Paul Wolfowitz and Donald Rumsfeld immediately after 9-11 in this critical period of just a few weeks uh, leading up to the 2001 anthrax attack. Saving lives in an emergency requires cutting-edge medical countermeasures, medications, vaccines, diagnostics, and more. In 2001, he was teaching at the U.S. National War College. During that year, he participated in something called Dark Winter, which was a emergency preparedness game that's controversial in some circles for several reasons, because it took place in June 2001, and there's several aspects of the script of that exercise that ended up being the running narrative of the 2001 anthrax attacks, like the uh, anthrax being sent in letters had previously been gamed out at this Dark Winter exercise. And actually, it's Robert Cadlick who gave the exercise Dark Winter its name. There was a simulation called Dark Winter that didn't come out very well. During June 22nd and 23rd, 2001, less than three months before the 9-11 attacks, the Pentagon launched a war game codename Operation Dark Winter at Andrews Air Force Base that emphasized the military's earnest commitment to bioweapons vaccines. Robert Cadillac was the lead organizer of this pandemic simulation. Dark Winter participants explored strategies for imposing coercive quarantines, censorship, mandatory masking, lockdowns, and forced vaccination, and expanded police powers as the only rational response to the pandemic. It's really important for people to understand the odd chronology of what happened that initiated the biosecurity agenda in our country, which is now the spear tip of American foreign policy. In June of 2001, you had the dark winter simulation scripted by the CIA, which predicted a smallpox attack mounted by somebody who is clearly a Saddam Hussein-like figure. At the same time, you have the Pentagon engage in Operation Bacchus, which is developing a feasibility study for developing a garage anthrax mechanism by which terrorist groups could create anthrax. So it actually creates the model for a terrorist group to create an anthrax attack on our country. If you look at Anthony Fauci's tenure at NIAD, specifically after the 2001 anthrax attacks, he was responsible for the massive funding of numerous biosafety labs throughout the United States, several of which have engaged in gain-of-function experiments uh, during that period of time. Gain-of-function refers to experiments that intentionally modify a pathogen to create the ability to cause or worsen disease, enhance transmissibility, and or create novel strains with the potential to cause global spread in humans. The problem is we don't have enough vaccine to go around. Meaning we don't have enough vaccine for the United States? 
Well, I would like to think that, but we don't have sufficient uh, stockpiles for the people in Oklahoma, Georgia, or Pennsylvania, much less for the entire United States population. Well, that certainly doesn't sound encouraging. What do you mean exactly? Angie, it means it could be a very dark winter for America. When those attacks happened, it, the investigation quickly revealed that those strains were of a domestic source linked to the U.S. military, and there was no way that it was actually of a foreign origin, as was being suggested at the time. Operation Northwood was a proposal that was put in front of my uncle by his Joint Chiefs of Staff. It was a false flag event. These are the people like General Lemon Surge and Curtis LeMay, who had won World War II. And uh, there was no more respect to military leaders in our country. And they said to him, we should plant bombs and kill American citizens and blame it on the Cubans and do a series of other events that would kill, cause mayhem and death in America to American citizens in order to justify an unprovoked attack on Cuba. These were the, the center of the American military and they were proposing murdering American citizens to create a provocation to invade another country. My uncle heard their proposal, said nothing to them, walked out of the meeting in the middle of the proposal and said to one of his aides, and we call ourselves the human race. He was disgusted. These were the most respected military and intelligence officers alive at that time. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We cannot exclude the possibility that the anthrax was sent out by somebody within our own government to serve some larger agenda. And the FBI later determined that the anthrax had come from Fort Detrick or one of two other military labs that are operated by the U.S. intelligence agencies and by the United States military. The government agencies and the mainstream media initially pointed to Saddam Hussein as the culprit behind the anthrax attacks. We've seen the enemy. The terrorists cannot be reasoned with. The anthrax attacks were used as a provocation to ram through the Patriot Act with almost no debate and to initiate this war against Saddam Hussein. There's always the potential for bioterror. And we have a major biodefense research and development effort that spans agencies from the NIH to do the basic research to be able to develop better vaccines. Having said that, the worst bioterrorist is nature itself. The chances of nature creating something really bad is much better than we mere mortal humans doing it. When no further bioterror attacks occurred over the next 10 years, Dr. Fauci skillfully maintained his annual $1.7 billion biosecurity budget by deftly recalibrating his rhetoric away from bioterrorism hype. Instead, he invoked the new panic 
of a natural but emerging infectious disease. And ever since 2001, Anthony Fauci has been running around the world like this kind of agitated chicken little, warning everybody about the advent of bird flu or the pandemic du jour, and none of them ever materializes until, of course, they hatch one themselves. Right now, if we had an explosion of an H5N1, we would not be prepared for that. I don't see it as an exercise because it could be the big one. It could be. And if it is, all rushing around, doing what we need to do, pushing the envelope is not for naught or in vain. The pandemic flu, there's no responsiveness and no background immunity of anyone. Another reason why we really have to rev up our preparedness. Nowhere in the world is completely safe when there's an epidemic raging in one part of the world. That 2005 PrEP Act was put into legislation at the time that they were running around screaming about bird flu. They came in and gave them complete liability protection for anything that was, de that was developed that was called a covered countermeasure for a pandemic. So they were laying the groundwork for this a long time ago. The Injury Compensation Act was set up. It was supposed to be a watchdog organization, but we've got the fox monitoring the hen house because we have the FDA monitoring complaints against vaccines that are primarily sold by the CDC. So it was never, ever set up the way that it should have been. It's absolutely horrific. It's completely unconstitutional because there is no separation of powers. This is not within the judiciary. It's even more liability protection for industry than under the 1986 National Childhood Vaccine Injury Program. If you can show by clear and convincing evidence, you might be able then to take your case to civil court. But the PREP Act is like almost an insurmountable wall. Even with a vaccine, there still would be some suffering and death. We must protect the American people by stockpiling vaccines. In 2005, I was going to Washington, D.C. about every two to three months to go into the pandemic planning meetings, pandemics associated with bird flu. And it wasn't until a little bit later that we realized that these coronaviruses had been weaponized through illegal gain-of-function research to weaponize the spike proteins and that that was what was falling underneath the EUA so that people could be injected with these shots with a weaponized spike protein. So it wasn't just garden variety coronaviruses that were causing flu. In 2005, they created a swine flu epidemic, which of course never happened. It was declared a pandemic. There were 40 million uh, vaccines distributed, and again, they caused uh, Bell's palsy and Guillain-Barre and a lot of other neurological injuries. The vaccine ultimately had to be pulled. 46 states are reporting H1N1 as widespread, with more than 1,000 deaths and 20,000 hospitalizations. And while an average case is usually no more dangerous than other flu, this strain has its unknowns. 
30% of the deaths are in healthy people with no underlying problems. President Obama decided to declare the epidemic a national emergency of swine flu. And around the country, people were lining up waiting for hours to get vaccinations. But there are only 11 million doses available, far short of the 40 million expected by this time. We need hospitals and healthcare providers to continue preparing for an increased patient load and to take steps to protect healthcare workers. We need families and businesses to ensure that they have plans in place if a family member, a child, or a co-worker contracts the flu and needs to stay home. And we're also making steady progress on developing a safe and effective H1N1 flu vaccine. And we expect a flu shot program will begin soon. This program will be completely voluntary, but it will be strongly recommended. This morning's Flu Watch, vaccine side effects. Government health officials say they have worked very hard to make sure the H1N1 vaccine is safe for everyone. However, one rare, and we should emphasize rare, side effect of flu vaccines is starting to show up around the country. This is 14-year-old Jordan McFarland. Weeks ago, he was an athletic young man playing sports. Now he needs a walker to move from room to room. It's an aching, but it's 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 also a pain that I can't describe. Doctors told Jordan's parents he has Guillain-Barre syndrome, or GBS, a rare illness in which the immune system attacks the nervous system. Jordan's family believes the H1N1 vaccine is to blame. 24 hours after he received both the seasonal and swine flu vaccines, he was hospitalized. During the 1976 swine flu scare, officials vaccinated 45 million people. Of those, almost 1,100 developed GBS. If you really look at the scientific data, it is unclear why that happened. Clearly, the risk of the complication of the disease is greater than the risk of the vaccine. We hear from a physician in Durham, North Carolina. Good morning. Hi, good morning, Dr. Fauci. Good morning. And, um, Pedro. Um, you've been at the NIH a pretty long time, and it seems to me that during your tenure, our ability to control infectious diseases hasn't improved. but in fact, worse. And don't you think it's time that you step down and let someone else who has a more effective message? <laughs> Actually, no. <laughs> and then Ebola, which, although it was much smaller, uh, there was some luck involved in that. Because it wasn't spread through uh, respiratory contact, the reproductive rate was a lot lower, and you know, it was basically people who were sick or dead. Uh, who are doing most of the transmission. I wasn't involved in any of the evidence synthesis for around Ebola, but I am aware of a key document and, and a meeting that was held in September 2015 for sharing research and data during public health emergencies. These participants included the Wellcome Trust, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It included members of big pharma such as J&J, &J, Glasgow SmithKline, uh, Tequila Vaccines, Sanofi, and also um, the International Federation of Pharmaceutical Manufacturers Association. Remdesivir is a toxic drug. You know, they tried it for Ebola and they actually had to abandon the study because of the increased risk of death. We know that remdesivir increases the risk of renal failure, that's kidney failure, at least 20-fold. And this is based on the World Health Organization data. Today we're announcing a commitment over this next decade, uh, which we think of as a, a decade of, of vaccines. 
They were ramping up the pediatric schedule. They were ramping up the requirements for schools. They started passing laws where you, they took away your exemption rights that you had a right to refuse because they wanted all those kids vaccinated. If all those kids are vaccinated, they become mostly customers for life with their asthma, allergies, eczema, ADD, ADHD, insulin-dependent diabetes. You don't see those illnesses in healthy, unvaccinated children. So we needed to push that forward to create a, a generational customers for life because the drug companies blockbuster drugs were running out of patents because patents are about 20 to 22 years. Somebody gave me a transcript of a secret meeting that had occurred between the leading public health officials and the pharmaceutical industry that had occurred in the year 2000. And the precursor of that meeting was an internal study that had been done in 1999 by CDC. Following this explosion in the vaccine schedule and that began in 1989, we started seeing the beginning of the autism epidemic and an epidemic of other neurological and autoimmune diseases. And when the first data set came back, it was shocking. Children who had received that vaccine had an 1135% greater chance of getting a subsequent autism diagnosis than kids who did not. They spent most of the time talking about how to hide these associations from the American public and what their strategy will be for conducting studies that ended up being very, very fraudulent studies. I got a hold of that transcript and I published excerpts from it in Rolling Stone and Salon simultaneously. And immediately there was a storm of controversy pressuring Rolling Stone and Salon to take down the article. You know, I was initially shocked to see this level of censorship and the control that the pharmaceutical industry exercises over the American media. I was doing, at that time, uh, probably 60 speeches a year for a significant part of my income, a lot of them at universities and corporate events. Those speeches disappeared. I was writing every six months an op-ed for the New York Times, and they stopped publishing me not only on vaccine issues, but on any issue, on environmental issues, etc. You get deplatformed if you tell the truth and or if you say anything that challenges government orthodoxies. Let me ask you about vaccines. There's obviously been a controversy with uh, children's vaccines about whether or not they might cause autism. What is your view on that? There, there is. I, mean, I have a strong view on that. There's zero evidence that the vaccines that were in question, particularly measles and MMR, have anything at all to do with the development. In 2016, when I met with, uh, with Tony Fauci, we had a very, very heated meeting. I was with Aaron Seary, who's another attorney, and Del Bigtree and Lynn Redwood, sat across from the table from him and Francis Collins and the other public health leadership. And I said to him during that meeting, you've been publicly saying that there are safety studies done on these vaccines prior to getting a license, they say that there are none. There was an observer from the White House at that meeting, so he was under some pressure to defend his record, and he said, well, there are studies, and I said, can you show us any? And they made a show of looking through a series of briefcases and files to try to find what they were looking for, and they said, we'll send them to you. And of course, they never sent them. And at the end of that meeting, I was in the hallway, and 
Tony Fauci came up to me and took me aside and had a quiet conversation with me out of earshot of everybody else. And he said, I want to commend you for what you're doing. Um, it's important work and you keep us all on our toes. So thank you. And that was his message to me. You can be the judge of how earnest he was. Over Christmas vacation, I got a call from somebody in President-elect Donald Trump's office asking me to come meet with the President-elect the 1st of January. I went in to meet with him at Trump Tower. This was maybe two or three weeks before the his inauguration. And he asked me to chair and to assemble a vaccine safety committee that would look at the safety of the various vaccinations. And I said that I would be happy to do that. Uh, so March 2017 in the White House, he asked me if vaccines weren't a bad thing because he was considering a commission to look into uh, ill effects of vaccines. And, and somebody, his name is Robert Kennedy Jr., was advising him that vaccines were causing bad things. And I said, no, that's a dead end. That would be a bad thing. Don't do that. And I don't know whether these things are connected, but the president, soon after this announcement occurred, took a million-dollar contribution for his inaugural party from Pfizer and then chose two of Pfizer's handpicked candidates, Alex Azar and Scott Gottlieb, from the public health agencies, and those gentlemen killed the Vaccine Safety Commission. There is no question that there will be a challenge to the coming administration in the arena of infectious diseases, both chronic infectious diseases, and you will understand why history the history of the last 32 years that I've been the director of NIAID will tell the next administration that there's no doubt in anyone's mind that they will be faced with the challenges that their predecessors were faced with. There will be a surprise outbreak. It was the market test. It was laying the groundwork for what they needed to do with the fear-based messages to put everybody on high alert, to actually have everybody start talking about this pandemic. SARS, MERS, bird flu, Zika virus, H1N1, SARS, MERS, Ebola outbreak, Zika, bird flu. So we really do have a problem of how the world perceives influenza and it's going to be very difficult to change that unless you do it from within and say, I don't care what your perception is, we're going to address the problem in a disruptive way and in an iterative way because you do need both. COVID-19. In terms of safety, we know that this is probably the most toxic medical intervention that has ever been released. Pfizer knew this, the FDA knew this. In the first two months after the release of the Pfizer vaccine, Pfizer were aware of over 1,200 deaths directly related to the vaccine and over 40,000 adverse events. A major milestone in the COVID-19 pandemic. The Pfizer vaccine is now fully FDA approved for people 16 and up. It's the first COVID-19 shot to move out of the emergency use phase. 
to get the emergency use authorization, they really don't have to release any information about their clinical trials to the public. But Pfizer uniquely got full approval for its Comirnaty vaccine. In order to get that, they had to make a submission to FDA describing their clinical trials. And that submission, although it's a bare-bones submission, there's a lot of interesting information in that submission. We want all the underlying data, and Pfizer and FDA have refused to release it. And in fact, when Aaron Ziri, who is my colleague, sued Pfizer to get the data, FDA intervened on behalf of Pfizer, and Pfizer has said it doesn't want to release that data for 75 years, and FDA is supporting that position. Here you have the government regulatory agency collaborating with a pharmaceutical company to keep secret the results of clinical trials on a drug that is now mandated to virtually everybody in America, for which the company has no liability. So no matter, no matter how grievously you're injured, no matter how reckless or negligent their conduct, you can't sue them. When it comes to boosters, mixing and matching vaccines is likely safe and effective. We've made vaccinations free, safe and convenient. If you're fully vaccinated, you're highly protected. You're as safe as possible. If you get vaccinated, you are protected. You know, the vaccine is safe and effective. Safe and effective. It's the narrative which has been perpetuated ad infinitum. And we know that's a complete and utter lie. Even though vaccines, because of the high degree of transmissibility of this virus, don't protect overly well, as it were, against infection. We know from the most recent data, the vaccine actually increases your risk of getting COVID. I mean, that is an astonishing fact. Back in the mid-1950s, Dr. Jonas Salk developed a killed injectable polio vaccine. At first it was widely used, but now it has largely been replaced by the live Sabin vaccine. It has now come to light in the United States that the live virus vaccine for polio does cause the disease itself. And the absolutely positive assertion that the live virus vaccine could be given without risk of paralysis. Now, that statement was made by the American Medical Association in its June meeting of 1961 at a time when all of us knew that cases had been occurring. In the Federal Register, Honest to God, 1984, um, there is a section that speaking about polio vaccines in which the federal government asserts that any information, whether true or not, which would cause vaccine hesitancy is to be suppressed. Because of the Freedom of Information Act filing, courts forced Pfizer and the FDA to disclose the full dossier of documents around the Pfizer BioNTech product. And there's a table in there, in that disclosed information, that lists many, 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 many adverse events of special interest that are now clearly shown to be associated with the RNA vaccine technologies. In the internal documents, the side effects 
that Pfizer identified are completely different from the side effects that the CDC discloses, for instance, on its website. It says you may have chills, you may have fatigue, you may have a headache. The Pfizer internal documents show massive thousands of joint pain, like rheumatoid arthritis type crippling joint pain. Another gigantic category is muscle pain, myalgia. Thousands of results are neurological disorders, Guillain-Barre, Bell's palsy, multiple sclerosis, encephalitis, thrombocytopenia, lung clots, leg clots, cardiac problems, heart damage, stroke. The internal documents show that the spike protein is toxic and also causing harm. Well, another round of Pfizer documents have dropped. Over 11,000 pages were released. Adverse reactions were more frequent and more severe in younger groups. In May of 2021, Pfizer knew that 35 minors, teenagers, had suffered heart damage within a week after being injected by the mRNA vaccines. But they didn't tell the rest of us. And the FDA issued the emergency use authorization for teenagers in June, a month later, also knowing about the heart damage. But the government didn't tell us, didn't issue a press release about heart damage to minors or young adults till August of 2021, after thousands and thousands and thousands of teenagers and young adults went ahead and got injected and their parents allowed them to or brought them to their doctors to get injected, not knowing that this could damage their hearts. Pfizer received the biggest criminal fine in U.S. history as a part of a $2.3 billion settlement with federal prosecutors for mispromoting medicines and for paying kickbacks to compliant doctors. In the 1990s, they were involved in defective heart valves that led to the deaths of more than 100 people. Amid widespread criticism of high pricing for poor countries, and in particular AIDS medications, Pfizer was sued in a U.S. federal court by Nigerian families who accused the company of testing a dangerous new antibiotic called Trovan on children without parents' consent and using their children as human guinea pigs. In 2004, Pfizer's subsidiary agreed to pay $430 million to resolve criminal charges that it paid physicians to prescribe its epilepsy drug, Neurontin, to patients with ailments which the medication was not approved. Pfizer also had a class action suit with a $60 million settlement over Resolin, diabetes medication that resulted in patients dying from acute liver failure. In 2010, a federal jury found that Pfizer committed racketeering fraud in its marketing of the drug. 2012, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission announced that it had reached a $45 million settlement with Pfizer to resolve charges that its subsidiaries had bribed overseas doctors and other healthcare professionals to increase foreign sales. In the U.K., they have been fined nearly 90 million pounds by the UK's competition watchdog for unfair pricing to the NHS after hiking up the cost of an anti-epilepsy drug by two and a half thousand percent. Million dollar profits and illegal activity at this country's biggest drug company. Is there anything to stop this company or other big drug, drug companies from doing it again? Pfizer says its vaccine for children ages 5 to 11 is 90 percent effective against symptomatic COVID. Members of the FDA committee agreed the benefits of the vaccine for younger children appear to outweigh the risk. So Moderna's chief medical officer says his company is also developing an Omicron-specific booster that would take two to three months to get into testing and then production. You said Pfizer could do the same 100 days or less. Is that a window that can be narrowed depending on how the, the work goes? Around 60 days on the development. 
we will have clinical production of the vaccine so that we can go and test it in humans. And then within 95 days, we will have the full results of, uh, of this uh, trial. And Albert Borla, I really appreciate your work and, and your time tonight. Thank you. Anderson Cooper 360. Brought to you by Pfizer. Pfizer. Go ahead and pause it. I think that I think that makes the point right there. I mean, Anderson Cooper, I'm sure in that clip, he told you that Albert Borla was the f- world's most famous veterinarian. Brought to you by Pfizer. So the occlusion of necessary information over a long series of years is the, the theme of that four-hour documentary series, The Real Tony Fauci, The Real Dr. Fauci, I think it's called. Um, and that was that was a good clip to play because it starts with the anthrax attacks. It moves through operation dark winter. You saw a friend of the show, Whitney Webb in there explaining it. Uh, You also saw a whole bunch of other evidence being marshaled over a long timeline. So it's not like Fauci just like made a mistake and it was innocent. Uh, He and Gates have been working since the beginning of the 21st century on this big project. And they're still at the helm. They and others above them because they are the, just the, the front men of uh the public end of that and uh it's an ongoing saga i encourage you to watch the whole documentary if you uh find such facts useful in your reality when everyone else is being gaslit to be able to have some uh tangible substantial meaningful artifacts and evidence to point to in your step-by-step concluding of what to do with your healthcare system inside your body um if you want their experimental gene therapy have at it But I think people should have informed consent. And I think they know at the top at Pfizer, they know what they're doing is wrong, which is why they black out those pages and hide it for 75 years. Because if they told you the truth, you might not want to adopt their product inside your body forever. Or any of their products, you know, I thought it was interesting. Go back to 2000, 2001, when the unholy alliance between Fauci and Gates was sort of initiated. Um, you know, they, they made a good uh, sort of, they brought some good context to the issue with sort of the military, military funding, interest in biological weapons development, the issues against doing that, and the sort of bait and switch with using, saying, well, we need to develop vaccines. All, the whole gain of function research into uh, virus manipulation has to do with ostensibly creating a new vaccine for pathogens and pandemic, pandemic potential the PPP and not the loan. So I think it's important to understand that context, that there is also an issue with the military sort of being uh, reprimanded a little bit from being able to continue, you know, it's biodefense research. And so they had to sort of, you know, frame it in a way that they're doing it for vaccine research in the case or the potential of other enemies or nature itself, you know, uh, creating or circulating a virus or bacterium that could cause severe disease, epidemics or pandemics. So that sort of bait and switch was very interesting as well. Uh, obviously, then the collusion between Fauci receiving a lot of that biodefense funding, $1.7 billion, and then Gates, who uh, has the same medical degree that you and I have, and Justin and LD. That's right. Uh, we all went to the same medical college. That's correct. Uh, somehow becoming the world leader in vaccination. Yeah, uh, hmm. for the most part, not really any other. Well, he's the world leader. He's the world leader in vaccination leader. research and investing and, in vaccinations. Yeah, yeah, and investing and marketing, promoting, setting up the supply chain, 
uh, putting developing. But Tony, uh, I've seen him the over there in Africa helping the, the natives. Every oh, yeah. time wearing the same shirt, looks like he was all in the same day. All of that, but be that as it may, a press. Apparently, he was only briefing. going to on the Lolita Express because he sincerely believed that Epstein was had the best intentions. So well, like else when, going on in his island at all. When they jet pool like that, they save carbon credits. <laughs> That's why Kevin Spacey was on there. Oh, yeah, don't choke in the carbon. I'm getting over a little illness myself, so all the traveling. All right, so moving out of that story, it's a very serious story. Dr. Fauci did real things and real people died in nursing homes and all around the world because of misinformation, disinformation, hiding of information, human experimentation, a whole bunch of wild and crazy things. But I want to go to this next. We got a piece of footage. Now, my notes on this say the following. This is undercover video of criminal elements discussing this alleged hammer situation that went down. Now, from what I understand, you're not going to see actual footage, but you're going to see the recounting of the story of what happened. They use some code names in order to uh, protect the innocent in this situation. And uh, they might use another euphemism instead of hammer. Now with that, uh, it, it comes complete with cutaways and it looks like the uh, independent journalist who got this surveillance footage and broke it out. Maybe he's like a leaker. Might be, uh, maybe he's French because his name is Guy Richet. So uh, let's go ahead and roll this clip by Guy Richet and uh, let, let's see what the update on that situation is with the hammer. What's all the fuss about Harry? Why don't we just boycott the payment? Let me Criminal tell you elements. About you, Harry. Once there was this geezer called Smithy Robinson who worked for Harry. But it was rumoured that he was on the tank. Harry's invited Smithy round for an explanation. Smithy didn't do a very good job. Within a minute, Harry's lost his rag, reached out for the nearest thing at hand, which happened to be a 15-inch black rubber cock. He's then proceeded to batter poor Smithy to death with it. Now, that was seen as a pleasant way to go. Hence, Achi Harry is a man you pay if you owe. I think you oh. played the wrong clip. <laughs> I thought that was Benicio del Toro. That was that was a uh, distraction. No, that's Snatch. That's also a Guy Richet joint, the the Snatch movie. But uh, the bad guy in that is uh, uh, Brick Top, played by an actor named Alan. Very excellent because uh, he does the never trust the pig farmer. Mm. Pigs go through bone like butter. Yeah, bone like butter, yeah. Right? You got to pull hair the teeth and hair. You got to remove the hair and teeth for the kindness of the pig. So he, Brick Top, he's a he's a good bad guy in that movie, right? Uh, in this movie, Hatchet Harry, I think, uh, yeah. So shame on whoever in the chat put that in there, mislabeling it, thinking that was funny. But uh, what kind of hammer was it? That's on. Was it a ball peen hammer? Sledgehammer? Was it a nickname for something else? A euphemism? We don't know. Mm-hmm. Continue to see. Now, in even more uh, incendiary news out there, Yay picked up his shovel again and dug a little deeper this week with Lex Friedman. And now a lot of people have had takes on, you know, Lex is such a generous interviewer and look, he doesn't even get upset with Kanye and all these sort of things. 
and I'm not defending what Kanye said, but people seem to want to take away Kanye's right to say things that even aren't correct with reality. Right. So my observation is this when Kanye's mental illness, cause they all want to categorize him as being mentally ill, right? When his mental illness worked for them, well, they attached on to him and they're like, we're getting money off Kanye. And then all of a sudden he says, my mental illness doesn't work for you anymore. And they say, uh, you're no longer welcome in society, Kanye. So it's interesting. It's almost like they went to take his claim and prove him right in a Streisand effect kind of way, which I think is. Yeah, he not- said some quiet parts out loud and then he said, but the I don't think he's accurate you know. even in his, his claims. Yeah, sure. Sure, like I agree. I agree. He's pointing to a section of the pie, not and calling it the whole oh, pie. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when you when you castigate one, one group, uh, that shall remain nameless. Like it's it, you miss the bigger picture. Globalism is a team of groups. It's yeah, not a euphemism for one. group. It's not a religio-ethnic group. It's not some nation state somewhere. It's not a, a collective of just certain like. A, private individuals located in some place on the earth conducting like some sort we of read from birdie russell earlier operation it's not like that no i mean you know there's there's but, people but that it makes it seem like he's vindicated because for sure yeah right hmm. sad all right so um chris then you have our you know well we'll stay away from the top ld yeah, was there I, something I, I in my playlist to that effect of the yay yay you had the uh, anomaly video did you want to play some of that? Well, it's a couple, couple hours long, but uh, we're not playing a couple hours, certainly. But let's no. give him 10 minutes and see if he can make his point succinctly without uh, going, going too far. I didn't see too many other people giving anywhere near objective coverage. Everyone just wants to pile on and like, you know, yay, bad. So let's see what there the, was that. Uh, uh, there's a clip I posted in the production chat that was just him sort of answering some, I don't even know if they were reporters or just some, I don't, he was like walking out of some sports sort of, not event, but like some sort of uh, fitness arena it looked like, and he just sort of got crashed and he sort of was like very candid and very down to earth in that. Um, we can also play that if we wanted to. Yeah, we can check that out. Yeah. For sure. Maybe it's him getting escorted out of Skechers because they, you know, they don't like his money. Let's see if I can find that there. I got it. Um, I got yeah, it. play a little bit of the anomaly. Yeah, first let's let's sample his uh, his take on it, and then uh, let's move forward with other source material we might find along the way. Pixar films and Disney films, they make Bambi's mom die in the beginning, right? And off that pain comes a purchase of ice cream. We're going to take it to the stage. Now we're on the world stage, right? And you saw Ari Emanuel do exactly the kind of thing that I was saying had been done behind closed doors. Now he's doing it in open doors. They told Candace Owens, I couldn't be on the Daily Wire. Like, you can't even explain yourself. And we don't care how you got to that point either. The top comment on this video... The, the top comment on this video when I saw it the other day was it, I'm glad that Kanye could take time out of paint off, off of painting his house to do this interview with Lex. Yeah. He seems to always be in that hoodie. He, but there was another analysis. I don't know if it was 
Rogan watching Schultz. But the gist was Kanye takes something that's out of style and, and th- throws his, his name behind it and brings it back in style. Mm-hmm. And um, some, I think the, the, the gist was back in the eighties, you wouldn't, ca- you wouldn't catch rappers wearing pink polo shirts, but then he made that a thing. And now that's like, then now that's passed. So he wants to make maybe the grunge, the thing mm. again and that's kind of what he's bringing with that so he's a retro trend starter a retro trend starter a, 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 tr- a retro trend re- restarter restarter yeah. he's like a kickstarter for retro trends <laughs> he can't get on that platform though and whoever made those comments i, I might have saved it also in the uh production playlist so we might get to the clip where you get to hear a better version by a comedian of what i just articulated to you <laughs> having watched the comedian all right let's go ahead and continue to roll not the comedian but the yay up. so while adidas and gap are folding to quote unquote cancel culture and separating themselves from yeezy lex friedman sat down with him and had a very revealing conversation lots of fascinating points were said and personally i think i could perfectly illustrate how hypocritical and deceitful lex friedman is i like the guy a lot i appreciate him but here's an analysis i think he and a lot of people need to hear you're controlling my creative narrative and my, because just like how you're telling me I shouldn't have said that, do you think there are people telling me I shouldn't have wore a red hat? Not Jewish. Let me just say one they, thing. But they are, though. That's the only thing. It just so happens that they are. It just you so happens saying that they are. That doesn't a, mean that I hate them. Yes, that yes, just yes. While they're blacklisting yay, Facebook doubled down on its demonetization. Instead of lying and saying I had an unsafe link, now they're saying it's because my quote-unquote behavior or content is against their policies. What behavior? What content? I don't care. They're liars. They're deceivers. And I'm going to tell the truth, so help me God. We're going live now. The Dream Rare Podcast. All right, pause it for a second. All right, so in case you, get, in case you guys don't know, Kanye West, he's on the right. On the left, that's Lex Friedman. You, if you don't know who Lex Friedman is or his claim to frame, uh, he's the first synth to pass the Turing test. And unlike, <laughs> unlike, unlike Saudi Arabia's Sophia, which is obviously a synth posing as a human being, Lex continues to conduct interviews with people like Kanye, who doesn't realize that he's an advanced algorithm for the future, MIT's running, running a work. kernel in the present. And I'm completely joking. I like Lex and, uh, you know, I tease the robots all the time. All right. So let's go ahead and continue I mean, to roll. It's called us. AI podcasts. So I'm not even going to do a Lex Friedman impression because then you question my synthetic nature. All right. Let's go ahead to Kanye. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Thank you so much for joining today. So the powers that be are crashing down on Kanye West. They're getting rid of his Adidas partnership, his uh, Gap partnership, because when you say a certain group of people run the world, uh, I guess the best way to tell people that that's not true and it's hateful is to literally almost do exactly what Kanye says and take away all his stuff in his bank account. Uh, the world and the powers that be, I'm not complaining, I'm just being honest, they're starting to crack down on me. Instagram took away my monetization, Facebook took away my monetization. They flipped it from, oh, it was an unsafe link to your behavior, it might be flagging something. I just wanna say this before, I have like 15 clips that are like 45 seconds long. I think I'm gonna have the most honest analysis on this Lex Friedman and uh, Kanye West podcast. I'll tell you why it's important. But real quick, I just wanna show you Facebook vaccines and everyone's going to be wondering why they always fall short but uh let's keep listening off that pain comes so they put that pain in to make us 
uh, now we're the orphans of capitalism to make us be consumers. And we need to be a community, not just consumers. So I could have went another seven minutes yeah. by being a person who presents himself in a way that says, well, I don't have to feel your pain because I also have pain too that's not being recognized. And in every interview, when I say, well, why do I get to the point of putting up the tweet? Uh, no one wants to understand why I got to that point, you right? You had pain. You had pain. Yeah, but no pain one- pain in your heart. But the let's say this. And here's where it gets interesting. Kanye's trying to say that in black culture and Jewish culture, America is exploiting the pain of people in order to manipulate them, which I believe is completely true. Uh, we're going to talk about a little bit later. It's almost the next clip, not this one, but after that. Uh, it seems like Kanye West is also accusing Daily Wire of blacklisting him and not allowing Candace to talk to him and air the interview. I don't know if that's true. Uh, I'm not going to spread a rumor, but it's not really a rumor. It's Kanye saying it. So let's just watch the last part of that clip because I think it's super important. And I just can't stand people that are always trying to censor people better than them. It's like, listen, if you think you're better and smarter than Kanye West, fine. Make a podcast, right? Make a video. Explain yourself. But he's in, a, in these podcasts, he's having these important discussions about 500 things that I never hear anybody talk about that's so important and so deep. And then these like little lemmings that have like, you know, little dum-dums want to just sweep it all under the rug and take away all his stuff to prove that they're not taking away his stuff. It's like, who, who, who's getting fooled by this anymore? Clearly a lot of people. Let's, let's watch the last clip. Undoubtedly, Jewish people have a lot of movies about that pain and black people have a lot of movies about the pain of slavery, right? It's almost impossible to find a movie about Mansa Munsa. When you go to the African History Museum in Washington, D.C., it doesn't start with the idea of Africans being kings. It starts with the idea of Africans being slaves. But here's another interesting point about so he's trying to make the point that, you know, they use slavery to control black America through their pain and exploit their pain. And they're exploiting Jewish people through the pain of their past. Here's why so many people are bothered. Obviously, that pain means a lot to them, and I'm not trying to downplay it. But they did a Pew study. I've mentioned this before, but I find it fascinating. They did a Pew study with Jewish, I believe, Americans of all different types, religions, you know, political affiliation. And the number one thing that brought them together wasn't God like most religions. It wasn't food or culture like most ethnic groups. It was remembering the Holocaust. So really, the one thing that brings together Lex Friedman, Ben Shapiro, and all these, you know, left-wing uh, Jewish people that everybody can't stand in right-wing conservative media the only thing that seems to unite them is remembering an event that happened 70 or 80 years ago and also saying that simultaneously their group doesn't exist and you can't talk about it, yet they do have a group and their group, their history is more important than your history and you can't downplay that or else you're hating on them. It's very, very interesting social stuff that I just find fascinating. God bless everybody. I'm not trying to downsize anybody's pain, trauma or history at all. But this is such an interesting interview. This is why the First Amendment exists. This is why debates and discussions exist. Because when you have two minds like Lex Friedman and Kanye go at it, you get greatness. You get something that you're not going to see. Uh, let's get to the part where he talks about 
the blacklisting possibly from Daily Wire because uh, I have a lot of thoughts on that. And this is not new to me, guys. I've told people, and Kanye says this here too, or at one point, he says all this blacklisting that's been happening, I just put on a masterclass. It's all out in the open for you to see now. I told people in 2019, most right-wing media blacklisted me. Why? Because I support the First Amendment. I don't agree with speech laws. I don't agree with the George Floyd BLM speech law. I don't agree with the Christian speech law, a white speech law. And I don't agree with Jewish Israeli speech laws. But the Republican Party, including Trump and DeSantis, passed into legislation, executive order, and a bill, a speech law that quashes your discussion about Jewish people or Israel. And I think, everybody used to know this, Democrats and Republicans, if you could take away that, you take away this. They drive a truck through the gap. So if Republicans are willing to give up your free speech there, then Democrats are going to give up your free speech there. Next thing you know, we're stuck in a lockdown and nobody can criticize Pfizer. I don't think this is coincidental. This is why Jim Jordan's like an actor. He's like, oh, I'm so for free speech. Bro, you get campaign donations from Google and you do nothing. It's starting to seem like a circus. I'm not trying to get off a tangent, but let's watch another clip because the Lord knows I could talk quite long. Uh, let's get to what I'm here for. Pulled over with a car and it's three other people in the car. They're also going to jail. They're not going to single them out. They're going to say you guys are all in collusion. I just described collusion five times in this interview. And you keep on going back to this is like 1930. This is like this. This is like that. What I'm saying is, look, I want to work with you as an engineer to free my people. Can we start as a being with engineer opportunities right here? Yes. I, I am sorry to the people who had to be hurt and affected by that. Now we are here. And I'm looking to solve. Next clip has the part where he says that uh, the Daily Wire blacklisted him. But I found something interesting. When it comes to being white, you can't really identify as white unless you're hating on yourself. If you like like yourself and you're white, now you're a supremacist and everybody hates you. Kanye is, is well, he says he's a Jew now, but he also says he's black. Anyway, we'll just go with black now because I get what he's trying to say. That's not really my thing, but whatever. Uh, as a black man, he's willing to talk about good things within his race and say, we need to do this. We are great. We can be great. But Kanye is also able to criticize his race and say, we as black people, we're being fooled. Black culture is getting tricked. We're being lied to. We're, they're using and exploiting our history to, to, to take from us. So Kanye is able to play both sides. He's a, 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 an honest person who says, listen, black people are doing some good things, some bad things. I can speak to my group in criticism and praise. Lex Friedman, on the other hand, can only identify as his group to remember the Holocaust. He can only identify as his group to remember the pain and trauma, but when it comes to identify as the group that he knows exists because he brings it up all the time, all of a sudden it doesn't exist anymore when it comes to any sort of critique of what's going on. That's why Kanye gets annoyed because it's like, bro, you're so fake. It's okay. We're not trying to downplay your history. We're not trying to hurt you. We're not trying to single you out, but you're, you know, Kanye is trying to talk about collusion and the way that they prove that there's no collusion is by constantly doing the same exact thing to silence him and try to downplay the very honest and valid points that he's making. So from somebody that's able, like Kanye, to praise and criticize his ethnic group, 
I don't think he understands someone like Alex Friedman who's only allowed to remember but not allowed to ever be critical or ever even admit that there is a group that he often always reverts to because he knows that there's one and it's very important to him in some cases. So it's really crazy. But let's take a look at the the Daily Wire part because this is kind of in the headline. But what happens is every time if I talk to any of these business people one by one, because mind you, I didn't get to the tweet by not having a conversation. I had the conversations beforehand before I got to the tweet. Now we're going to take it to the stage. Now we're on the world stage, right? And you saw Ari Emanuel do exactly the kind of thing that I was saying had been done behind closed doors. Now he's doing it in open doors. They told Candace Owens, I couldn't be on the Daily Wire. Like you can't even explain yourself. And we don't care of how you got to that point either. And that's up. I mean, it's a pretty big claim. Kanye is saying that every, you know, earlier in the clip, the last one, he's like, every time I try to explain what I'm talking about, you say it sounds like 1930 and you're not listening to what I'm saying. And then I'm trying to explain myself on, on Daily Wire and Candace is being told, according to Kanye, that he's not even allowed on the platform. The reason I'm so passionate about this is this already happened to me in 2019. I've been, they're not gonna tell you in person. And the reason is I'm well-spoken. A lot of people like me, they already know who I am. I'm not crazy. Uh, I'm very calm, I'm very reasonable. I would say it's not a competition, but if you look at my compassion and empathy and my love, it exceeds their love and empathy and compassion. So they can't play the angle that I'm mean and hateful because I'm not. There's no clips they could take out of context. So they do it behind closed doors. That's why you don't see me in more places because I'm kind of blacklisted as a far right, even though I'm not, because I tell the truth about the speech laws that the Republican Party are passing. They're passing them for Jewish elites and Israel. I've read the laws. They're not for me. They're not for my Jewish friends. Who who are they for? I've read them. You can't criticize the media. You can't say someone has dual loyalty. You can't say Jews killed Jesus. I mean, they're 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 passing these crazy laws that I don't believe in because I don't believe in speech laws. And they call me an anti-Semite. And they've been doing it behind closed doors for years. So now, ha 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 ha. The joke's on you. The most famous person in the world just went twenty times as hard as I did, and you can't put the cat back in the bag. I know you guys have tried to blacklist me. I know you guys have tried to lie about me and you're very wise to do it behind closed doors because if you ever did it publicly, I would embarrass you with the truth, with the wisdom. I would make you look stupid. That's why you guys all chit chat behind closed doors and and sneakily blacklist me. They don't talk about it. So, and there's something you're going to find in most conservative media. In the Daily Wire, most of the people there openly support the anti-free speech laws, the BDS laws, the anti-protest laws against Israel. They say, oh, it's anti-Semitism. Guys, I'm going to say something that's way more true than what they're going to say. You can't stop hate and violence by passing speech or protest laws. The First Amendment is for everybody. If it's not for everybody, it's for nobody. If you don't let the most... uh, egregious peaceful group protest their thing that you disagree with and have a 
then you don't have it. It doesn't exist anymore. If Trump can't speak on Twitter and this person can't speak on Twitter and Louis Farrakhan can't speak on Twitter and Owen Benjamin can't speak on Twitter and Alex Jones can't speak on Twitter, then eventually you can't speak on Twitter. If you can't criticize this vaccine, then you can't criticize this medication and now it's getting forced into your arm or you can't work. This is all obvious. So this doesn't start from just the Democrats or Ilhan Omar. That's a fake narrative. And I'm not saying the, Dem- the Democrats are worse. I'm personally voting all Republican for local reasons, but I'm just saying the, the Republicans are essentially like controlled op when it comes to free speech because PragerU is look at the CEO. I think it's like an ex Mossad person, some woman who's like, I used to work for Mossad in Israel. Yeah, shocker there. But in general, they support the speech laws for Israel and that you can't criticize Jewish people. Ben Shapiro and the Daily Wire support the speech laws. TPUSA supports the speech laws. So they play this game where if anybody ever questions the fact that they're selling out America and our First Amendment for this lopsided form of speech legislation, they call you an anti-Semite, a right-winger, and they either smear your name publicly if you're too weak to defend yourself or they can do it or they do it behind closed doors if they're not able to misframe you and they just block you out of existence and give you the ron paul treatment and try to make it so nobody knows what's going on it's way deeper than just what kanye west is saying and that's why they're taking all the stuff away i'm going to say a little more about it but i want to watch another clip they told candace you can't be on daily is that even about yes you did that's what they said and you know what and you can have my voice raised or lower. I'm going to do it lower, right? Because what's happening to me by, I put it in your words, the media is saying, not only can you not explain yourself, we don't care how you got to that point. You need to apologize and you can't explain. And that's the end of the story. So just apologize so we can have Mel Gibson do some more films. Is exactly what Ari Emanuel was saying. No one is looking to change the problem that led so many people to that same level of frustration. And I just so happen to be the one that's not going to back up on it. Don't care what anybody says. Don't care what it costs. Kanye West is an American legend, a Christian legend, and a human legend. What he's doing is so important. He's like, I don't care. I'm not backing down. You met somebody that's not going to fake apologize like Nick Cannon and go on a, you know, Holocaust tour and, you know, look at the museum and then sit down with a left wing rabbi. Kanye's not going to do it. I want to say real quick, Ron DeSantis, who I think is one of the best governors in the country, he flew to Israel and passed. I've said this before, but people don't want to listen until this week all of a sudden. So I'm going to say it again. Ron DeSantis flew to Israel and passed the first ever Florida bill passed on foreign soil because usually Florida politicians, I don't know, pass the bills in their state but um, and in the country. And that bill was an anti-Semitism bill. I read the bill. It's ridiculous. It says it's for religious uh, protection. But the thing is, it doesn't include any other religion. So, okay, how how can you pass a religious bill that doesn't protect all religions? And how come in this religious bill, there's laws that have nothing to do with religion and uh, protects an ethnic group of people that most of them aren't even religious? It's not a religious bill. It's an Israeli and a Jewish speech bill. That's what it is. If it's a religious bill, then the same protections are going to go for all religions and all ethnic groups. It's not. This is what the Republicans have been doing. And yes, the Democrats are bad. And yes, they're the worst. But this is what Kanye is trying to say. It's like they only want you if you push their narrative. Let me talk about Ben Shapiro real quick, who runs the Daily Wire. He doesn't care when black people say, you know, black people need to step up, black people need to 
to look within there's a black crime you know epidemic black people do this he doesn't care when his black employees say all that because he's fine with that but the second someone says jewish executives and there needs to be an ounce of accountability in ben's group he freaks out and says it's nazi germany all over again he's a liar he only wants black people that he can exploit and use the second that black people wake up and they realize that you know they have their own perspective he'll freak out and and, and say it's like the return of world war ii you know, why are you okay with, I guarantee you he wouldn't care if like Candace or Brandon Tatum or anybody went on his show and was like, yo, black people need to step up. Black people need to self-reflect. Black people need to realize that they're being exploited. But you replace black with Jewish and Ben will freak out. He's, he's a user. You know, he wants black people to fit the mold and sell speech laws for Israel and then cry anti-Semitism when you realize that he's doing it. It's, it's, a, it's a joke. So that's all I'm saying. You know, t let's take it all ways. If I can look within and say, hey, we need to step up. We as a people, this is the biggest trick ever. They are only a people to protect themselves. They are only a people to play the victim. They're only a people to remember history, but the second that group that they all identify as does something wrong, it's not to blame everybody in the group, but it's like Kanye says, we as black people need to step up. We as black people need to stop getting lied to. But if he says the same thing to someone Jewish, they go, oh, it's not, oh my gosh, oh my, it's like, we're, I'm not saying it's you, but you're, you're acting like it's, it's not not you at this point, so you're proving his point. He's not blaming every single person, but he is holding up a mirror and going, you know, in, in some people's eyes unnecessarily hard to expose something. He has taken the blacklist that have been going on behind the scenes in Hollywood, in the media, and even in left-wing and right-wing culture for years. And because he's so famous, now all those blacklists are out in the open. And now there's a conversation going on. And a lot of people aren't willing to have it. Let's take another look. Uh, there's a lot of good clips I have loaded up. They put me as the only person that would say this. And I'm just saying that was four Jewish members that controlled my voice because for the fact that 90% of black people in entertainment from sports to music to acting are in some way tied into Jewish business people, meaning that in some way, just like if, if Rom is sitting next to Obama or Jared sitting next to Trump, there's a Jewish person right there controlling the 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 country, the Jewish controlling that who gets the best video or not, controlling what the media says about it's me. A person, not Jewish. Let me just say one they, thing. But they what? are though. That's the only thing. It just so happens that they are. It just you so happens saying that they are. It, that doesn't a, mean that I hate them. Yes, that yes, just. Yes. Kanye's like, that doesn't mean that I hate them. And Lex is like, yes, it does. That does mean that you hate them. So pattern recognition is hate hate speech now. If I notice that most people committing crimes in the South Side of Chicago are black, is that hate speech? Do they not exist anymore? Are they translucent? Is that, you know, if you identify that most illegal immigrants coming over the border are Hispanic, not all of them, now that there's like Haitians and random people at the border, does that make you a hate monger because you notice patterns? So I don't like I don't understand. It's like they're trying to create the narrative that you're not allowed to notice those patterns. 
I understand saying, hey, this is what it is. You know, those are just individuals. But we're going to play clips later where Lex doesn't say he's an individual. It, you know, he acts like it doesn't matter to him, but it does matter to him. Because the second Kanye says he's a black Jew, then all of a sudden Lex gets very uncomfortable. If race doesn't matter, why are you so uncomfortable that Kanye says he's you? You're uncomfortable because you want to be different. You have a unique tribe and identity. It means a lot to you, and you like to use that to you know, remember who you are, who your parents were, and what they went through. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't care. The hypocrisy is in, like I just said, there is no group. That doesn't exist. It's completely random. It's a figment of your imagination. But then later in the podcast, Lex says literally the exact opposite. Uh, let's watch more of this stuff because it's it's matrix breaking stuff. Me personally, I like comedians who push the the boundaries of what you can and can't say because that's where the magic is. And same with interviews. I don't need to hear a talking head on Fox News just flapping their mouth screaming. I get it. Yeah, the border wall doesn't work, and you know we need better border agents. Or Biden sucks. I get it. Yeah, Biden sucks. I'm personally. A registered Republican. I'm voting all Republican locally for vaccine mandates, mask mandates. I think the Democratic Party is worse on almost every single topic in the world. So, but that doesn't mean I'm going to clap for Ted Cruz, who's a, a doofus. Uh, let's keep watching. Doesn't a, mean that I hate them. Yes, that yes, just yes. means that they are. But it's a it's a dog whistle. To let me let me just say, as mm -hmm. I would love to add more love to the world. I would love you to do that as a person with a big voice, with a big, powerful voice that a lot of people look up to. And when you say Jewish media, it's funny how this world works that way. When you say Jewish media, or Jews are controlling the voice of black artists, black people, am, black artists, am, am when I, you say that- Am I not allowed to say it out loud? You can say it. There's a large number of people that are hurting and have anger and even have hate in their heart when they hear when they hear Jewish media they start that hate starts being directed towards the Jewish people do you acknowledge that that's do you understand can you feel the hate in the world that's when that uh I could feel you Lex Friedman feeling really uncomfortable because probably for the first time in a long time you've actually had to float the idea of self-accountability with the group that you identify as. I could feel your uncomfort like a little boy that's never been told no before. I could feel that. But as far as the hate, there's hate all over the place and, you know, hating people for no reason is evil. But the word dog whistle, what does that mean? Dog whistle? That's when, oh, you didn't say something that I, I want you to say, but that's going to make other people think other things. You know, you didn't say it, but they're going to think that. That's like saying, well, you know, uh, you said this and then someone in your audience felt this way. That's what Facebook does to me and Instagram when they say, you didn't make a mistake on your Instagram post, but someone in the comments wrote other things. Oh yeah, I'm responsible now for the thoughts and research and every page that everyone follows. All my followers don't just follow me. Most of my videos, I'm not even telling people what to think. I'm just showing them different angles and being Good, like, pause hey. It. All right, so uh, there's, there's a lot to that. I don't agree with everything that guy Anomaly is his name uh has to say yeah no, but no. i think it's interesting he does a good uh, he did a, i've never seen him before sorry to cut you in but he, he's he does his, a good job playing sort of the dialectic 
And yeah, he was on see- Timcast one time. I had no idea who he was or why he was on Timcast. But when I was searching the Kanye stuff, I saw he had some commentaries. And then he also had a couple of Shapiro commentaries in the past week. Mm-hmm. And I think those commentaries are necessary in the questions yeah. he's asking. He sort of reasons out loud. And so it's, 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 he's, and he's pretty calm about it. And for the most part, I, I thought, you know, sort of doing the analysis that we don't have to do now. I was like, oh, that's good. Uh, he did a good job for the most part. I mean, I don't agree with everything he's saying, but at the same time, it's pretty nuanced and he's, he's, you know, uh, providing a lot of good context, um, for, you know, what EA is trying to say and watching Lex Treatment squirm like that. I have never seen that. I've watched a lot of, especially back in like a year or two ago, um, earlier in the pandemic, I'd probably watched Lex a little bit more. Well, um, there's just like some unreasonable things. Like when Kanye say, says that he's uh, a black Jew, uh, why is that? Why Were there no Jews in Africa? Was there no history of the Ark of the Covenant being taken to Ethiopia? Like just recently, a whole bunch of people got killed trying to protect let's some. Let's not forget North Africa and Egypt. Um, LT, so. put up that story from the New York Post. It's in the. Yeah. There it is. At least 800 Ethiopians killed after defending Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, this is not Sunday school, and it's been 30 years since I've been to Sunday school. Ark of the Covenant is Old Testament Torah-based yeah. teaching. Mm-hmm. Christianity, Jesus, you call him Jesus, uh, overturning the money changers table and stuff. He comes along later. Oh, yeah, that's New Testament. Well, this is more, this is the Exodus story, part of the Exodus story. Ark of the Covenant is very much. happened uh, in North Egypt or right. in There's North a whole Africa. book on Exodus in the Old Testament. Now, first, we have to question the historicity. So I will refrain well, from I mean, the uh, obnoxious absurdity of even assuming there was an Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> bring up the uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, the Encyclopedia of the British Empire there, LD. Where is the Ark of the Covenant in search? Maybe Ethiopia. Not saying it's there. I'm just saying there's like thousands know, of I've seen artifices before, of yeah. the Ark in Ethiopia. Yes. I and know. Uh, you I know, know. There's... when I was really into this research, like over to, well, even before I met you. Yeah, there's the, so a bunch Lex of claims. Being the advanced AI that he does, he has access to the same links we just showed you. Only he does it instantaneously with his Neuralink and he should be able to not like short circuit over Kanye's statement because he he, he, so. he jests he's like yeah right sure you are buddy right well, his suffering is more important it's the postmodern credos like their suffering is the worst suffering of all time so therefore they're always in a victim mentality it and is. that's sort of what Kanye's I agree it's is, much right? worse what they Kanye's went through is much worse is- than uh, the nursing home fiascos during COVID right it's much worse it is I'm agreeing <clears throat> So we're a bit the problem is when I mean you already know this, but playing oppression Olympics, you know, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. So we're just gonna keep playing. The only this. way to win is not to play that game, Tony. I learned that from war games back in the day. You don't like zero sum game? The Whopper computer. It was just like a Burger King ad. I do remember it was a two war. it was a two hour long Burger yeah. King ad for anyone paying attention. <laughs> Product placement. Eat, eat the Whopper or the Whopper will eat you. <laughs> And it goes right back like to, to Bill de Blasio global, saying, get the jab. Global thermonuclear war. Would you like to play a game? All right. So, um, again, I apologize for that uh, 
surveillance footage not working out the way we thought a little bit earlier. There was like a double-ended double entendre that didn't come full circle jerk on that one. So we'll try again maybe later here in the show. But we do have a little more commentary on the Kanye situation uh, coming from Anomaly. You guys can check it out in the show notes. We don't have time to play any uh, any more of those clips. And you could just watch the source material. Watch Kanye's or Con- watch Ye's. I'm trying to respect yeah. his name. Watch Ye's interview with Lex and see, A, do you believe Lex is a real flesh and blood human being or a creation of MIT? Didn't or <laughs> Kanye, is he really a house painter or is he, you know, making some points? I have to say it like that because this is a comedy show. And if I just read the news to you, it's kind of boring. Apparently. Reality must be a simulation because it's just memes on top of memes on top of memes on top of memes. Hey, all speaking the way of which. Down. I think that Eisenhower speech was basically unmemeable. What is it about what was going on back then? It's based on reality and reason. And I'm not even it, a fan of Eisenhower. He's like, I'm not like either, Because we know about the history about we can't even talk about. nickname and everything. He's the oh, Swedish yeah. something or other. And if mm-hmm. you told Ye that, he'd have a fucking, he'd shit himself. So oh, I'm not boy. even mentioning. Don't tell him about what happened to Patton. Some of the letters that Patton was sending back to his wife before he died. Why is there a fake car in the Patton Museum? It's not the one that he crashed or died in or was assassinated. Oh, my. Anyway, even sometimes I can o- agree with Bill O'Reilly. All right, that's enough uh, of the patent subject. Because yeah. like people who want to learn, they'll learn. Yeah, they said. can research they'll themselves. Learn. Nothing. We're going to comment here anymore on the show. No, no, we're going to stick to hardy topics like Paul Pelosi. We have some new information here in the uh, production room. Uh, Paul Pelosi attacker lived in a school bus, so that's encouraging. How he defeated the security at the number three politician's husband's house while she wasn't there. Yeah, and uh, this New York Post article, the, I think it's funny because uh, Paul Pelosi attacker lived in a school bus. That's New York Post. And then the other one's Daily Mail. And that one says Musk shares tweet suggesting Paul Pelosi's attacker was gay prostitute, which is hilarious because I don't have to say that. No, I can just read the headline and you get the idea about the hatchet Harry joke now. Let's see here, New York Post. Yeah, Paul Post. I, I thought it was implicitly understood before we had that mistaken footage of the uh the talking of the the beating with the hammer. There were some interesting artifacts like uh the dispatch call, a couple other articles. Who answered the door? Because it sounds yeah, like I there were three we should, people there at the hours of the morning. Yeah, let's let's uh, let's let's John, begin. The John Brown clip was really, I mean, it was succinct and covered all the weird anomalies. I thought he did a good job, of, and it won't be too too long. A lot of the other clips were a bit longer, so I think that one's a good one. The Pelosi's October surprise. What First off, it? just 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 picture this for a minute: eighty-two-year-old Paul Pelosi, however the fuck old Nancy Pelosi, they live at a house. It's in California. It's I don't want to, that's all I want to say. Out of people. Right. Picture that situation. Now, where now, now Paul Pelosi recently DUI crashes mm-hmm. Porsche early in the morning. Nancy's nowhere drunks, to be seen. Nancy's on supposedly. the other side of the house. Okay. In what fucking imaginary world does this guy have hammers at the mansion? You know what I'm saying? Did like the, the handyman leave a hammer? Like what is going on? Where did the hammer come from? Everybody. Where did it come from? Inside the house, outside the house, 
there's a lot of questions to be answered. And the the first story of how it's a like right wing. Well, luckily, know, we know that the public really giant dildo. So, well, allegedly, allegedly, <laughs> I'm, joking. I'm joking. It was and it was it's a comedy pink. show. Yeah, it's pink. pink, to, pink. Yeah. Actually, I thought it was sort of a rainbow colored or LGBTQ friendly. A hardware stores they have plus, out there. Plus, 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 where plus. Paul Pelosi buys his hammers. <laughs> <laughs> God bless him. I'm glad it, uh, he's uh, recovering after the, the brain surgery from his lover attack or whatever happened out there. What happens in California stays, but unfortunately, it made the news. And now we have to cover it. So let's play. Uh, a couple clips and look at these articles. Like, why was Elon Musk saying it might be a gay prostitute? In the call, boys took the late night tour of the Speaker of the House's husband's house. <laughs> At least this one was. Uh, Let's just age. say it's not just Republicans that do the late night call boys. Hmm. Yeah, they seem to be unified. Not on just that. Bush. They're unified Bush on military industrial complex spending. And they're unified when it comes to call boys or girls. Hey, to, to play it fair, H.W. Bush, White House, 1989, Washington yeah. Times, uh, call boys take late night, late night tour of the White House. Yeah. Fast forward to W. Young Bush, Bush. Yeah, w. had Jeff fucking Gannon in his press corps taking late night tour, 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 tour of the White House. Right. What's up with yeah. that? And why did Jeffrey Epstein have a picture of George Bush in his house, too, along with Bill Clinton in a dress? Wearing his uh, ruby slippers. So anyway, those questions won't be answered from studying this Paul Pelosi story, but you can add it to the odd things that should never have happened in American history. Here's the next clip. In the wake of breaking news with little details, it was only a matter of hours before the Democrats' Mockingbird media had begun to politicize and twist the narrative of the attack regarding Paul Pelosi. Story tonight, new warning from law enforcement of a heightened threat to the midterm elections and the safety of elected leaders. Investigators say DePappy had planned to tie up Paul Pelosi and wait for the speaker to return home. Mr. Pelosi was taken to the hospital. Representative Pelosi's office tells us he underwent a successful surgery to repair a skull fracture and serious injuries to his right arm and hands. Tonight's bulletin from the FBI warns of a heightened threat fueled by a rise in domestic violence extremism driven by ideological grievances. Potential targets include candidates running for public office, elected officials, election workers, and others. The FBI warns the threat will continue even after Election Day. Clinging to the far-right January 6th boogeyman myth in order to desperately forward a campaign of stochastic terrorism. We have to understand that, you know, this attack was most likely done because of that rhetoric being being spread like that's my prediction is that we're going to find out that this was someone with with very far right motivations and someone who who follows people like tucker carlson like ben shapiro like matt walsh that's my prediction here and tucker carlson has one of the largest platforms in this country that spreads his white nationalist message to millions and millions of impressionable viewers every day you know the right wing wants you to believe that public schools are an indoctrination center for communist theory i wish they were but uh, actually people are not 
learning such things in school. As the clock runs out on the 2022 election, an outcome which could not only bring a response to the corporocratic neo-Marxist cancer festering in the American body politic, but also result in prosecution for a host of Democrats that had avoided scrutiny, including the President of the United States. The October surprise was imminent. It's reports that the same chant was used by this guy they have in custody that was used on January 6th. The chant was, where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? This is despicable. There's no place in America. There's too much violence, political violence, too much hatred, too much vitriol. And what makes us think that one party can talk about stolen elections, COVID being a hoax, there's all a bunch of lies, and it not affect people who may not be so well balanced? What makes us think that it's not going to corrode the political climate? The alleged attacker, David DePappy, a Canadian illegal immigrant had spent his time in Berkeley, California, making hemp jewelry and contributing to Bay Area nudist activism at a residence replete with a rainbow flag and a Black Lives Matter sign. However, they dared to deny the implausible narrative of 9-11, not exactly the far-right extremist Nazis they would have us believe DePape was a product of. According to KTVU, DePape had supposedly had with him a manifesto that contained anti-government COVID beliefs and a list of other politicians he planned to target. Additionally, the media had immediately derided DePape's online writings detailing COVID vaccine danger, the Great Reset, and the epidemic of pedophile normalization as crazed conspiracy nonsense, just buzzwords to be feared. The problem is people keep egging these people on. There are people on the television across the street from us that egg these people on talking about cabals and stuff and people secretly running the world and uh, this guy doesn't like women either. So um, that's happening right now and then on top of it you have political figures. You have the previous president of the United States you know, posting about QAnon on his social media platforms um, it, it, which is just about this same cabal this guy's talking about. So look, uh, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Uh, because it, right now there are people advocating uh, for these conspiracy theories out there. So, of course, people who can't, you know, who don't know this is a game to these politicians are going to take it out on real people. Oddly, DePape hadn't posted anything online for 15 years until reappearing in August of 2022, just months before a forthcoming October surprise. But the real questions, per usual, open up gaping holes in the Pelosi DePape narrative. For instance, how and why does a man wearing underwear carry a manifesto with him? And what about the possible depravity of Pelosi's alcoholic husband? Was DePape there for another reason? Why did Pelosi tell dispatchers DePape was a friend? I have a 14 hour copy. RP stated that there's a male in the home and that he's going to wait for his wife. RP stated that he doesn't know who the male is, but he advised that his name is David and that he is a friend. 
RP sounded somewhat confused. Questions that come to mind after others in the California Democratic Party within the circles of the Pelosi's have revealed their true colors. There are at least two counts of providing methamphetamine to a victim that resulted in death. Four additional counts of providing methamphetamine. One count of using his West Los Angeles apartment as a drug lair. And two counts of paying for interstate travel for the purpose of prostitution. All of these are significant charges he's been found guilty in all of them. There are maximum sentencing. It is likely that 66-year-old Ed Buck will spend the rest of his life in a federal prison. Anyone would assume that at the very least, Nancy Pelosi's multi-million dollar home in crime-riddled San Francisco would be outfitted with an equally expensive government-funded security system to protect the third in line to the presidency and her expensive ice cream freezer. And why would police allow DePape to continue assaulting Paul Pelosi after they arrived on scene. Furthermore, why was DePape injured? Details that could certainly clear some things up, but continue to remain a mystery. Of course, we have been here a thousand times before. The left despises questions because the truth is lurking and there is nothing more frightening for those invested in lies than the emergence of the truth. John Bound reporting. Well, that's interesting because when he calls 911 and he's like, hey, there's some dude here. I don't remember his name. Maybe he's being held hostage like Jimmy Dore. The RP was, was the was a housekeeper, which I, somebody oh, okay. did. I, I couldn't pull so that the up. the housekeeper I, I, was yeah, not That's my understanding. The, I mean, you know, the housekeeper's just chilling. The dude with the underwear, nudist there to, you know, hammering. Mm-hmm. Not, and then that had the manifesto tucked in as well as the hammer in just tucked crack, in. of course yeah, yeah of course that's some good underwear it's, it's gotta like be that, that's yeah nude, that's working nude man's color there. paper is an essential thing for their manifesto so that's like berkeley planning for you 101 but the interesting part for me is like you're picture yourself you're showing up to the scene it's the third in line to the united states throne you're a cop you're showing up Maid opens the door, dude in his underwear, Paul Pelosi, holding on to something they refer to as the hammer, are like yanking on it, struggling over it. And then the guy beats Paul Pelosi in front of the cops with the alleged hammer of whatever shape, watch, size, variety. don't really do anything immediately. What's that all about? There, tasers? Like I don't know. Taser, dude. I don't. Know. What, what happened there? What's the details? Where's the body cam? Standing cams? down when it comes to needing to take action by officers, whether it's in the tragic shooting that happened in Texas, or these are the conveniences that you have to have when you find the number three in powers husband with gay lover X Y Z situation that Elon Musk brought up. I didn't. Bring At first, up. I thought hammer was a metaphor. Project Hammer, you should look into it. Well, that's actually you should Google Project Hammer. <laughs> you might you might solve 9-11 and not the Pelosi case. Mm. But uh Project Hammer. There you go. Cold War slush fund. Um, what other clips from that are relevant to play into this time capsule of all the great things that happened in this week in American history? Uh so, you know, if I were to say the rest of, I mean, there's always so much that we have to skip just due to time. Um, I'll just put it on the screen here so people can check out. 
So yeah. uh, I was see. watching that Obviously Eisenhower we have film. The... Time machine would be useful at this point because we don't want to go forward, but might be going back to the yeah, 50s. It's already four in the morning. Nice. I would say there's one one to consider, but not you know overly burdensome if we you know that we don't need to necessarily show it. Um, but I thought it was interesting. Might be worth the show where the culture's at. It's kind of worth it. Um, Paul Joseph Watson, the culture section, had a its name. It's called It's All Bullshit. But he's really criticizing the sort of young woke at left leftist activists, climate activists that have been just damaging paintings. But he ties it to KC3 and his initiative. And yeah, the old Getty the Wolf. Yeah. So it's I thought he did a good job of breaking that down. I'd say if there's one other one to play before we go to wrap up the show. That'd be a worthwhile one gives us a good coverage of the culture. We covered a little Ukraine, covered lots of vaccines uh, topics tonight. So kind of gives us and lots of politics as well. So kind of rounds out with a, the cultural element of what's going on as well. So I would say if there's, that's the other one that's stuff that I think is worth sort of for people who become GTW subscribers, um, you get access to the show card. Um, the other stuff is good. It's interesting, worth checking out, but uh, it's not as know, funny as, yeah rubber hammers hammer time so um yeah i would say if there's one more to feature i would say it would be that one that i can go through which one tell me that uh one. it'd be the first one in culture and then uh let's section. think of things um, paul joseph watson to play us out for after this after we do the thank you as far as the stuff we're skipping um it's more a lot of elon musk twitter news was you know that was the big sort of news this week in that economics, technology, and politics section. Uh, Alex Jones, some more commentary about the t- going for two point seventy five trillion dollars. It's not, it's just laughable at this point. Uh, Jay Dyer, elite in their own words. You might have played that last week, last uh, GTW. I'm not sure. I, know, I think it dropped last Saturday or something. So that was a good one. Um, so worth checking out the uh let's see is there anything else here yeah so that's pretty much it and as far as playing out i don't know i actually didn't research any comedy clips but comedy well we can always go to jp yeah uh... yeah it's good to play us out i guess all right so we'll get to that when we get to that let's go to this (laughs) next clip which is essential essential learning for tonight's tour as we move toward the crescendo, the conclusion, the landing of this flight. Let's go to it. Just stop. Oil may have finally cottoned on to the fact that pissing off the general public by continually blocking roads might not enlist the support of the general public. So then one of their bright sparks had an even better idea. Let's try to ruin priceless historic works of art. Genius! Then we're forced to listen to Tabitha and Penelope recite what they learned in last week's struggle session. Are you more concerned about the protection of a painting or the protection of our planet? Are you more concerned about the protection of a painting? The protection of a painting. Yeah, I am more concerned about Van Gogh's sunflowers than your attention-seeking posh hissy fit. I would like to make one thing perfectly clear. We did no damage to the painting whatsoever. We did no damage to the painting whatsoever. No damage to the painting whatsoever. No damage to the painting whatsoever. Absolutely no damage done to the painting. Painting? These are the kind of people who'll do 8,500-mile return flights on daddy's money 
then browbeat me about my carbon footprint. The kind of people who'll travel across continents emitting double the amount of CO2 I would in a single year, and chastise me for taking an annual family holiday, all the while accelerating this great reset green transition that will make poor people even poorer, increasing their energy bills, forcing them to choose between heating or eating, while these double-barrel named toffs pat each other on the back before jetting off to Bali for their luxury jollies. No damage to the painting whatsoever, rah rah rah. No damage to the painting whatsoever. Here's the point. They don't care about enlisting the support of the general public because they don't need it. The establishment they claim to oppose is already enacting everything they're calling for. Net zero, banning petrol and diesel cars, carbon tax social credit scores, obliterating livestock farmers. It's all being rammed through already. Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion are shock troops for globalist technocrats already enforcing the same agenda. They're not there to persuade the general public, they're there to terrify them into compliance, defacing the King Charles waxwork at Madame Tussauds with chocolate cake. a fucking break. King Charles literally supports everything you idiots are lobbying for. He's been a staunch eco-crusader since before most of these activists were in nappies. This clown's clocked up more air miles than it would take to get to the moon and back. Over a decade ago, the dude who uses Hoover Dam quantities of water to feed his plants at Highgrove was ordering the lowly peasants to stop taking hot baths to save the planet. Why are you attacking him? He's not just the king of England, he's the king of your mental Doomsday cull. How does the police treat Just Stop Oil activists? Like royalty. Oh, are you okay? Do you need some water? Don't worry, we'll protect you from those awful working class people. If you've got any questions at all, just ask. And if any of you are in any discomfort or need anything, just let me know. Or we'll try and sort you out in a nice way. Can't phrase that any worse, could I? But no, if you need any assistance at all, just let me know. Okay. I was at an anti-lockdown protest when a few demonstrators sat in a road in London, Parliament Square. Within 10 minutes, they sent the riot cops steaming in. Boom. <laughs> These tofu munchers block major roads, block bridges, and what happens? They get free refreshments and counselling. Or need anything, just let me know. Cops will crack the heads of anti-vaccine mandate protesters with wanton abandon. Just stop oil, extinction rebellion. They'll dance with them on the streets like it's gay pride parade. <laughs> We're literally going around and talking to them. As you'll see, there's lots of officers around. We're chatting to the protesters. So far, they've had music, and um, and then they've gone and uh, had their sort of festival in the road. When irate members of the public try to intervene, the police support the criminals who are blocking the road. The activists openly thank the police for their kid glove treatment. Here's Just Stop Oil themselves just this morning, noting how the police are AWOL. No arrests so far, and most police who were here just left. AWOL. AWOL. Even when them blocking the roads is literally leading to people dying. Lisa Weber was hit by a car and killed on the M20, having been forced to divert there after Just Stop Oil activists climbed the Queen Elizabeth II bridge. Their actions have caused multiple car crash pile-ups. And yet the police tell protesters it's up to them whether or not to allow ambulances to pass. There's an ambulance. 
ambulance coming through here that's stuck behind that bus. It's down to you whether you make space for it to come to or not. You're told it's possible it's over there. It's down to them whether they're allowed to block ambulances. No, it isn't. You're the police, for fuck's sake. Arrest them. Oh, no, can't do that. The protest leaders themselves expressed their, quote, absolute disbelief that they were allowed by police to continue blocking major roads and motorways, asking, why aren't we in prison? Oh, gee, I wonder. Let's pause there for a quick word from the sponsor of this video. Lord Watson. That has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? Well, now it's a reality. Yes, it's now official. I am now a lord. I own land in Scotland. Good and pause. You could too. Higgin, fast forward to his. I mean, the fact that those dudes are like, what is it called? They're called Stop Oil. What stop are they called? Oil, yeah, Stop Oil now. Or I think like since like we are now in the era of the post-truth world, the post-fact world, where they do open-air experiments on people without consent, I say oil. just stop oil. Let's use them as a test group. Let's uh, sequester them. Not like a quarantine, but just a little sequester, just a little real-time test. And let's uh, put them in an area. And then anything that has anything to do with oil, you take away from them. And anything to do with oil, you don't give to them. So they're now up to them because they're the answer smart people, right? You figure out your food, your water, your shelter, uh, all the things you need without oil. And uh, I'll give you... 21 days because that's about how long it's going to take you to starve and dehydrate yourself in that situation you stupid fucks mm -hmm. so before you go oh i'm i can pour tomato soup or i can block ambulances maybe you ought to look at why the police didn't drag you out of there like uh you know didn't we just see people in berkeley getting pepper sprayed and maced with like mass quantities when they didn't like what the free speech protesters were doing so if you're not getting pepper sprayed maced tased and L ratted, you're not fucking protesting the fucking establishment. You're helping to circle jerk it off. Let me just give you a clue, little protesters out there. That's right. Sorry. No, it's you're exactly right. It's 4 a.m. <clears throat> and after a tour of this week's fucking news, it is a little frustrating to see mm -hmm. those people who are protesting and stopping people from getting to the hospital. They're fucking clueless. Yeah, people are dying because they're. How do you get to be that age and still there. clueless? Well, what's interesting is in the 70s, you know, uh, this is after the limits to growth, obviously the Club of Rome. Um, I forget the first major initiative. I think it was held in Sweden. Um, my memory's a little hazy. It's four in the morning. I've had, I'm getting over cold, but it's on the second uh, part of All Watched Over Machines of Love and Grace by Adam Curtis. But he goes on to note that the young sort of this is like the hippie generation. They're a little older now. It's in the 70s, but they're the ones actually outside protesting, saying, well, all these corporations are all part of this new, like, you know, need to save the planet and overpopulation. They're the ones polluting. So they're yeah. actually they were protesting Still, the corporations that are sitting up there saying, oh, no, we need, you know, there are limits to growth. Oh, no, we need to do something about this. At least they still understood there's a there's a disconnect between this sort of uh, this narrative control that they were attempting to go for in the 70s. And so what did they do, they got to the next generation. So like the hippies then had children. And then, and then that was all. That's all they had to do. All they had to do is educate their children and say, no, no, no. Like, you know, the big bad corporations like the robber barons pre-50s they were the bad ones they created the situation but we're the good corporations and we're on board with like the you know greening the world or something and now yeah, it's, these, these they don't protesters realize they're telling part people of, that you could just shut off oil 
bitch. You couldn't shut off your fucking internet for a week and survive. You think all the, you're gonna all shut their off clothes they're and wearing survive? and shit? Like they would have to take away everything. Like because they pretty much our lives are so interdependent, interconnected with carbon and oil. I'd say yeah. go sell crazy someplace else, but they are. They're over in Britain and it's perfectly being bought up over there. They're like, this oh, is a yeah. currency now. Yeah, oh, it's crazy. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Some people suck. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. They have a right to be wrong. And they're expressing it. Oh, yeah, they can go, they can go ahead and shop. And so they say, well, of course, it's different over there because they don't have a First Amendment. Never have, never will. They got a king, though. They got a king instead of a First Amendment. I think it's, a, you know, they're the one that it's not our country. Let them have it. Yep. Just don't bring it here. Don't bring it here. How about when that communist chick was like, oh, they think the schools are indoctrination centers teaching communism. She's like, I wish. I wish they were. I'm like, yeah, I wish they would take said. everything that capitalism's brought you to make that complaint away. So you could fucking yell in the woods. I know. Like the mic she's be. speaking into, the computer she's so, using, the makeup she's yeah. wearing. The, the, it's so the, ass backwards that I have trouble trying on their the perspective. Oh, yeah. They, they just have, they're so disconnected from reality, supply chains, basic economic theory, basic everything. They just, these are uneducated, indoctrinated individuals that are really just, they've never thought for themselves about anything they never really worked through anything well, they never their own agency they, they were told the world was going to end in 10 years tony so they didn't have a reason to learn how to use their cognitive faculties they just phoned it in literally they iphoned it in <laughs> ld uh, who do we have to thank for this episode all right let's load up the list yeah we of course have little... uh the great members of grand theft world thank you guys yeah it's higher caliber that's a indeed a very distinct sound well, if you haven't been to grandtheftworld.com, go check it out. You can join our community. Check out the Zoom webinar to enjoy the live stream experience. And get in the Discord and access to the Library of Cognitive Liberty with a whole bunch of Rich's work from uh, years past. But uh, huge thanks to all those that are in the community and uh, help keep this thing rolling, this pirate ship of... Uh, information encapsulation and uh especially big thanks to the rockfin tippers tonight let's get through it small computer system in uh interface dash one five dollars happy halloween y'all rebunked love the yeah, name, it's halloween. happy love, halloween love yeah. the name always do so always <laughs> appreciate the support great name though uh yeah rebunked hey what's oh, going scott oh yeah Great job Excuse filling me. in, by the way, and thank you very much. You guys did a fantastic job. Uh, $20 from Rebunked. Scott, thank you. Grateful to the Grand Theft World and Autonomy Communities. Thank you for everything. $20 from Sir Dave and Dame Laura of the Land of Venison, Cheese, and Maple Syrup, otherwise known as Vermont. Resist we much. <laughs> and Jake thank you, thank Sheen, $5. Yeah, thank you guys. I'm making. Oh, let's try that again. Jake Sheen, five dollars. I'm making. Take it. My ringtone. <laughs> Vervain Verve, five dollars. Thank you, Dallas Savad, five dollars. Come on, man. You don't even have to think about it, dude. Take it, take it. Let's see if. Come on, man. 
Oh, this is hard to do. You don't have to think about it, dude. Take it. <laughs> take it. See, oh, Adam Curry is really it. good at that. The double take. Yes. Double jab. Hmm. We had. Well, Nick- we we did have a lot of double ended double entendres during double that episode. Entendres, so double, double Dutch rudders. Oh Almost yeah. A- <laughs> Hammer time. Nick Hayes, five dollars. Guests and solutions on Grand Theft World. Rich and Tony, let her rip. Coming to hear, coming to your ear holes weekly. Come on, man, take it. Just the tip. Out there in San Francisco, it's all sword fights and syringes. But they say this guy who broke into Pelosi's house came from the fringes. <laughs> it's back at you, Nick. Very nice. Garrett Patton, $5. Derek Bros's coverage of the Utah ritual abuse story has been top-notch. So much respect for him and how he's handled such a difficult topic. Autonomy course on journalistic ethics and protocol? Maybe. And Thank Mark you, Corbett would be good. Yeah. yeah. Dallas Avad, $5. Resistance is essential for growth. Indeed. Thank you, Dallas. I was again. thinking about the the suggestion for Derek. That could be a good course offering. I'm just a little slow on the re realizing the downstream good idea nature of that. So thank you. Yeah, I dropped that in the uh, I dropped that in one of our channels for uh, reviewing later. Gerardo Tappen, five dollars once a week. Some put out an important message. It's not on CNN. As you eat your breakfast, where I put my energy and time, I've become selective. I'm a GTW detective. LD behind the control room is well fitting. Sometimes I get up and stop sitting. You would consider me to be kidding. I told you, I told you, brain. I am not quitting. I am not falling asleep. I am taking a nap before the show. Monday morning, my week is whole. Thank you, Jerry. Thanks, Jerry. $20 from ARAM. Thank you very much. TCAN, $5. GTW, thanks for doing it live and sticking with it. Thank you all so much. And I just wanted to yeah, give thank a you, everyone. Uh, big thanks to George from True Life Podcast who had me on, did an interview this, this week, and uh, I think he's going to have Rich on at some point. Really like George. Thanks to AM Wake Up, Pasta and Steve for having me on their show earlier this week. And thanks to Yona for having me on the lower cast peasants podcast to hang out. And uh, just a big hat tip to crack pot and buzzkill for 15 years and still going strong. That would be Adam Curry and John C. Dvorak. They were celebrating 15 years of doing the no agenda show this week. And uh, pretty cool. And I heard on their show, as I frequently hear, Mr. Sir Occult fan himself, Mr. Nathan Lee, who we're familiar mm. with. Uh-huh. He, he uh, tends to frequent uh, meetups and uh, get his, get his no voice Nathan. on the show. Well That's played. Rap. All right. Uh, uh, this Tuesday ahead, yep, is the Tuesday night town hall. I had to postpone last week because of traveling, but I'm back now. And Sun and I are finally going to do a deep dive into the Templars. It's going to be pretty unique. So we're going to highlight a lot of the incompleteness around trying to tr- trying to build these larger, more conspiratorial narratives. And just we're going to stick to just the plain facts. She has a lot of really interesting sources, um, you know, in regards to that. And to show a lot of how a lot of narratives got started around that time that may or may not be true. 
And so we're just uh, going to present a very different sort of take on how to interpret a lot of that history. We've been talking about doing doing it for a while, and we're finally poised to get that underway. So that'll be done this Tuesday. And I think we have some articles uh, we'll be covering after we're finished that, that some people requested we review and have discussions about. So I have those queued up as well. I think LD, you had some you wanted to review. I've definitely gone over those. I think uh, James had some as well um, that he had sent to me. So lots of, uh, lots of stuff to uh, discuss together in the town hall, um, both with the presentation on Templars and also uh, some uh, more mainstream articles in regards to some of the narratives that we are talking about on the show all the time. So should be very interesting, should be very lively. Uh, you want access to the town hall, you got, all you got to do is become a subscriber. And that's every other Tuesday. So this Tuesday should be a pretty fun, pretty big town hall. So. I predict in the next week or so, you're going to start seeing some other folks that you might see broadcasting with document camps. I think it's a essential part of the arsenal in the information war to be able to point the camera down at stuff you're writing, stuff you're reading, stuff you're highlighting. And uh, we'll, we'll probably have some clips by next episode on what that all means. It's supposed to be enigmatic because it hasn't happened yet. It's part of prophecy. Got to check it out. All right. Thank you guys all for tuning in and not dropping out. Uh, this show is about learning how to show up for yourself. You got to show up to grow up. You uh, you hung in there. Thank you for, for doing all you do to support the show. It is the live audience that we're catering to during the live show, but we're really doing this for posterity. So if you're watching this in the future on the replay, well played. I leave it to you, uh, LD, to pick whatever we're going to use to play us out tonight. Okay, I have a couple of selections. One is a an A-B test of a joke. I think you'll find it interesting. And then uh, yeah, something else to play us out. All right. Let's, let's, uh, let's give Risk a chance. <laughs> Caitlyn Jenner is woman of the year, but hasn't been a woman for a full year. Caitlyn Jenner was voted Woman of the Year, her first year as a woman. This is who I feel bad for, because you got the LBGT, right? Did we play this already? more every day right now. Well, I'll tell you what it happened. No, I don't think so. I haven't seen it. You hear all those letters all right. together all the time. LBGT, LBGT. I think we did a long time ago, actually. It all started with the L's. Yeah, it could, it could have been a week I wasn't here. But I guess the gist would be this. I see what the, the pattern is. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I don't know if I'm comfortable with calling the pattern. No, uh, the one I wanted to find That's was, one of those patterns was... you can't talk about. That's like a trick at the end of the show. So here's what was... I can say. Owen Benjamin got canceled. And Dave apparently didn't want those good jokes to go to waste. It's like if your friend had made some food, but then had to go to the hospital and, you know, what we got to eat the chicken that's on the table. Maybe. But uh, I blew I mean, that. I had a, uh, it was Andrew Schultz. It was Andrew yeah. Schultz doing a uh, Owen Benjamin bit and not as. Effective. Well, I always thought Owen Benjamin's a writer for all these other comedians. Are you telling me that they're stealing his bits? <laughs> like they're uh you know who's the guy I, is, is, is uh, pattern recognition uh anti anti uh hateful well let me check what week it is we're still in 2022 right let me see it's right after daylight saving time yes it is 
<laughs> right. Uh, well, I lost track of that one, so maybe next right. year, next Ma- next show, we'll cases. circle back. Yeah, so, Saki uh, back. It's like the repeating pattern of uh, our current milieu. See, that's a callback to a definition from earlier tonight. All right, so uh, JP to play us out? Yeah, we'll try again. That's a mulligan. That's a Jerry mulligan. We end the show like we start the show. There you go. Thank you all for tuning in. Not dropping out. Peace. Have a good night, everyone. What's up, sports fan? Midterm elections are approaching. Quite an exciting time. But here's the problem. If you've always been a loyal Democratic voter... You might be facing the internal struggle of starting to see how the left's corruption and hidden agendas are hurting you and your family. I mean, obviously we all want inflation and wide open borders that allow dangerous criminals, human trafficking, and fentanyl into our country unchecked, along with food supply and energy shortages, and a gradual erosion of constitutional rights. Now we all want a lot of these glorious things, don't we? But maybe you're starting to see that we're beginning to have too much of these good things, and the tide will only continue to rise even further if you keep voting exclusively blue. (coughs) So what can you do? Keep voting blue no matter what! And I'm going to teach you how to weaponize some psychological tactics against yourself so that you can keep voting blue. But first, you might be wrestling with internal struggle of, ugh! If I keep voting blue no matter who, I see the evidence that things will only get worse, but I'm scared to vote for a candidate who seems better suited for the job who happens to be a Republican. Ah! I understand your struggle, and I can assure you, it's not okay to change your mind in how you vote. So let's dive headfirst into the shallow end on some effective strategies that'll teach you how to violate your conscience and courage so you can keep voting blue no matter who. So listen up and do as I say, smear people. Now you might encounter a Republican candidate who seems to you like a person who will serve you and the people better than their Democratic opponent. You might even be tempted to vote for this person. Don't be fooled by what you think. You need to smear that person so you can trick yourself out of believing what you would otherwise believe about that person. Here's how to properly smear them. Step number one, see who they are and what they stand for and now ignore that person. Step number two, then make up a bunch of insults, stories, and negative character traits and project them over here as though it's a different person, because it is, but give them the same name. This smearing process will help you avoid seeing this person over here as a good person because you're fixated on this awful person over here that you've created. Now, because this is important, let's go through another good smearing example. Candidate for Arizona Governor, Carrie Lake. Left to your own devices, you might accidentally see her as someone who cares about her country and state and wants to protect them by having legal immigration processes upheld. She wants to keep drugs and human trafficking from just openly frolicking over the border. She wants to keep taxes low, and she wants to clean up public schools. But she's a Republican. So now we imagine the new person over here and make up some very unsavory things that turn you off about that person. Well, she's a conspiracy theorist and she thinks there's a biological difference between men and women. I have never noticed that when I'm having sex with my wife. She's crazy and probably transphobic and racist too. And now you couldn't possibly vote for this person that you said those things about. 
Pro tip, if your creativity fails you while you're smearing someone, just resort to the utility smears of transphobic, homophobic, misogynist, and racist. The person you're smearing can't possibly refute these claims because you're not even talking about them. Now let me use fear to help further convince you that it's not okay to change your mind and vote with your conscience this time. Here is a fact. Only dumb, unstable people ever allow themselves to change their mind. And you don't want to be one of them, do you? Could you imagine if you looked at the beliefs and worldview that you had when you were in third grade and how insane it would be if you ever allowed yourself to change your mind from that? We know that learning, growth, and better outcomes never come from changing your mind. When you grasp this concept, you develop a fear response to this person over here who happens to have an R behind their name. Let's use more fear. It's been announced recently by a very trustworthy man reading off a teleprompter that if you allow yourself to vote red, then you are a dangerous extremist. Now with that intimidation tactic at play, you have two choices. You can either abide by your courage and vote with your conscience, or you can cower down in fear from the intimidation and vote accordingly. And I don't know about you, but I know I'm the type of person who's intimidated into the correct answer. In closing, we're living at a critical time, and admittedly, the media does a pretty good job of smearing people for you. But with midterms approaching and Dems way down in the polls, and a lot of Democrats already unfortunately announcing that they'll be voting red, during this critical time, you can't leave it all up to the media. You've got to take it upon yourself and do the work to make sure you help make a difference in making sure that no difference is made. It's my sincerest hope that when you weaponize these tactics against yourself, you'll be able to put your conscience and critical thinking into a grave where they belong so you can keep voting blue no matter who. This message is paid for by the United States for a Destructive America Foundation. Conspiracy is the story of history. It's the story of plunderers taking care of people who produce. They claim to take care of them through government, which doesn't give you anything. It doesn't take away first. So it's not creating something out of nothing. It's very real what they're doing. They're taking your rights or taking some people's rights and adding more to someone else's rights. If you haven't heard about our Grand Theft World community membership, here are a few of the things you've been missing. A mobile app where you can access replays of the Grand Theft World podcast and show notes. Access to the Grand Theft World community on Discord, where we crowdsource news and resources, and you can contribute to the show. The opportunity to participate in the Grand Theft World bi-weekly town hall. Exclusive content from Richard Grove, including behind-the-scenes footage and future access to unpublished material. 93 episodes of the Peace Revolution podcast, and the Grand Theft World newsletter delivered straight to your inbox each week. If you want to stay ahead of the great game, visit us at GrandTheftWorld.com, click or tap the button in the top right-hand corner, and join a vibrant community of researchers blazing a new path to truth. We'll see you there.